It certainly is a big bun. It's a very big bun. Big fluffy bun. It's a very big fluffy bun. Where's the beef? Some hamburger places give you a lot less beef on a lot of bun. Where's the beef? At Wendy's, we serve a hamburger we modestly call the single. And Wendy's single has more beef than the Whopper or Big Mac. At Wendy's, you get more beef and less bun. Hey, where's the beef? I don't think there's anybody back there. You want something better. You're Wendy's kind of people. I don't think there's anybody back there, but there's someone here. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. This is the Druff and Friends show on May 8th, 2019. Right now the time, 8.33 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Hardly anyone in the chat room because uh, they're not used to us starting so close to on time. But uh, we are getting going here. And uh, for those latecomers, the stragglers, there is, of course, the agenda, so they have a little bit of time to get here. But speaking of time... In 27 minutes, we're going to have a free roll, which is $114, mostly thanks to, yes, you guessed it, attorney Eric Benzamokin, an incredibly generous guy. In fact, I'm going to see him soon. We're going to, we're going to meet up for lunch pretty soon. And uh, he gave $100. Daredevil, yes, he's still alive. Yes, he still listens. He's still around. He gave $14. Yes, that same Daredevil who used to co-host this show. So I thank him for that, too. $114 this week. The prizes are distributed as follows. $60 for first, 29 for second, 15 for third, 10 for fourth. That's 60, 29, 15, and 10. You can be paid in a variety of ways, including Bitcoin, including Zelle, the Cash App, bank transfers. I can even hand you money at the World Series if you see me. I can send you cash in an envelope, but uh, no guarantee it gets there. And one other method that has been used to pay for things online for about 20 years now, which I'm not going to name, but you can use that too to receive money from the free roll. Real money, not crappy online poker money, which you may not be able to cash out on a site you don't want it. No, this is real money you will get that will go in your bank account, and you can spend on whatever whatever you want. Totally free to enter. You need to know the rules, though, to qualify for the free money. That's PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase, exactly as it sounds, no punctuation. And make sure you have a registered and validated account on the No Fraud Online Poker Room where it takes place. That's located near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. If you just sign up tonight, you're not going to be able to play because your account will not be validated in time. It needs to be validated. We do that in order to prevent multi-accounting and chip dumping. So people don't go on multiple devices and dump chips to themselves. That's not very fair, so we don't allow that. So, okay, here's uh, there's screaming in the background here. <laughs> Nothing bad's happening, though. It's just kids. So anyway, kind of sounds like there's a torture chamber in my house. That's not good. That's, uh, that's going to be used against me one day. I know it. So we have uh, a lot of different topics tonight. If you like poker drama, we have a lot of poker drama tonight. And we're going to have Trader Ruski on tonight, as always. But a lot of poker drama stories this week. So if that's the type of thing you like, if you don't like kind of dry poker and gambling world stories, this is a good show for you. We do have some of those too, but we're going to do a lot of poker drama up front. And then we'll get to the rest. If you want to call the show tonight, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55-775-372-8355. You can also call the Mount Charleston line. The Mount Charleston line is located on the top of Mount Charleston, which is near Las Vegas. It is in a cabin on the top of the mountain. Still a little bit of snow up there, too, believe it or not, even in late May. 
The phone number there is 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the phone number. It's the Mount Charleston line. We have the call to listen line, but before you tune me out here and say, oh, I've heard this before, there's two things I want to tell you about the call to listen line. Two important things you need to understand. First of all, the call to listen line's phone number has changed. And second, I fixed it. So over the last few months, it it would just go down and I'd have to reset it and I'd have to do this every few days. I'd have to keep checking on it to make sure it's running. It just, it wasn't reliable. I, I want to picture the call to listen line as something that could run for years by itself after I die. But this, I needed to hold its hand and and pick it back up when it would fall down. And I didn't like that. So I spent some time last week fixing it. And it is fixed. But along with that fix is a new phone number. And it's back in Iowa. I decided I don't like the line in South Dakota. It wasn't working out there. So I've moved it back to Iowa. It's in a new town in Iowa. It's in a, a new shack in a new town. It's a town called Kilduff. Not Kildruff. You know, I'm Todd Dandruff would tell us, but it's not Kildruff, Iowa. It's Kilduff, Iowa, small town. The last call to listen line was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. The previous one was in Carroll, Iowa. Carroll and Kilduff are not all that close. Kilduff is east of Des Moines. And here's the new number, 641-741-1095. is the new call to listen line. The old numbers... Uh, I try, I'm trying to kind of link them together so you can still reach it if you call the old number, but it's not always that reliable. Just call the new number, 641-741-1095. It is listed on the Poker Fraud Alert radio page in case you forget it. So that's a new call to listen line phone number, and it should be working. Other than when I intentionally take down the streaming reruns, they should be running at all times when we're not live. I take it down a few hours before radio just to prevent confusion so people don't go, wait, is that the new show or is that the old show? Like, I I want everyone to understand the day that we're broadcasting what is new and what's old. But other than that, you're going to hear streaming reruns. You might wonder how many shows we've had. And that's actually a topic. That'll be the first topic we talk about tonight. You'll hear why when we get to it. I have some new equipment tonight. Uh, you may have noticed on previous shows that you were hearing like a dunk, 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 dunk in the background a lot. And that was because my equipment was getting old and beat up. And when I would move, you'd hear this. Remember that? I, I bet if you were regularly listening to the show, I'm sure you're tired of hearing. I'm sure you're tired of hearing that. So I've got new equipment so it doesn't do that anymore. The sound you just heard was me intentionally doing it with my finger. But uh, this was something I could not control that the equipment was doing it. And I went back and listened to parts of the other shows we've done recently, and it really bothered me to hear. So I was like, you know what? I'm opening up the Drew Wallet. I'm getting new equipment. And now it doesn't do that anymore. Now, I'm not saying that it'll be background noise-free. There'll be the occasional uh, scream of terror in the background. There'll be the occasional bumping of the microphone or whatever. But for the most part, you're not going to hear dunk, 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 dunk in the background anymore, which makes me happy. The chat room is open. If you're listening live, you can go in the chat room. You need a flash-enabled device, so don't go in there with an iPhone or iPad or it will not work for you. You also need a working forum account that's been validated to get into the chat room. And it's mainly to chat with the other listeners of the show live. 
in the archives. If you're listening that way, don't bother. There will not be anyone there. In fact, there's hardly anyone there right now because we started close to on time. Everyone's so used to be being like 30 to 40 minutes late that no one shows up anymore on time. I don't blame them. I'm just saying that's what happened here. But for those that do show up on time, when I don't, you're rewarded tonight that you're getting to listen when others are missing it. Of course, you're just hearing the agenda. Speaking of the agenda, here it is, and then we're going to get going. I'm going to talk about Poker Fraud Alert's 300th episode and the 300th episode celebration we're going to have. It's not what you think. When I get to that segment, you'll understand. Annette Oberstadt, also known as Annette 15, is now in makeup. Yeah. You may say, well, big deal. A lot of poker players who get staked end up in makeup. No, no, no. She is literally in makeup. I will explain when we get to that segment. Very surprising, shall I say. Well, surprising and not surprising. Catrific, remember her? The YouTuber who uh, entered a tournament that was a smaller tournament and she got sat in the much bigger main event by accident by the staff and she realized it and tried to keep playing anyway and basically get away with a a $400 buy-in to a $1,700 event. And then when they caught it and kicked her out of the event, she made a YouTube video criticizing the floor man and was very angry and treated treated it like she was the victim here. And then there was, of course, a lot of backlash and then some side drama to that drama when there started being fighting between those defending her and those criticizing her. Well, there's new catrific news. She has put her foot in her mouth once again. She attempted to sell pieces of the World Series despite this whole controversy. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, the poker royal is pissed off at you for doing something like that. And you're like, okay, well, sorry, everybody, for entering a tournament uh, and, and trying to sneak in to the main event once I was sat there. She didn't try to sneak in, but once she was sat in the main event erroneously, she tried to go with it and screw everybody who paid the full price. She's like, oh, sorry about that. Everyone's pissed at me, but would anyone like to buy a piece of me? (laughs) And that's basically what she did. So as you can imagine, the reaction was not good. And then her reaction to the reaction was not good. She just doesn't belong in poker. She should go back to YouTube and and just stay there. So we'll talk about what happened with Catrific. Sean Deeb in the ongoing war that he's having with Daniel Negreanu, he went on Chicago Joey's show and alleged that poker stars made a sexual harassment lawsuit settlement payment to some woman at, at uh, who worked for them who felt uncomfortable uh, about Daniel Negreanu and Amanda Leatherman uh, acting sexually or something. Something happened there with Negreanu and Leatherman that caused a sexual harassment lawsuit to be filed, and this was resulting in a payment, according to Sean Deeb. Yeah, we'll talk about that. By the way, I heard about this before. I just didn't report it on the show, and I'll tell you why. But this is not news to me, just news to all of you. But I'll tell you why I kept quiet about it. I I don't keep quiet about many things, but I'll tell you why I kept quiet about that. Daniel Jungleman Cates, good poker player, sometimes outspoken, sometimes uh, says some things online that are uh, a bit controversial, sometimes overly aggressive. One time he didn't like me disagreeing with him on 2 plus 2 and told me he's going to punch me in the face next time he sees me. And I actually said, well, you you can threaten that all you want, but I'm going to keep saying it. Like I, That didn't scare me at all. I, I don't think he's actually going to punch me in the face, but uh, that's, that's not going to shut me up. Anyway, 
uh, he's in the news for a reason you'd never guess unless you already know about this. Daniel Cates has released a sex video involving him. So I'll tell you about that video and we'll try to figure out what he's trying to do here. Not a likely guy to be doing this. Ronnie Barda is the latest poker player to be selected to be on Survivor on CVS. There's been uh, three poker players already, and now there's the fourth one. So we'll talk about that and talk about whether Ronnie Barda is going to be liked. The poker players who have appeared on Survivor so far haven't been all that popular with the general public watching. Like, there have been some people who like them, but not that many. So we'll talk about the previous poker players that appeared on Survivor, and we'll talk about Barda. I'll tell you about my personal experiences with Barda. I'll tell you my opinion of Barda and how I think he's going to do on the show. Dutch Boyd is in a place you may not expect him to be. A poker fraud alert listener went to go play at the win and saw Dutch. You may see What's the big deal? Of course, you may see Dutch in a poker room. That's not a surprise. Yeah, except Dutch was not playing. He was dealing. Huh. Yes. Three-time bracelet winner Dutch Boyd is now a poker dealer. We will talk about that and why that might be. World Series of Poker main event champion Ryan Reese is back in the news for a very good play on a poker broadcast. Reese called off his entire stack to an all-in bet when he had 10 high on the river. There was no further cards to draw for. The the cards were all dealt. They were all on the table. He had 10 high. He called, and he won, would you believe? So we will talk about that hand. We don't do many hand analyses on these shows, but we're going to do one here. I will tell you why he made that call. I'll tell you why, even though it was an excellent call, even though I believe I would have folded in that spot, and meaning he would have played that hand better than me. But I'll tell you why it's not as soul-reading as you may think. Not to take anything away from it, but I'll tell you the thought process and why he might call that. Very ballsy call, though, for all his chips, and uh, he was right. Pretty amazing. Update to the... World Series story from last week about the tournament account that you can wire money to, and I said that there were some rumors that it was $3 per tournament to use it. That's exactly what it is. We got confirmation. I'll tell you about the confirmation, and I'll tell you about why I think it's so wrong. Speaking of things that are wrong, resort fees. This is something everyone hates. We had a woman on here. She's an attorney. She's a, she's on a quest to eliminate resort fees. She runs uh, killresortfees.com. We had her on. It was a pretty good segment, actually. I liked having her on here. But uh, I have updated my list of Las Vegas hotel resort fees. I did that last night on vegascasinotalk.com, which is a sister site to Poker Fraud Alert. I, I own that as well. And I found when I was updating this list that unfortunately not only have most resort fees in Las Vegas increased again in 2019, but some of the few properties in Las Vegas that were not charging resort fees have decided to start charging resort fees. So there's even fewer properties left in Vegas that don't charge resort fees. 
So we'll have the resort fee discussion again. I'll tell you what's changed. I'll quickly run down the list. And there's some misconceptions about resort fees, which I'll try to clear up. Caesars Properties are cutting comps further in 2019. They've already been cutting comps the last few years. If you're a player there, I'm sure you've noticed. But they're going to cut comps further, and they announced this, in fact. And there was an article in the Las Vegas Review Journal talking about why. Here's an interesting story. I almost feel bad for leaving it near the end, but this is a reward for those of you who listen to the end. There are casinos in the Vancouver, Canada area, which apparently were what's called, they were called the epicenter of massive Canadian money laundering. There was blatant, obvious, and large-scale money laundering going on at these casinos, apparently. And it was going on unchecked, and nobody seemed to care. Finally, Canada clamped down on it. I guess they were never as obsessed with preventing that as the U.S. was, but Canada realized it was a big problem. And they are now clamping down on it. And I'll tell you the impact on the casinos there. And I'll tell you some of the crazy stories that were occurring in these casinos involving money laundering. Finally, we have a new state where sports betting is going to be legal. Montana. Montana is now the first state in 2019 to legalize sports betting this year. Of course, there's other states that legalized it in 2018, in addition to Nevada, where it was legalized for decades. But Montana is the first one in 2019 to get it done. That is our agenda tonight. Let's see if we can reach Trader Ruski. Then we will get going. Ten minutes till the free roll starts. Usually I start this show and I say, oh, the free roll already started. You can get in late registration. No, we've got ten more minutes to stroll on in there. Isn't that nice? Isn't it nice when we have time? Sounds like I'm searching for Trader Risky Submarine. Yeah, not so much anymore. The weird thing is it's like pulsing his picture back and forth. It's a really weird thing to see. Huh. Maybe he's not there. Okay, so I know why he's not there. He texted me. Trader Ruski, I, I give him credit here. He's, uh, he's really making an effort to be on this show. He was in Chicago today. Today. In fact, he was in Chicago until this afternoon. And he just pulled into his house uh, about 15 minutes ago. So he just, he just came back from Chicago, and so I guess he's settling in. So I, that's a good reason to be late to the show. By the way, I, I had a, a listener text me here. In fact, it's a listener who actually has my uh, my personal phone number. So this is someone, one of the lucky few who has it. Not many people have it. But uh, this listener texted me that he saw Dutch Boy dealing a long time ago. He says if it wasn't him, it was his twin brother. It was probably him. But uh, we'll, we'll talk about that on that segment. Let's move on. Let's, let's start up here. Let's just start the show. Let's get going. Trader Ruski will appear when he does. I want to give a update, or not really an update, but I want to tell you about the 300th episode of Poker Fraud Alert Radio. We had a big 
show for the 200th episode with Cal Watt, with Drexel. Called up a lot of people that had been on the show in the past. It was a good episode. I enjoyed it. And I said, we're going to have to do something pretty big for the 300th episode, too. Now, oddly enough, we had an even bigger 201st episode. Not intentionally. It just ended up being better than the 200th episode. That was actually one of our best episodes was episode 201. But I've been watching for the 300th episode. And I've been getting ready. I, I got a little sidetracked from watching when I had my LPR and anxiety and depression issues last year. But at least there wasn't much to watch because I wasn't doing the show. After I had my problems, first I took six weeks off, and then I only did three shows in a period of about four months. Then we returned to regular shows starting December 12th, 2018. Well, I figured, you know, it's got to be pretty close to 300 at this point, so I better look up exactly when that's going to be and plan something for it. And I'm pleased to announce we're going to have a very exciting 300th show. That show's date is March 6th. 2019. (laughs) Yes, March 6th, 2019. If you have a DeLorean, if you drive a DeLorean, if you are willing to drive... uh, Okay, let me me put Trader Risky on here. Trader Risky, hello. Hey, Shreff, sorry about that. How's it going? No, I'm glad to have you here. I'm glad you got on despite the fact you're traveling today. Yeah, all good. So I was saying, if if you have a DeLorean and if you're willing to drive 88 miles per hour and and you set it properly, then you can listen on on March 6th, 2019, when we celebrate our 300th episode. For everybody else, it may be tough because it's currently May 8th, 2019. But our 300th episode was actually on March 6th, 2019. And I guess I celebrated it by making fun of Annie Duke's appearance on that business show, which... It could have been worse. At least that was a kind of memorable segment. But I had no idea when I did that show that it was our 300th episode. What are we on right now? We're on the 308th episode. And the way I count episodes, in case you're wondering, is I only count it if it's a main Poker Fraud Alert radio episode. And that's all it's been recently. But there were times that Brandon did his own show on Poker Fraud Alert. And while those are in the archives and while those can occasionally play on the call to listen line, we don't count those in the episode numbers. Basically, it's, it's got to be a main Poker Fraud Alert radio episode for it to be counted. So we've had 308 of those since we started in March of 2012, a little bit more than seven years. Would have gotten there a lot sooner to 300 if it was not for what happened to me last year where there were four months where I only did three episodes total. This is episode number 16 in the year 2019. So as you see, we're back on a regular schedule. I've missed a few weeks here and there, but it's not really related to anything I was going through last year. And I'll tell you, there was some point last year where I really thought radio was over. There was a six week period. I didn't do the show at all. I had a few things going on that I thought were going to prevent me from ever doing radio again. Number one, the, Crippling anxiety. There's no way I could concentrate on the show feeling like that. The crippling depression. And my voice, I could only talk about 20 minutes before my throat would really hurt. For some reason, I went from being able to do eight-hour shows without much trouble to I couldn't talk 20 minutes on the phone without my throat hurting. Uh, A doctor I went to who specializes in this 
I drove all the way to downtown Los Angeles for this, but uh, a doctor I went to who specializes in this said that he felt the reason the vocal fatigue was happening was because I was actually changing the way I was moving the muscles in my voice box and my throat you know, to talk because of the condition I had. I wasn't consciously doing it, but I was changing the way I was talking basically, and it was putting much, much more stress on everything. So talking 20 minutes felt like I'd talk 10 hours. And I'm guessing what probably happened over time is it, it started to slowly reverse itself. So that's why I've been able to do these long shows of six hours or more the last few times I've been out. And it's pretty much like it used to be. I, I do have to take a break in the middle to uh, do a rinse in my throat, refresh myself a bit. But other than that, it's pretty similar to what it was last year. That's why I can do this again. So all that together, I said, look, even if I get past these psychological problems, I, I'm going to not be able to go more than like 20 minutes without my voice killing me but hey here i am i'm back i can i can do it now so if it wasn't for that we would have had more shows than 308 right now but this is number 308 i'm glad we're still going i'm glad i was able to come back to it and that's it so we'll have to plan more carefully for the 400th show (laughs) but if you want to hear the 300th and you haven't heard it yet you can go back to march 6th i didn't know it was the 300th but it was the 300th Okay, moving on to something more exciting. Annette Oberstad is uh, a longtime poker player, and she was really a big story at the time when she became known. This was really a very inspiring story initially. Annette, who was only uh, 18, in fact, I think she was actually younger than 18 when she started. Her name was Annette underscore 15. I, maybe she even started when she was 15. I don't know what the 15 means. I think, I think she was under 18 when she started. But I think that was, I think it was 15. That's yeah. She was under yeah. But anyway, she, uh, she started playing online poker. And unlike others who made a real money deposit and lost a, a number of times and finally got better and then finally ran it up, or even people who deposited and just took to the game pretty quickly and got lucky and ran it up, Annette actually built her role and became a very well-known, successful online poker player through a free roll. She didn't even deposit, maybe because she was underage. She was living in Norway. She's Norwegian. She was a teenage girl, and she played a free roll. She had played poker before with her dad, just kind of heads up, messing around. But uh, she didn't really have much poker experience, and she learned the game very quickly. And through a free roll was able to win that, then start playing real money tournaments and run that up. And she was just naturally really good at online poker, especially tournaments. And people started wondering, who is this Annette 15? Is this really a girl? Like, who is this person who's killing these tournaments on Poker Stars from Norway? And she started developing fans. Keep in mind, in those days, in the 2000s, there were a lot of people who would actually watch online poker. Sounds kind of silly now, but there actually were a lot of railbirds who would open up online poker tables and watch them. And I don't mean like the biggest nosebleed stakes games, which in fact didn't really exist much back then. I'm talking about they would open up mid-stakes tables, tournaments, and just watch. And you would start having fans if you were a regular winning online poker player. Even I had fans online, (laughs) as strange as that sounds. So, And also the railbirds could actually chat for a while before the site took that away. So there were a lot of railbirds 
And a lot of people became big fans of Annette, especially believing that she was uh, female, which she actually was, of course. And I don't know when she revealed her age, but I, I think it was generally known that she was female and she was young and she was really good. She was very successful. There were a lot of young dudes who really were enthralled by Annette without even knowing much about her. Well, unlike the some of these females who've appeared on the poker scene that we've seen both recently and you know, even going back some time, who were uh, already very conventionally attractive physically. Think of ones like... Uh, like Maria Ho, like uh, Liv Bori. I mean, there's there's so many of them I could mention that uh, successful female poker players who are also attractive. Okay, well, there's a number of those. Annette was not that. Annette was short, very heavy, had a pudgy face, um, and, and even for guys who don't really like skinny women that much and prefer women who have curves. You've got like guys like me. Uh, even to guys like that, she wasn't that attractive because she didn't have much shape to her. She just was kind of one of those short, heavy girls who's kind of round-looking. And uh, um, For that reason, she was also pretty self-conscious. And uh, eventually it came out who she was, especially when she showed up at the EPT, which is run by poker stars, and it's in Europe, of course, and the EPT only had to be 18 to play. So once she was 18, she played the EPT and won. So she won the EPT at age 18, and that really blew her up huge. I, she, I thought she won the World Series main event in Europe, no? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what? I, maybe you're right about that, too. I, I was just doing this from memory, but you're right. I, let's, look, let's look this up. Let's look this up. I I was doing this all from memory, but you might be right here. Let me look here. I thought it was the EPT, but let's see. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Oh, it was. You're right. It was the World Series of Poker Europe. Okay. Thank you. That's why I keep you around. Yeah, and so she she won the uh, World Series of Poker Europe on September 17, 2007. She she has made the final table at the EPT, but she's never won it. Yeah, she won the, the WSOPE. And she actually it was actually worth $2 million. I remember that part. It was uh, 1 million pounds, which, believe it or not, back in 2007, the pound was worth double the dollar. Nowhere, nowhere near that anymore, but it was worth double the dollar back then. So she won 2 million, 2 million U.S. dollars by winning the million-pound tournament. It was actually the day before her 19th birthday. She very slightly beat the record for a single-event payout to a female player at... Uh, a poker tournament at the time, Annie Duke at the 2004 Tournament of Champions, which wasn't an open event, so that wasn't quite the same thing. But anyway, she won $2 million there, but Annette's payout was worth $2.01 million at the time. So uh, she was really flying high. And yes, you know, people saw her at that point and saw that she wasn't uh, conventionally attractive and she was very overweight and... Uh, but but still, there was a lot of admiration for her, even though she wasn't beautiful. There was a lot of admiration for her poker skill and the fact that uh, that's that's what she did. That's what she focused on. That was what was important to her. She wasn't one of those teenage girls who uh, who focused on clothing and and uh, 
and and boys and the, and the way she looks, she just said, "Look, I love poker. I'm good at poker. I'm going to focus on poker. I'm going to be a great poker player." And 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 people respected that. I I remember hearing about her. I respected that. I respected what she did with the free roll to run that up to what she ended up becoming. Well, I met Annette for the and she, first. And sorry, she won the tournament with the post-it too, Jeff. Right. Oh yeah, that's right. She was like putting a post-it note over her cards and won anyway. Yeah, that's right. That's crazy. That's a crazy story where she was actually she got a lot of props for that one. Yeah, she, she was she actually videoed the whole thing. Yeah, she was. She, she videoed herself. This is crazy. This is how good she was at the time. She actually videoed herself putting a post-it note over her cards and showed that she's so good at reading the hands other people have that she could just use pure aggression to run people off of hands she thought were weak and also could read when they had a strong hand that could fold and she could do this without ever seeing what her own cards were. Can you imagine winning a tournament, not ever seeing your cards? That's like, that's kind of like the opposite of a super user who could see everyone's cards. Here you can't see your own cards. (laughs) And she won. She videoed herself doing this. So this shows you how good she was. And, and how ahead of her time she was in in these tournaments. I I know a lot of people caught up over the years with uh, so many different uh, analysis and training tools and just people who just run millions and millions of hands. Eventually, a lot of people also got really good and there became a lot of really excellent players online at these tournaments. But, I mean, this shows you how good she was. She also won, by the way, in, in 2008. She won first place in the Stars Sunday 100 Grand only buying in for $11 and beating 20,000 players. So she did a lot of great things online. And I met her in October 2007 in Aruba. In Aruba, where, believe it or not, I was a sponsored player by UB. I don't like to admit that, but I was a, very briefly a sponsored... Not a, I wasn't a sponsored pro, but they bought me into a tournament. And as for, since they bought me into the tournament there, I had to wear UB clothing while I played the event. And this was just as the super user stuff was coming out about Absolute Poker. Not UB yet. It was going on. We just didn't know yet. But it was just as, as I, I and others were figuring out the super user stuff was going on in Absolute Poker. So I met her there. And I, before I even spoke a word to her, I had wondered if she was going to be arrogant. Just because of all the fanboys she had and all the attention she had. And she had just uh, won the, uh, the WSOP Europe there. In uh, you know, I bet in October 2007, this is in September 2007, she won that. So I, I thought with all the props she's getting everywhere, with all the attention that I'm, you know, she's going to be kind of arrogant. That couldn't be further from the truth. She was soft-spoken. She was very nice. She was very shy. She seemed to have no ego. And I thought to myself, wow, what a nice girl. She, all the success, all these props she's getting is not even getting getting to her head. She's a very, very pleasant, very, very nice. Just acts like just a regular person when I meet her. And uh, yeah, I saw that she was, uh, yeah, what I'd seen in the pictures that she wasn't all that physically attractive, and that she really didn't attempt to even do anything to improve the way she looked. She wore these baggy clothes which weren't flattering and wore no makeup and didn't do her hair you know it's it's just uh, but I thought to myself okay she cares about poker that's great there's there's a million young girls out there who care so much about fashion and how they look this is refreshing to see this 
So I, I walked away thinking very nice things about Annette Oberstadt, and I thought she really had a great future in poker and that she was going to become one of the greats. Seemed like she was on her way to do that. Well, let's think about it, though. How much have you heard about her poker play in the last, mm, I don't know, seven, eight years? You heard much? I bet you haven't. Where's all... Oh, we lost Trader Ruski. Have you heard about all the bracelets she's won at the World Series of Poker? No, because other than that one at the World Series of Poker Europe, she's not won any. Have you heard about all the final tables she's made? No. Have you heard about all the other tournaments she's winning in Europe? No. Have you heard about the cash game domination that has been taking place? Nope. At least not from her. So what happened? Where, where is she? What happened to her? How, how do you go from being able to put a post-it note on your monitor and still win a tournament, not even seeing your own cards? How do you go from that to just kind of disappearing? Well, I don't have the full answers, but she hit upon hard times. She started to lose. She went through a slump. I put Trader Ruski back on before I tell you about the slump Annette had. Trader Ruski, there? Yeah, I'm back. It just disappeared for some yeah, reason. I don't understand what happened there. Is the, is the call to listen line working, by the way? I got a text from my friend. Jeez, oh, is it not working? That would be bad. The 641 number, right? Yeah, the 641 number is not working? Yeah. Let me see if I can make sure he's dialing the right one. Yeah, it should be. I hope it is. It it better be. I put a lot of effort into that damn thing. I know know you're working on it. Yeah. So, okay. So So what happened to Annette? And I'll tell you with what did end up happening to her. I didn't end up thinking nearly as many good things about her as I had originally. A lot of things uh, changed. So tournament poker is a tough thing to do for a living because what you're doing when you're playing tournament poker for a living is you're trying to hit big scores. And if you just go a period of time where you're hitting caches but kind of small to medium caches, that's not going to do it for you. You're not going to keep up with the buy-ins. The only way to support yourself playing tournament poker is with the big scores. And what people also sometimes underestimate is how quickly the buy-ins can add up. Even if you're not playing super high roller events, those buy-ins can add up super quickly. Show you how quickly they can add up. I'm not a tournament player. I play during the World Series and only during the World Series for the most part. I play a few little tournaments here and there otherwise, but really World Series and basically nothing else. You don't see me entering the 25K events, the 50Ks. Uh, you know, I enter a few 10Ks, but that's it. I'm still going to be putting in about 50K worth of buy-ins this year at the World Series. Now, I sold pieces off, so that's going to help. But if someone like me is spending 50K in the World Series, imagine these people who play like almost every event they can and people who play higher buy-in events and people who play the high roller events and people who play tons of other events throughout the year. Imagine how the buy-ins must add up. So you've got to hit scores. Negreanu even, I mean, I gave him props for this, that he revealed in a year, I think it was 2017, where it seemed like he kicked ass and he cashed like $2.7 million. He revealed that he actually spent $2.8 million on buy-ins that year. So in what looked like a huge year for him, he actually lost. Not much, but he lost. 
so tournament poker, it's a very tough thing to do to make a living. And I, I admire guys like Ari Engel who, who can make it work. But most people can't. And the problem is there's so much variance to it. And you can go long periods of time without hitting that big score. And then that can destroy you. I have to guess that's probably what happened with Annette. And if you, you look at her results in the Hendon Mob website, if you start looking at the 2010s, just start for January 2010, uh, she did get seventh in the Australian Aussie Millions uh, main event. So she cashed 161K there. But aside from that, if you, if you scroll, you'll see that there were no other scores in uh, it, except for 120,000 from some uh, poker lounge episode, some TV episode where she got 120k. Uh, between then and the end of September, there was there was just that and a bunch of smaller scores. Then she got a she did get a first place at the 500 pound No Limit Hold'em at uh, in London for 187,000 US dollars. And you got 215000 in early 2011 at the Wynn Classic in the 5,000 main event. So, yeah, she was getting some scores here and there. But she wasn't killing it anymore. These, these sound like they're huge. You're probably thinking, oh, I wish I got all those things. Well, yeah, but think of how many buy-ins she was putting into all this. She was entering events that were $25,000, uh, $50,000. I, I see it. I, I see the list of events she's in, that she even cashed in, and some of them are that high. So these six-figure scores don't do that much for you. So she was probably even losing in that time period. But then after the, after the March 21st, 2011 win, her second place at the win for 215K, then if, if you continue scrolling, she really goes cold. In 2012, she did not cash for more than 28K in anything. And she only had uh, what looks like five caches total in 2012. Two of them four-figure caches, three of them five-figure caches for 28K or less. So for all, everything she's been entering, this must have been devastating. 2013, she did a little bit better, but uh, if, if she only had a few caches, if you add them up, it adds up to about a little more than 100K. I'm sure, again, she lost. So if you go years like this without hitting those big scores, then you're going to watch your bankroll disappear. So what do you do? What do you do if you're Annette... Oberstad and what used to come so easy is not happening anymore. You're hitting something occasionally, but you're definitely losing playing tournament poker and just years are passing by and it's not turning around. You start to question yourself. You wonder if your style that was working in 2007 just isn't good for the modern game anymore. You you just really start to, you, your confidence starts to affect how well you can play. So what do you do? Well, you sign to a poker site. After all, she was female. She was young. Even if she wasn't conventionally attractive, there was a lot of... She was very well known. So she signed in 2012 with a poker site. I don't know how much they paid her, but she signed to the poker site on April 24th, 2012, right around coinciding about a what looked like a year drive spell with just basically not hitting anything uh, significant. I'm sure that's was a big factor in why she signed with this company. And the company she signed with on April 24th, 2012, was Lock Poker. (laughs) 
Yes, the same log poker that eventually cheated everybody. That within a year of April 2012, clearly had not been paying anyone for a long time. People would request cash outs, they'd never get them. And they lied and lied and lied on the support forum on 2 plus 2 for Lock Poker. Basically, the owner of Lock Poker, Jennifer Larson, was a scammer. She was irresponsible in managing Lock Poker and in her spending. And then when things weren't working out, she just stole the player money on deposit. And then stretched it as long as she could before the site finally went down. A lot of people and businesses were ripped off by Lock Poker. We've done many segments on this show about that. During that time. Well, I'm not going to rehash the whole thing now. But Annette was representing them. She was their main pro at that point. So, so was Michael the Grinder Mizraki, to be honest. He was too. The two of them were, were the major pros there. And they were repping the site at every tournament they played. Well, Annette, people were trying to tell her that she is repping a site that is directly stealing from people. That she was wearing clothing, promoting lock poker. She was the face of lock poker. Her face is on the website, front and center. People were probably signing up because they remembered her and liked her. And they, at, by, by this point, it was so clear that lock poker was a scam, that they were just taking deposits and never paying anybody. If you deposited there, your money's down a rat hole. Didn't matter how much you won on there, you'd never get it off. And people asked Annette, why are you still repping them? Why are you still repping them? And keep in mind, yeah, people asked Michael the Grinder Mizraki the same thing, but there is a difference in that Michael the Grinder Mizraki was never he, he was an online player, but there wasn't he didn't he wasn't really defined by his online play. He played a little online poker back when he first came up, but that wasn't really what he was most of his poker career. This was someone who actually rose up through online poker, became a hero to online poker players especially. And that's why it was a real slap in the face to the community that she was repping something which was 100% clear it was a scam at that point. This was, I'm not talking about the beginning when there was some suspicion that lock poker was not right. I'm talking about it when it was 100% clear that lock poker was not right and she kept repping them and she would not stop and she wouldn't explain why. And you would ask her, why are you repping lock poker after everything they're doing? Why are you repping? And this is the answer you get. Crickets. Say, Annette, you came up through online poker. You'd be like, if someone is trying to emulate you, if someone's trying to run up their role from a free role, or maybe they put a little bit of money on trying to run up their role and become a successful pro, and they can't ever get the money off, how is that fair to them? How could you be pushing such a site? And her response was, it's Annette, don't you think this is unethical? You're, you're actually leading people to sign up for a site that's never going to pay them. Annette, you got so well-known in the first place. The reason you have the sponsorship is because you came up through online and people were so interested in everything you did. Don't you think you owe the community at least some honesty to not promote something that is definitely 100% a direct scam? That's what happened. She promoted it till the bitter end until they actually dropped her. They actually fired her <laughs> because they were – this is in the final stages when they weren't even going to pay the pros anymore. See, Locke, the way they were operating 
was that they had their priorities. So they had to pay the pros who were repping them. And they had to pay sites like 2 Plus 2, where they had ads up for a while. Yes, 2 Plus 2 ran lock ads for a long time. It wouldn't take them down. They eventually did, but they, they took quite some time to do it. It's funny, Mason Mammoth will take credit for how they took down the lock ads and how they weren't greedy and how they did the right thing. Yeah, after it became painfully clear for months that they weren't paying anyone. 2 Plus 2 took money from them for way too long. Card player, even worse. Card player kept running the ads all the way to the bitter end. So I don't respect them anymore after they did that. And I told Jeff Shulman that. I, I confronted him about that, and he claimed he was going to look into it. He did nothing. So Annette promoted it until they actually dropped her. That's how desperate for money she was. Something else happened with Annette that was interesting that I didn't expect was going to happen. Annette went from a heavy, dowdy girl who just didn't care about the way she looked, didn't do her hair, didn't do her makeup, wore unflattering clothes, was overweight, just didn't seem to care. She seemed self-conscious about it, but at the same time, she wasn't going to do anything about it. It just wasn't her. And then just one day, she showed up to a tournament, and she was skinny. And she was wearing fashionable-looking clothing. And she was wearing makeup. She actually looked fairly pretty. Looked like a different person. Now, I'm not bashing that. I'm not going to bash someone for improving themselves, for losing weight and for caring about their looks and making themselves more attractive. Great. You know, that's, uh, I'm not going to ever criticize someone for doing that. But I'll tell you, that kind of coincided with when she started to lose. And I came up with a theory back then that some people disagreed with, and maybe it's wrong, but it's something I think has some validity, possibly. But before I tell you that theory, I want to tell you about a sports talk radio host in L.A. who I used to listen to named Joe McDonald, who called himself the Big Nasty. Have you ever heard of him, uh, Trader Ruski? Oh, that was like that huge guy that right. used to sit at the end of the... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was he was a huge guy. He was probably about like six or 700 pounds. I'm not even kidding. This guy was gigantic. And he was a sports talk host. And he was fairly popular in the L.A. market. He wasn't known outside of L.A., but in the L.A. market, he was fairly popular. And a lot of people liked him. I liked him. And the reason I liked him is because he just was direct and honest and blunt about everything. And and nothing was phony for the most part. He was just, uh, he'd just go off. And he called himself the big nasty because he kind of was nasty. He was always angry. He was he always kind of came off as he was pissed and he would uh, he would just openly bash people all the time in, in the sports community. But I liked the rawness of the whole thing. I liked that uh, we were just getting his true feelings and that he didn't hold back. It was interesting to me. A lot of other people liked that. Well, as you can imagine, being that size is very, very, very unhealthy. And when people were advising him that he needs to lose a massive amount of weight or risk dying soon, he uh, considered doing gastric bypass surgery to lose a lot of weight. But uh, And he was actually talking about it on the radio that he was so close to doing it, but that... 
about 0.5% of the people who would get gastric bypass would die on the table. And he just couldn't bring himself to be put out and know there's a 1 in 200 chance he won't wake up, which is not a huge chance, but it's a high enough chance that to think about it, if you're going to die, if that hits, that's, that's really bad. So he didn't do it for a while. Finally, he bit the bullet and did it. And he did not die on the table. And he lost a lot of weight. He even got married. Then he came back to the radio. He wasn't the same anymore. Something was missing. Something was different. When he lost the weight, he lost the fire, he lost the anger, he lost the energy that he brought to the radio. He came back a different person. Probably came back a happier person and a nicer person, but a much less interesting person for radio. He lost his edge. When he lost the weight, he lost his edge. I'm not saying he shouldn't have lost the weight, but I'm just stating a fact. And it, it, I felt that way when I heard him, and then I, I opened the L.A. Times, and I see the same thing. There was, a, there was a column about him that he changed after he lost the weight, that uh, unfortunately with, with the weight loss was a loss of his, the personality that everybody loved who listened to him on the radio. And I thought of Joe McDonald, who, by the way, died a few years ago. I'm not sure of what, but he died in his early 50s. Probably from his body being damaged from being that big all those years. But I thought of Joe McDonald when Annette was struggling and she had greatly changed her looks. She had lost the weight. She wasn't 700 pounds like Joe McDonald was, but she had lost the weight. She had transformed. She started dressing fashionably. She started wearing makeup all the time. She started really caring about the way she looked. And I thought that perhaps this actually interfered with some of her intense focus that she had on poker. Because before her focus was so intense, you saw she could she could play a hand without seeing her cards and win. She could play a whole tournament that way and win. But when your focus starts going other places and you start losing the passion for poker itself, when that's not your whole focus in life, in some ways that can be healthy for you, but for your poker game, sometimes that can not work out very well. So I think this actually took away some of Annette's edge. I don't know for sure, but that's just the theory I have. They, they were kind of coinciding somewhat. The transformation in, in looks and the long-term slump she had going, kind of around the same time. Anyway. That's just a side note I wanted to mention. But it's not just a side note because it leads me to the whole reason we're having this discussion. Because so far I've talked about the past. So far I haven't talked about anything in 2019. So why are we even bringing this up now? What's what's the point of this whole segment? Why are we even talking about this first of all the things we have to talk about tonight? Why is this a first topic? Well, Annette has a YouTube channel. Is it a poker channel? Does she talk about things going on in poker? Does she give strategy advice? Does she talk about some of the past tournaments she played or players she played against or maybe her story from the very beginning? Take a listen. I know you guys can't watch. Trey Daruski, I'm going to... Can you see my screen? I can't hear him right now. 
No, sorry, Jeff. I can't hear. I can't uh, see it. He can see it. Okay, so I'm going to. Pl- uh, pr- presumably, you can hear what I'm going to play you. I haven't played anything yet, but I'm going to play you guys, including Trader Ruski, just a, a selection from her YouTube channel. That this uh, very poker-heavy YouTube channel that she has started. Uh, if you're watching this on Thanksgiving, I hope you have a beautiful Thanksgiving. If you're watching this any other day, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. So, in this video, I will be showing you 10 looks with the Alien Palette. This lo- what? 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 The Alien Palette? Now, what does that have to 10 looks with the Alien Palette? Now, is this something maybe you wear at the poker table so people don't recognize you or don't uh, can't see your faces easily? Let, let's listen on. Weird creature right here has a lot of potential, so I will show you all in a minute. Just a couple of things before we get started. I will have a full review up on this palette. I didn't want to make this video way too long, so I'm going to make a separate video on that. It will either be up tomorrow or the day after. Also, everything on my face, including everything that is in every single look, will be listed down below in the description box. If you have any questions, just let me know. And for all these looks, I have primed my eyes with my MAC paint pot, and I did not set my face unless stated otherwise. Oh, hold on, hold on. So now we're hearing about how she, how she the makeup she put on her eyes with her MAC paint pot. What does this have to do with poker? Where's the poker content? Why why are we talking about an alien palette and the makeup she's going to tell you about at the end of the video? Or I don't understand. What's going on here? Well, what's going on here is that Annette Oberstad's YouTube channel has nothing to do with poker. Annette Oberstad is pretty much leaving poker behind and she's trying to be a makeup artist on YouTube. How's that for a transition? This is this is the girl who I met in 07 who didn't wear makeup. Who didn't care about the way she looked. You can go find old pictures of her. You'll see what I'm talking about. Now she's fully made up in this video. I mean, like, like, like heavy makeup everywhere. Her hair is dyed like uh, kind of like purplish. And the videos are about makeup. So here's here's some titles of videos that she's done on her channel, which is called Annette's Makeup Corner. Five videos every week, it says. Magnetic lashes that actually work? Moxie Lash Try-On. Blush Tribe Neon Neon Dreams Palette. Geomite Burger Palette. <laughs> Cover FX Monochromatic Blush and Bronzer Duo. These are all separate videos I'm reading to you. Uh, U-O-M-A Beauty Black Magic Allure Palette Swatches. I, I don't even understand some of this stuff because I don't wear makeup. But uh, yeah, that, that's what she's doing now. She's doing makeup videos. So at least this is a good transition because Annette went from possibly being in makeup in poker to literally being in makeup. <laughs> Really weird. If you gave me a thousand guesses of what she was going to do with herself in 12 years when I met her in 07, not one of those thousand guesses was going to be videos about makeup. Not one of them would have been. That that would have shocked me. <laughs> Let's listen on here. 
And to keep this video as short as possible, uh, this will not be an in-depth tutorial. It's more going to be just inspiration for you guys if you also bought the palette and you're just looking for ideas on looks that you can do with it. So I It's not a short video, by the way. It's 23 minutes. I think we should just jump straight into look number one. Okay. Okay, guys, here we go. I'm starting off look number one by first dipping into Martian soil with my ColourPop E9 brush, and I'm tucking that into my inner fourth of my crease. Mm, wait, her, whoa, whoa. The inner fourth of her crease. Why does that sound dirty? She's tucking it into the inner fourth of her crease. That sounds like it shouldn't even be allowed on YouTube. Just blending as we go. I'm then dipping into Flying Saucer, and I'll be placing this right next to where I put the yellow, about in the middle of my crease. I'm going to be placing that where I put my Poker Bankroll, which is uh, basically also in the middle of my crease. Also kind of blending as I put it down, trying to make sure that I get a good gradient between the colors. And then with my same little Luxie brush, I'm dipping into Area 51, and I'll be putting that on the outer third of my eye. And much like Area 51, my bankroll disappeared the same way that those flying saucers did. I'm also not blending the purple into the green that much. I'm barely connecting the two and tapping over it because I don't want it to get muddy. I'm also not blending very well my winning days in poker with my losing days. It just kind of all changed very abruptly. I'm then taking the same shade down onto my lower lash line, and I'm going to work on really building up the color and smoking that out. I'm going to work on really building, rebuilding up my bankroll by screwing up, screwing over the people who signed up for Lock Poker. It is then time for my first of many Coke Zero breaks before I go in with my Too Faced concealer to do a half cut crease. <laughs> she actually stopped to drink Coke Zero. And I do this technique every time. I always put a little dot and then I look up and I see where I cut my crease. But I still make sure to cut my crease higher than where my concealer shows because I do have hooded eyes and this just makes them look more open. And it what are hooded eyes? I don't even know what that would be. It also gives more room for the shade that I'm about to put down after. I'm also just using my finger to pat down the edges to make that, sure... That sounds gross again, juicing your finger. Okay, let's go on. sure that I have a good transition without too much product. Hmm. Then I'm just going back in with that purple shade and making sure that the edge is not as harsh. Next up, I'm taking Moonrock on a small flat brush that I sprayed with some Fix Plus, and I spray all my shimmers in this video, just an FYI. I gotta give, I'm going to give her credit here, though. For someone born in Norway, who grew up in Norway, she has, like, no accent. Like, I, I would believe that she was an American. That, that's pretty incredible how she's, like, lost her accent. She had an accent when I met her 12 years ago. And I'm just placing this in the outer two-thirds of where I cut my crease. I'm then taking Interstellar, and I'm putting that on the first part of where I cut my crease, where I don't have any shadow yet. And I'm also dragging that down onto my lower lash line to connect it with the purple. And I really want to make this shade really pop. Hmm. I'll admit I understand very little of this. I had no idea makeup was this complicated. And by the way, Drop, I hate to tell you, I can't, I can't hear it through the... Through the phone. I can't see the screen, and the call to listen line's not working. I didn't even want to bring it up to aggravate you, but I thought you'd want to know. It's bad news everywhere. I can't believe this. I figured I'd get them all in one. (laughs) But I'm next to my computer, so I'm just muting. I I apologize to the people. I don't know why the call to listen line's not working right now, but... uh, I'm, oh, uh, yeah, no worries. I'm, uh, well, the last time this happened, the art. Now you're scaring me. The last time this happened, the archives weren't recording when the call to listen line wasn't working. Oh, so that might be. Now, yeah, now, now I'm getting scared. Now. now I'm getting worried here. Okay, before before we now at least the on air sign is on. That's good. When the on air sign's on, usually it means it's all good. But I'm going to take a break here. I, I apologize, Annette. I wanted to play some more of you, but I, now I've 
I've gotten so paranoid about this with the call to listen line not working that I got to make sure that this, the archives are recording because one time we did a show with no archives and well, actually twice. One time I actually redid the whole show, which I can't believe. The other time I said, screw it. We just lost the show. Uh, looks like it is recording. It is good. All right. Beautiful. Call to listen line. We can do with that. Okay. Let's, let's go back to Annette. So she did give a story on her channel about her life and poker somewhat. So let's play that rather than play 23 minutes of her putting makeup in her quarter crease. It says, here goes nothing. Did you hear that at all, Trader Risky? I did. Good. Hi, guys. This is going to be a bit of a different video. I know I asked you guys for Q&A questions, and I think it was my last video, at least when I'm filming this, and you guys had a lot of questions that basically requires me to tell my life story in order to be able to answer them. So, I wish I knew about this. My my Q and A would have been, or my question for her to answer would have been about lock poker. But let's, let's listen up here. Well, I figured, what better time to do a get to know me kind of video? Uh, I already know that I'm going to be talking about things that I probably don't want to talk about in this video, just because a lot has happened in my life in the past couple of years that I'm not necessarily happy about, and that I wish were different. But it still needs to be said because it's part of my story. So. I think we're just going to get into it. So I'm not going to be telling you too much about my childhood. I had a great childhood. Um, I lived with my mom. My parents were divorced when I was about four, and that's not something that's really bothered me at all. I would still visit my dad, and I would see him every two weeks or so. I would like stay with him, and you know, the whole like spiel about hanging out in the summer and stuff like that, probably until I turned 14, and then I kind of stopped seeing him for reasons that I don't want to go get into, but basically my mom and I lived together, and I grew That doesn't sound like a good childhood to me. Yeah, you know, I saw my parents got divorced, and I saw my dad, up until I was about 14, something happened I don't want to get into, but I don't see my dad anymore. Like, that doesn't sound like a good childhood to me. That sounds pretty traumatic. Maybe it's more minor than she's making it sound, but... Let's, let's go on. I know. Believe me, about like that. Yeah. I had a great childhood, except I don't. I stopped seeing my dad at 14. It was something really bad. But I had a great childhood, though. I grew up with my mom from the ages of four until, you know, until I moved out. So we had a great life together. We moved quite a few times. I switched schools a few times. Uh, she had an ex in between there for like six years, like, really like, and everything was great. So, so basically when I was 15 is when my life kind of changed, if you will. So... So I was watching bowling on TV one day, which is like so random, but I used to be in a bowling league and I used to play for like five years and I was pretty good at it. I averaged like 160 when I quit or so, but that that's off topic. Anyway, I was watching bowling on TV and I saw this ad for an online poker site and my dad and I used to always play cards and I loved playing games and stuff. And I was always really into games where you were like playing against other people and like you had to kind of figure out like what they were doing. So poker sounded like a cool idea for me. So I went online to this site and it turned out really quickly that I just kind of had a thing for the game. You know, when you just like start something and all of a sudden you realize you're really good at it and everyone else sucks. Like that was my experience with poker. And I don't mean to sound cocky when I say this, but it was like literally my calling. So I would start playing poker for free money, obviously, because I was way too young to play for real money. And one day I won $9 and I took those $9 and I built up my money, my bankroll that I had on that site so much that by the time I was 17, I was already making more money playing poker on the side while going to school than she was at her job. So clearly, like, poker was just, like, something that I was really good at. She was referring to her mom there. She she 
she even clarified that a little. She, I guess she, after she recorded it, she listened to herself and she put like, that's my mom, LOL, referring to who she was talking about, that she was out making her mom at age 17. So at the time I was 17, uh, I still had a year left of high school. I decided that, you know what, like school is not for me. I hate school. I suck at school. I have to work so hard to be good at school. And even when I work hard at it, I just still suck. Like school was just not my thing. So I told my mom, I was like, mom, I'm going to quit school and I'm going to play poker for a living. And she was like, okay. Like she saw it coming. Like she was so okay about it. And I want you guys to understand that the school systems are very different in Norway than they are here in the States, like what we call high school is not what high school is in Norway. So like education would still continue and you don't get like a degree or like a GHD or whatever that thing is called when you finish high school. We don't get that in Norway. So it's not the same deal. And also I grew up in Norway. I probably didn't say that, but this is going to be a very rambly video and it's going to be all over the place and I'm still kind of nervous about it. And so we're just going to, we're just going to keep going with it. That's interesting that I don't know how long she had this channel before doing this video, but she, she never said once that she was from Norway. <laughs> this is news to everybody, but okay, let's go on here. So, so basically I quit school and I continued to play and the day before my 19th birthday, I played in a very, very big tournament. It was called the World Series of Poker. It was held in London. So I traveled to London to play in this tournament because I was now finally old enough to play in the casinos because you have to be 18 to gamble in Europe. So I went to this tournament and I somehow ended up winning it. And, and this was a huge deal, like in the media, everywhere, because I basically became the first female and the youngest female to ever be a World Series of Poker champion. So just imagine this, like I am 18 years old. I just won this giant tournament for a bunch of money and like everybody in the poker industry was going crazy. And that's true. And she wasn't just the youngest female. She was the youngest person to win any World Series of Poker tournament. Even though there's World Series of Poker Europe, whatever. She was still the youngest person to have ever done that. So... This is where my life literally changed overnight. So I ended up getting a sponsorship with actually over the next three years, like three different poker sites. And it allowed me to basically travel the world, see a lot of different places. I have been to, I don't even remember all the countries I've been to. Like that's how lucky I've been. So I literally traveled all over the world. I played poker tournaments and that was my life for, I'd say about three years. So from when I was, 18 until I was 21 or so, I was traveling a lot for, for poker. Let's stop here. She was a full tilt pro prior to being a lock pro. She said there were three sites. I'm not even sure what the third one was, but there was a full tilt was the first one. And that ended obviously on Black Friday. Now, what happened with full tilt wasn't her fault. She didn't know none of the regular sponsored pros there knew what was really going on there. I do remember seeing her wearing a full tilt patch in the summer of 2011 when Full Tilt had been down for a few months and where it was clear that people's money was gone. And I remember thinking that was wrong. That she, because they, they weren't being forthcoming about what happened with the money. At that point, they were still pretending like the money still existed. And I, I happened to end up at a World Series of Poker table with her and I was going to call her out for it. But then she had a big stack and she was very outgoing there and everybody was talking with her and everybody was laughing with her and I go oh, I can't do this I can't you know I can't be the middle-aged guy who sits here and attacks the young girl it's gonna look like I'm jealous that she's got a bigger stack than me and that uh, you know I'm just a jerk and like they're not gonna understand the whole thing these are these are just regular people at the table these weren't even like online poker players so I decided not to say anything 
I was tempted to, but I, I decided not to say anything. But that, that was the first sign I saw. Like, I was kind of wondering, like, why is she still wearing the full tilt patches without demanding to know what was going on with the money? But then it got much worse with Locke, because when Locke was doing what they were doing, and it was clear they were stealing everyone's money directly, that uh, she was still the face of the site. But I'll, I'll let her go on here. And also between the age of 18 and 21 was when I first started going out to Vegas because I had a lot of friends, which is now where I live. I live in Vegas. So so I would come out here even though I wasn't able to legally gamble just because I had so many people that I knew from, you know, the poker community that lived out here. And so I would come out, I would hang out with them, and I really fell in love with the city. And then when I was 22, I met my husband. We've now been married for about four years, I want to say. Don't quote me on that, but it's coming up to something like that, I think. So... It could be three, don't kill me. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, this was back in 2012. I may be getting the years a little bit jumbled up and stuff, but regardless. So after having met him early here in 2012, we ended up moving in together in a place here in Vegas, even though I still didn't have a green card. So I was traveling back and forth from Norway because I can only legally be in the States for like six months out of the year because I didn't have a visa. So I was doing that for a while and then and when I met my husband, he was really into fitness and he really motivated me to finally take charge and like lose the weight that I wanted to lose. And I wasn't even really overweight back then, but I wasn't happy with the way that I was treated in the poker community because I was overweight. I got a lot of hate for it. I got a lot of shit on forums and stuff for how I looked and for people thinking that I didn't take care of myself, which I really wasn't because I was eating shit, but like... Honestly, I was enjoying myself so much that that really should not have mattered. So anyway, so I started on this like fitness and workout journey and I ended up losing about 45 pounds over the next two years or so. So between 2012, 2014, I got really obsessed with food, counting calories, working out, always saying no to any situation where, you know, I was invited to go out for food. I didn't want to have to deal with it. I That's it. Yeah. So this is the first time we're hearing about the process she went through to lose the weight, as far as I know. Uh, I don't know who her husband is. I know she dated Scott Montgomery for some time, but I, I don't think that's her husband. Um, anybody know? Anybody in the chat room? Trader Rizky, anybody know who her husband is? I think it's Teddy Iceman Monroe. <laughs> yeah. We actually might have him on again here soon. Uh, anybody know who her husband might be? I'm just curious, but, uh, yeah, I, I had wondered how she lost all that weight, but that's interesting that she became obsessed with this. She must have, I mean, she, the weight fell off so fast. It was pretty much a shock to everybody, but let, let's continue here. I wanted to know everything that was in my food at all times. I got super into working out. I started doing like bodybuilding shit, like not competitions, but like bodybuilding type workouts. And I was really, really into it. And at the same time, I also started another Instagram account that I managed to grow to like 26,000 followers. I, I want to say something else there. She talks about the bodybuilding thing. That surprises me because what I noticed about the way she looked was that she got not just skinny, but like too skinny. She was like really, really small. She went from being this short round girl to being really skinny and she was already short anyway so she was she looked like she weighed 90 pounds and she never had like the bodybuilder look to me she just looked like she was tiny when she lost all the weight but maybe i missed the bodybuilder part i, I don't know before the algorithm completely fucked me over but i've still been getting like pr from like quest nutrition and stuff from posting their you know like quest bars and stuff on my instagram it's pretty funny so anyway so between 2012 and 2015-ish, 
my whole life, like literally like everything in my brain revolved around me not gaining weight, me keeping off the weight, me making sure that whatever I put into my body wasn't too much. And during that time, I also kind of switched from being super hyper focused on playing poker and getting better at poker to really being good at dieting and keeping my weight off. Oh, look at that. Look who ended up being right. I I said this years ago. You can go find it on Poker Fraudler. I wrote this years ago that that's what was going on. Look at that. Look at the Everyone laughed at me at the time when I said that. Look at that. Hmm. I'm going to gloat about this one because I I really, (laughs) that's what I said. I said that she lost her focus, that she lost her edge, that she was focusing too much upon being a hot chick and and not on playing poker. And I saw she was hyper-focused on poker before that. There you go. See, this is why you people should always listen to me. Even if you think what I'm saying is ridiculous, you should always listen to me. So during that three-year time, I kind of stopped improving. And that meant that the game evolved without me. And I kind of felt like left behind because... I started realizing that I really wasn't making money playing poker anymore and I had also kind of lost my passion for it so I started playing a little bit less and obviously that just meant I had more time to work out and do the stuff that I my mind really wanted me to do and this is when shit kind of goes bad for me because I I don't know exactly how this happened but so I had a personal trainer at the time and about a week after I had done a workout with him, like my hamstring really started to hurt. And it came to the point where like I could barely even walk and nobody knew what was going on. And so the next like months was me trying to figure out what the fuck was wrong with my leg. And I went to so many different doctors. I took so many MRIs, everything, every, nothing, nothing came out. Like everything just seemed like it was perfect. Another problem here, this part isn't her fault, but healthcare, healthcare is absolutely terrible in Las Vegas. I experienced that living there myself. In fact, it was so bad that uh, I started putting off doctor's visits until I'd be visiting LA and I'd go to the doctor there because it was the healthcare is, is so terrible in Las Vegas and I'm not sure why. And, and Las Vegas was on the cutting edge of something and not something good. They were on the, cons- the cutting edge of doctor consolidation. And I don't want to get into the whole tangent here, but when you go to doctor's offices and you see that there's like 10 doctors working for the office and you wonder what the hell's going on with that, the reason that happens is because doctors in the same specialty start consolidating into the same office and then they negotiate together with the insurance companies. Because without doing that, the problem can be that certain doctors will take lesser payments from the insurance companies and then that does not encourage the insurance companies to pay the other doctors more. So the ones that want more money, just the insurance company says, tough luck, this is all we're paying you, accept us or don't accept us. And then the the other doctors who are willing to take less will take it and then uh, people will go, who have insurance will go to the ones that take the less money and the people who, you know, the doctors that wanted to take the more money, they're kind of screwed. So uh, in order to prevent this, the doctors all get together and negotiate together saying, hey, guess what? Uh, for example, like every ophthalmologist in Las Vegas now, we're all part of the same group. So what do you think of that? So if, if we all won't take what you're paying us and none of us are taking your insurance, your members are going to be pissed that there's no ophthalmologist covered in Las Vegas by their insurance plan. So then the insurance is kind of 
browbeat into paying the doctors a lot more. You may say, well, who cares? It's between the doctors and the insurance. Yeah, maybe it'll raise the rate to the insurance somewhat, but other than that, what's the big deal? The big deal is that it also eliminates competition. And when they're all part of the same group, not only is there less motivation for doctors to do better, but also it becomes much tougher to get appointments with a specific doctor. It becomes the type of thing where the doctors are just all in a big pool and whoever you get, you get and of, of those all those doctors in the group, some are good, some are okay, some are terrible, and you don't have much control, and everything goes downhill. And also it became it starts to become like a mill. If you think about it, how many patients are going through there. Yeah, there's tons of doctors and tons of nurses in there to see them, but it, it, it starts to be part of like a huge complex, and and there's there's tons of staff, tons of nurses, tons of doctors, and you, you're, you're treated like a number. And I experienced that personally, and it was awful. And they also have less time for you, they want to think about whatever's going on with you less than if you're just visiting a, a doctor who's practicing by himself. That was a big problem. That's, that's not the only problem. There's just, it's just healthcare sucks in Vegas, and it doesn't surprise me that she was striking out with this diagnosis. So let's hear the rest of the story. And so my pain kind of like gradually stayed the same for a while, and... If you've ever dealt with chronic pain, you know how much of a mind fuck it is. Like, it's literally the only thing that you ever think about all day, every day, is am I ever going to get better? Am I ever going to be able to do the things that I love to do in my life again? And since fitness was such a big part of my life, I didn't know what to do with myself. Like, I couldn't work out anymore. I couldn't, you know, like, burn enough calories to be able to eat the food that I wanted to eat. And, like, my whole world just felt like it kind of fell apart. And this pain with my leg lasted for about a year. And then out of nowhere, my arm started to hurt. And so at this point, like my arm is hurting, my leg is hurting. I'm basically not playing poker anymore because I've lost my passion for it. I'm not working out. The only thing that I have that made me happy was food. By the way, um, people like to say they lost their passion for poker. They just stopped playing less. That's usually not the case. Usually the passion is lost when they can't win anymore. And that's clearly what happened. Well, I wasn't making money anymore. Yeah, you were losing money. That, that was the problem. You probably lost back most of what you won. And at some point you had to put the brakes on either because you went bust or you were close enough to it where you said, I can't continue. It just years are going by and I'm not winning. And that that's what really happened. And it, it, that's I said the same thing about Vanessa Selps and so many other players who talked about their quitting to go do other things. Now, if someone quits poker to go move on to something that's that's big where they're – uh, something that's a huge opportunity, or they're clearly they've clearly done very well, and then they d- try to chase their dream now that they've built up a lot of money and can do it. That's a different story. But most people who go from being a pro poker player to just abruptly, oh, I don't have passion for the game anymore. Oh, I, I I just don't really feel like playing anymore. No, it's it's because they've been losing. That's that's almost always the case. Few exceptions, but almost always the case. So that that's what was happening here. She was she was you know she told the truth that she lost her focus there, and people passed her by. And then the the, the style that she had was no longer working. People adapted to that style, and she found that she was just spewing chips off. That people learned how to play defensively a lot better against players like her. So she wasn't winning anymore. That's what happened. And restricting food. 
and binging on food because I was restricting food and then thinking about food and then feeling bad for having eaten all the food. And like my mind was just like wrapped in a little bubble where all I could think about was my pain and food. And I want to say that I was in this little bubble where I was literally just like sitting at home, feeling sorry for myself, not knowing what to do with my life. And this happened for like probably two years. And again, I had gone to so many doctors trying to figure out what the hell was wrong with me and nobody was able to tell me. Before we continue here, one other thing I want to say regarding this whole health story. First, this sounds awful what she had there and I can imagine how frustrating that was. And I, for that, I feel for her. I, I, I can relate to this somewhat myself of some of the stuff I dealt with last year. And it really does just take over your thoughts and your life. And especially if it's interfering with things you like to do and you wonder if you'll ever do it again. And I, I went through all those thoughts myself last year. However, you would think I mean, here we're already way past the lock thing. At this point in time, she's talking about, I think she's probably talking about 2015 or so. That's my guess. This is way past lock poker going down. Why, why doesn't she think about that she negatively affected people's lives too? That people lost their entire bankrolls, they lost everything. That you know, she, she probably really impacted some people's lives by promoting lock poker the way she did. And it doesn't seem like she has guilt about that. She's oh yeah, I, 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 I was a sponsored player on three sites. She just says that like it's nothing. I thought... When I watched this video, I thought she was going to go on about the lock poker thing and how much she regrets it. But uh, as you see, we're, we're, we skipped right past that, and now we're talking about all the health problems she had for two years and how depressing this was, which I believe it was. But it's, it's, it's interesting how sometimes people can cause, indirectly even, a lot of trouble for others. And then when they have depressing situations of their own, they focus on it and say, oh, my God, look what's happening to me. Terrible, terrible, terrible. And you go, well, hold on. Well, what about what you did to some other people? Now now you can understand a little bit. It's a different thing, but I don't know. It's, she was just so callous with the way she handled the lock poker thing. It really bothers me because she wasn't – this wasn't even someone who was just kind of out of it and didn't know and didn't really understand. She understood perfectly and didn't care. That's what really bothered me. And – at that point, I was almost kind of like, you know what, like, I don't even care anymore. I'm just going to eat food and whatever. So we had planned this vacation to go to Australia. And this was in January of 2015 now, I think. 2016? 2015? It was one of those years. I want to say 2016. So we went to Australia in January of that year. I'd been going to physical therapy and stuff, and I was, like, slowly kind of getting into working out again, even though I wasn't feeling, like, great but I was still to a point where I could like work out a little bit so I was doing a workout in the gym in Australia because obviously I wanted to control how many calories I was burning that day and make sure that I didn't eat like too much food while we were on vacation even though I don't really allow myself to like go eat all the food so this whole thing is just like it's what people who have eating disorders think about even though I never had like a full-blown eating disorder to the point where I was throwing up every day or you know like not eating at all the next day and so anyway I was at the gym and I was deadlifting and I wasn't even really going that heavy but something like snapped it didn't even snap in my back like something just kind of felt a little bit off after a pull and so I went back to where we were staying at the Airbnb and my pain in my back was so bad that I could barely even do anything to lay on the floor and I 
I still to this day don't know what happened. I have no clue. I was like laying on the floor texting my physical therapist and he was telling me to do press-ups because it would make my back pain better. So I spent literally like a whole vacation laying on the floor doing press-ups. And when we weren't doing that, we were out eating food and I literally stuffed my face so much because I was so depressed and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life anymore. Right before we went on this vacation, I had also started studying to become a personal trainer and I realized quickly that this was not going to work out because because of my pains, it's really hard to like try to put yourself in a spot where you're learning about things that you're supposed to be able to teach people at some point and then not knowing whether or not your body would able would ever be able to do those moves. So I, again, I got really, really sad about the whole situation and the vacation was kind of shitty and I really felt like I don't know what to do with my life anymore because my body is ruined, my brain is ruined, my poker career is pretty much over, I'm not making money anymore. I was like, what if my husband leaves me? I'm going to have to move back to Norway, live with my mom the rest of my life. So that was like where my mind was at at the time. And then another year goes by. Of- I'm going to stop here. This does kind of make you think because yet you, you see these stars of poker. You see these people who just are flying high, winning $2 million at the table, and you, you, you can be jealous of them. You can think, wow, I wish I was that person. I wish I could be lucky like them. I wish I could be as good as they are. Their life must be sweet. You see them in all these far-flung locations and having so much fun. and Then they kind of just disappear, and human nature is to believe that the grass is always greener on the other side, that when you – when you don't have information about other people, the first thought is things must be going well for them, unless you have reason to believe it doesn't. But if you just don't have information, you just usually fill it in with the best things. And this is kind of the reality of the poker players that you saw that were kicking ass back in the day that just vanished. This is the type of thing that's really happening behind the scenes. This this is what was really going on. This is why... A lot of what you saw on TV in the 2000s of people playing poker was kind of a sham. It was very temporary, very fleeting. Some didn't know how to manage a bankroll, didn't know how to manage their success, didn't evolve with the game, didn't uh, make a lot of good decisions, developed gambling or substance abuse problems. In her case, uh, she developed uh, a fitness obsession and an eating disorder. And by the way, the, the... Traveling with someone who has an eating disorder, as you can hear from this story, has got to be awful. Like, I, I feel for her husband. Imagine you, you go all the way to Australia, and that's very far from Las Vegas. Very, very far. It's a, a big production to go to Australia. So you go all the way to Australia, and, and you've got to focus the whole time. I forget the injury that happened and everything. You know, so that's inevitable. If, if that happens, then that happens, and you've got to deal with it. But can you imagine you go there, and you've, you've got to carefully manage what, what you get to eat and the exercise you do after you eat. I mean, come on, you're on vacation. You gotta, if this is the focus of your vacation, it ruins the vacation. And to have to be with someone, it, it really is a big burden to have all that. Uh, if you're with someone who just tries to eat well and tries to eat right and tries to work out in the, in the hotel gym when they can, that's fine. But if, if, when it becomes an obsession, it becomes very hard to be with someone like that. So if she had reason to worry about her husband leaving her, I don't know if he was considering it. I don't know who it is, but I, I'm curious about who it is. Truthfully, before this video, I didn't even know she was married. Me, kind of just like 
being in La La Land, not really knowing what to do, kind of playing a little bit of poker here and dare break and even like not really putting my soul into anything because I didn't have any passions because all the passions that I had in life were taken away from me. And this is where I started to kind of get into makeup. So we're getting to the stage where I'm at like today or at least a year from now. And last year was when my sister-in-law actually, hi Jenna if you're watching this, but I was talking to her about makeup because she used to work at Sephora, so she knew a lot about makeup, and I kind of wanted to get into it, so I was like, hey, do you know of any good like beauty channels to watch on YouTube? And she goes, yeah, you should watch this girl called Tati. She's amazing. So I went on Tati's YouTube, and I started binge-watching her videos, and I literally fell in love with her, and I just thought she was the sweetest person ever, and she just looked like she had so much fun with makeup, and... She just liked what she did so much, and I could like feel the passion coming out of her by, from every video that I watched, and it just made me so happy. And after that, I started finding new YouTubers and new YouTubers and new YouTubers, and all I wanted to do was just like sit at home and watch YouTube. And let me tell you, the makeup thing on YouTube and on Instagram—it's huge. This is mostly a radio show that's directed at males. I'm happy we have some female listeners. In fact, it, it seems like every so often I, I, I stumble upon a new female listener in some way. They, they, they follow me and then they mention they listen to the show. So we, we actually have more female listeners than I think. But the truth is a very high percentage of this show is listened to by males. Or I, I put that the wrong way. A very high percentage of our listeners are male. So most of us don't know about the makeup thing. We don't have an interest in makeup. We, we like to see women wearing makeup, but we, we don't think about makeup. I know I don't. I, I never seek out a makeup video on YouTube. Never. I don't look at Instagrams of, a, of makeup artists. But this is a huge thing on social media now. And some of them are very successful. Some of them make a lot of money because they will actually get sponsorships to do backdoor promotions of, of products. And they'll get money from all the views they have uh, from things like on YouTube. So they, they, there's a lot of money in it if you can be successful. Now, after I, I'm done playing this, we'll talk about how successful Annette is in this so far. It was basically what I wanted to do. And I know you guys are probably all thinking, but like, why didn't you get a job? Or like, why didn't you try to do something else to make money? Thankfully, my husband was so supportive and our financial situation... It's pretty good. I mean, I don't necessarily have to work unless I really want to. But if he wanted me to get a job, I would obviously get a job like anywhere I could where I would be able to work without having to worry so much about my body because my back pain has been really, really bad lately. And Interesting thing she said there without really saying it. She said that her financial situation is pretty good. She doesn't have to work if she doesn't really want to. But the key thing is because her husband has been supportive. What does that mean? Well... That means that her husband's supporting her. <laughs> That's what it means. Financially, not just morally. She's not saying, oh, I saved so much money from all my winnings in poker, even though I'm not really winning anymore. I have so many savings from back in the day that uh, this can, I can sustain myself on that for a long time. That's not what she's saying. She's saying, yeah, my husband makes enough money to, to where I really don't have to take a, a serious real job here, and I can try to mess around with this makeup thing. That, that's what she's trying to say here, which means she really did seem to have lost everything or almost everything she made from poker. And despite like MRIs and physical therapy appointments and chiropractor appointments and 
whatever else you can think of, like nothing seems to work for me. So I, it would have to be somewhere that I could not have to move much basically. So the only thing I'm really capable of doing now is walking without too much pain and even walking like too much will cause me pain. And at the end of the day, I'm usually really, really sore. I just want to go to bed. So there's that. So where was I? So yeah, I found Tati's channel and I just fell in love with her. And after I did that, I started playing so much more with makeup on myself and I realized that this is something that I really freaking enjoy doing. And I had never had that feeling ever since I started getting into fit fitness and losing weight and all that stuff. And that was my passion at the time and then poker was a passion before then. And the fact that I found something that I cared so much about that it already became like the top three thing that I've loved the most in my life kind of meant to me that it was something that I was meant to do something more with. So All right, I've heard enough. There's two and a half more minutes here, but she's starting to repeat herself. So screw it. If you want to see it, it's called uh, my story. Get to know me like for real. You can search it on YouTube and her channel is called Annette's makeup corner. But how is makeup, Annette's makeup corner doing? Does she have the hundreds of thousands or millions of views? No. Uh, I'm going to click on it right now, and I'll tell you the success she's had. The video she released 16 hours ago, which, yeah, it's only 16 hours ago, has 705 views. The video she released yesterday, 1.7K views, 1,700 views. Two days ago, the one about moxie lashes, 944 views. Three days ago, Blush Tribe Neon Dreams palette, 4,000 views. She released one a month ago that does have 25,000 views. Another one a month ago, 5,600 views. One five months ago with 14,000 views. Another one three months ago, 7,700 views. Are these terrible numbers? No. There's people watching her. If she's just doing it because she enjoys it, she's getting enough people watching to where it's worth taking the time to do. If it had like 10 views, then obviously she's wasting her time and almost nobody's watching. But she's she's getting between like 1,000 to 25,000 views after some time passes from each video. The 25,000 looks more of an outlier though. It must have been that particular subject that people were interested in and searching out. She has... 8,300 subscribers, but again, that's kind of misleading. People just kind of subscribe for just to subscribe to whatever they happen to be at at the moment, and they don't come back a lot of times. So you'll see these YouTubers with like 3.5 million subscribers, but that doesn't mean they're going to have 3.5 million views to each video. It won't even be close to that. Uh, then there's people who view who don't subscribe, but but anyway, she's getting a few K, few thousand people on average, maybe at best from each video. As I said, if you're doing it as a hobby, yeah, it's good enough to continue doing it. If you're doing it to make money, to become someone huge, then you're, you're, it's not going to get you there. You may say, well, maybe this is too new. Maybe she just needs to get out there. Maybe people need to find her. Well, I'm scrolling down, and this goes back pretty far. Uh, I'm seeing videos six months ago, nine months ago. I keep scrolling down in order here. Ten months ago is where they begin. So she's had ten months, which sounds like it's not a lot, but it actually is in the YouTube world. If 
you stagnate on YouTube and don't ever blow up, you're basically going to stay stagnating until unless something big happens to bring people's attention to you. And I don't mean something like this, like being covered on this show or elsewhere in poker media. People in poker are going to raise their eyebrows about this and say, oh, this is interesting, like we are, but it's not going to bring a whole lot of regular views. So it seems that she has a, a small following for this makeup stuff, but it's, it's never going to become a big YouTube star and it's not going to be able to support herself with this. As she mentioned, she's with her husband who pays the bills and everything's okay under for that, so that's fine. But this isn't what she was hoping. She was hoping maybe she'd become like that girl she was binge-watching who also does makeup, and she didn't become that. She's just, uh, as I said, has like a small YouTube following. But that's what she's doing. What about the pain she's having. Now, I'm no doctor. We need a doctor to come on this show, too. We have a lawyer already. We need a doctor, too. But uh, my guess here is it's either some kind of uh, hereditary condition that just showed up in her early adulthood, or more likely, it was a combination of the overworking out and the eating disorder. And those with eating disorders can really do some pretty severe damage to their body, sometimes permanently. Sometimes it's temporary, sometimes it's permanent. So it's a very, very bad thing. And and also, unfortunately, the society says skinny equals healthy, fat equals unhealthy. It's true, fat is unhealthy. But being too skinny and malnourished is much worse than being fat. Now, I'm not talking about fat like Joe McDonald, who was 700 pounds. I'm talking about just someone who's overweight is going to be healthier than someone who is severely underweight and and malnourished. That's that's a huge problem. Being overweight is something that builds up over time and can cause you a lot of problems, especially later in life. Being underweight, you're going to have immediate problems. There's going to be immediate damage, sometimes irreversible. And And I've... I've known girls who have had eating disorders and and were anorexic, and I would try to get this across to them. And I know it's a psychological condition. It's not as simple as just saying, okay, I'm going to start eating. But at the same time, I have known girls personally who've been scared out of anorexia, where once they fully understand what they're doing to themselves, sometimes, not always, but sometimes they actually will quit and, and go back to eating normally. But it's a, unfortunately, it's there. There was a lot of value placed on on being thin in society, and a lot of uh, the the general message is that if you're thin, then you're healthy, and if you're fat, you're unhealthy. So they think, well, okay, I'm thin, and then where, where the where the psychological disorder really comes in is they look in the mirror, and even though they're real thin, they still see fat on themselves. They imagine that they're still fat, and they feel they have to lose more weight. And that just, it really can do a number on you. So I think that perhaps the overworking out and the malnourishment and the uh, everything that comes along with an eating disorder, and it sounds like she had bulimia too, uh, these things can really harm your body. And I have a feeling that's why she started to get these weird pains that couldn't be explained, and now she has a lot of problems that can't quite, uh, that won't go away, and it doesn't seem like there's a way to treat them. So it's too bad she has that. I mean, that's uh, even with what she did with Locke, I, I don't think that uh, she deserves this. 
But unfortunately, she may have done it to herself. So if you know anybody, if you know anybody who is anorexic like that and someone who has an eating disorder, you should really, really try hard if you care about them to get them to stop. It's not easy, but uh, um, really at least make sure they understand the full extent of what they're doing to themselves. That That's, that's kind of a sad story, that part, that she is in so much pain that she feels all she can do is make YouTube videos now. So that's the story of Annette Oberstein. A poker pro, a sensation fallen from grace. And we will move on. How about some more poker gossip? How about some more? Let's do it. Won't be as long of a segment, don't worry. But uh, let's go to some more poker gossip. A catrific. We talked about her on a previous show. And she had some controversy, so to speak. Oh, we have a call here. Trader Risky, let me reconnect you. It's, it's not letting me merge it on. It's, it's a piece of crap. I'll reconnect you. Call, you're on the air. Just for the record, on that 15th, dad is Raymond Davis. Good day. <laughs> the number you are trying to call... Uh, that's what I hung up on Trader Ruski for? Jeez. It was a call from Las Vegas. I Part of me was hoping it was actually Annette herself. Like, I, like, I'm thinking, like, what if Annette's listening? She's, like, what if Annette's listening? She's going to call in and clarify things. Instead, we get, we get someone saying that her dad is Raymond Davis. Come on. If there's anyone who looks like their dad is not Raymond Davis, it would be Annette. All right. So let's talk about Catrific. Catrific was the girl who did that uh, had that situation where she was placed in a main event of a World Series of Poker circuit event in Las Vegas, a $1,700 main event when she really registered for a $400 side event. Noticed it pretty quickly. In fact, they actually placed her in the seat where her boyfriend just busted from and she knew it. And she knew very quickly she was in the wrong event, and she decided to just go with it and see if she could win and <laughs> hope it wouldn't be caught that she was in the bigger event, and she started doing well, and she busted some people. And then there was a lot of backlash once she was caught, and it actually probably wouldn't have even been known had it not been that she went on YouTube, because she was a YouTuber, and complained about it. and. She deleted the video after there's a huge backlash to the whole thing. But uh, she she just didn't get it. Her, her real name is Catherine Valdez, but she goes by Catrific. That's C-A-T-R-I-F-I-C. And we went into this story in depth in a previous show, so I'm not going to rehash the whole thing, other than to say it was very clear, in fact, she admitted it, that she knew that she was in the wrong event very quickly that she tried to take advantage of it, and then when she was kicked out, she vilified the floor man for being, quote, rude to her, and that didn't go over well. So that uh, she wasn't known in the poker world prior to that by most people, but this is what made her known, and obviously that wasn't a a good introduction to most people. She basically had a bad rep after that occurred. 
Then uh, you know, people kind of, I wouldn't say we forgot about it, but this is about a month ago now. People have moved on. They're not talking about her constantly. She was also on uh, this thing called the Thirst Lounge, which was, uh, who was it, uh, Bill Perkins who wrote who ran this? Yeah, Bill Perkins. Uh, it, it was part of a staking group that he would put up uh, 10K and then Party Poker would put up 10K. And then they would fly to the Caribbean where he has a house and play on Party Poker from there with a stake. And most of the players lost on the Thirst Lounge. She was selected. I don't know how she got herself selected. She wasn't known. And this was before this whole incident occurred. So the first piece of news about Catrific, which I didn't report because last time I talked about her is before this happened. On, on April 21st, she posted, I'm so thankful to have been part of the Thirst, round, the thirst Lounge round one. I have decided to leave the program because it just doesn't align with what I want in my life right now. I totally lo- love poker, but I don't want to be... I don't want to be dedicating as much of my time as it requires to be a part of this team. I want poker to be a chill hobby, not a career, and it isn't serving me in a plus EV kind of way. You know, like entering a tournament uh, that you bought in for less than a quarter of what the buy-in really is. That That's plus EV, I will say that. Uh, I wish everyone in the group the best of luck, as they are some of the most incredible people I've ever met. I know they will all be successful and crush their stakes. Thanks for all the support, Thirsties. Till next time, also totally subscribe to ThirstLounge.tv. So that was already kind of weird that she quit that because she's getting staked. I don't know who's paying for the trips down to the Caribbean, but this was not her money she was risking. And there's only upside to this where you're getting money given to you to play. Even if you're down for the moment, you might as well play it out and see what happens, right? I don't think she cares about Bill Perkins' money or Party Poker's money. That part was already weird. I wondered if she was encouraged to leave by Bill Perkins after what happened. I know Bill was kind of critical about this whole thing. He wasn't thrilled that one of his players there that he was staking did this. So this may have been kind of like a soft push out where he suggested that she drop out and that in return he'll keep quiet about his the fact that he was about to let her go anyway. It could have been something like that. I'm just guessing here. But that's not the main story. I'm just throwing that in. That was on April 21st. However, World Series is coming up, right? World Series of Poker coming up in just three weeks. And Catrific, who still lives in Las Vegas, still would like to play the World Series, but she just doesn't have the bankroll to enter some of these events. So what do you normally do if you don't have a bankroll to enter events and yet you have a fan base, most of whom are outside of poker, but nevertheless you have a fan base from her YouTube channel? What do you do? You sell pieces, right? Except if you just did something that a lot of people find reprehensible, and if you try to sell pieces right after pulling a stunt like she just did, it's obviously going to result in a lot of drama, and that's exactly what happened. So she tried to sell some pieces for the World Series of Poker, and uh, I wish I could read this, but unfortunately she's... uh, deleted tweets and protected her Twitter. I should have followed her. I don't know why I forgot to follow her, but now I, I, I can't follow her because her tweets are protected and I doubt she'll accept me. But she tried to sell some World Series of Poker action on Twitter. The Twitter mob shredded her and really gave her a hard time. And uh, then she tried to give an explanation, a different one that she had before, about what happened there with that event. 
She tried to claim that her boyfriend had free-rolled her into the circuit event, so there was no motivation or incentive for her to be shady. <laughs> How does that even make sense? So her boyfriend bought her into the to that smaller event for $400. She gets sat at a $1,700 event, like, and there's no motivation to keep playing. Of course there's motivation. You got, you got placed in an event uh, much bigger than what your boyfriend bought you in for. Of course there's motivation. What does that mean? So, the, of course, everyone jumped on that and attacked her, and uh, finally she uh, protected her tweets, blocked some people on Twitter, deleted some uh, Twitter posts she had made, and as one listener to this show and forum poster put it, I'm not a huge fan of angry Twitter mobs, but this gal is annoying as fuck. <laughs> and that's kind of true. She she just constantly is is playing the victim. She's constantly blaming others for reacting badly to inappropriate things she's doing and saying. She doesn't understand that when you do something, when there is an action on your part, there is a reaction from the people watching you. That's the way social media works. You should know that being a minor YouTube star. Uh, she did tweet some things that were captured, thankfully. With this type of person, you've just got to capture everything. I, if I had been seeing this going on, I would have captured it, but I didn't until it was too late. But someone did capture some of her tweets. So this was something she tweeted out on May 4th, just uh, four days ago, in response to the bashing of her attempting to sell pieces. She wrote, I have never experienced a more unforgiving and critical community in my life, in my 14 plus years on the internet, than that of poker. What a disappointment. What a disappointment in hopes and goals and people. Do not recommend people getting into this world. Wow. She doesn't recommend anybody get into poker because everybody is so critical and so mean. She's never experienced that in her 14 plus years on the internet. People in poker are so mean and so bad. Do you feel bad for her? I'm playing my violin now. She, She still doesn't understand it. Like, okay, she would like to sell pieces to the World Series, but she just created a controversy the month before that she didn't handle well. So you just forego selling pieces to the public that year. You you don't compound the situation by selling pieces, right? You, you're going to expect that people are going to respond negatively. You've got to expect that. And then even if you don't expect it, when they respond negatively, you go, oops, that was a bad idea. Well, never mind. I'm going to slink away here and try to pretend this didn't happen. You, you don't fight back and say that the community is unforgiving and critical. And, and, and the problem is that I think people, what they're just looking for is for her to say, yes, I tried to take advantage of it, but I, I didn't really realize what I was doing. I didn't know the I didn't really think about the ramifications that I was really screwing the other players. I thought I was kind of getting a freebie from the casino. I didn't think about it that it was actually costing the other players money by me not putting my entire buy-in in. Uh, I'm sorry for the criti- criticism of the floor man. He was just doing his job. I've totally learned from this. Sorry, everybody. It's never going to happen again, and I understand why you're all pissed. That would have shut it down. 
Like there would have still been some detractors, but that mainly would have shut it down. The problem was we keep getting the, why can't you forgive me? Why are you all being such jerks about it? Why? Why? Why can't, why can't we just get past this? Why can't I just sell pieces in peace? Uh, because people are still angry about this and you still haven't addressed this in the proper way. She goes on to write right after that. What's also funny is people were trying to say I was trying to scam for a free roll when I was already getting put in with a free roll and could have played the 1700 if I wanted to. And then here's a good excuse. Um, my grandmother died that day and felt like chilling in a smaller tournament and felt anxious. <laughs> She's exploiting her grandmother's death to make an excuse here. That, that's pretty low. Her grandmother dies, and in, instead of just uh, not mentioning that there, or, or if she's going to use that as an excuse, at least say that the reason she reacted poorly to people's reaction to what she did was because her grandmother had just died and her head wasn't in the right place. Instead, she's saying, no, 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 my boyfriend would have bought me into a $1,700 event instead of the $400 event, but I, I chose the $400 event because I'm just trying to chill because my grandmother just died. I, I said to my boyfriend... My grandmother just died. I'm so distraught that, um, well, I have to play poker. I'm so distraught, but I don't want to play big poker. I want to play kind of smaller poker. That's, that's, that's what, I know that's what people do when relatives die is they, uh, they, they run out to play smaller poker tournaments. They, they don't want the bigger one. They, they want to chill out in the smaller tournament. How does that even make any sense? Like, I would understand I don't want to play poker because my grandmother just died. I would even understand I'm going to play poker to get my mind off the fact that my grandmother just died. In fact, I know somebody personally, you guys don't know him, but I know somebody personally who, oh, many years ago, right, 15 years ago, his mom died. And this guy was younger than me, so his mom was not that old. Anyway, uh, he was playing poker the next day. He was playing Limit Hold'em the next day. And, and he had told me that the reason he did that was just he wanted to get his mind off. He didn't want to sit at home and just think, over and over and over about his, you know, his mom died. He just tried to do something to get his mind off of it. So that's kind of understandable, but so she wants, her grandmother died, but she, she wants to just chill with a small tournament, not a big tournament, even though her boyfriend's going to be buying her in. It makes no sense. She's just, she's exploiting the fact that her grandmother died that day to try to get people to feel bad for her. I think that's pretty crappy to exploit your grandmother's death to make an excuse for something crappy you did. And not even the right way. So it's like she's not even saying my grandmother died and that's why I made a bad decision because my mind just wasn't there. No, that's the reason she's saying because her boyfriend would have bought her into the bigger one, but he didn't because she chose not to. She went on to write, when I realized the situation, didn't want to mention this before because people were always, always complain when women get handouts and didn't want to amplify that the conversation, that conversation for girls in poker. Why would I scam when I was already free rolling? Didn't even need to. <sighs> wow, she's a big hero for the women in poker. Huh? <laughs> she, she's not a good representative at all for the women in poker. This is, this is, uh, that, that part's true. But uh, she's talking about people getting handouts. She said she didn't want to say this because she didn't want to bring up the conversation that, oh, look, uh, a girl getting bought in by her boyfriend. You know, this is this is the way all girls get bought in is they they just uh, rely on men to buy them in. She's saying, well, I didn't want to make girls look bad that way, so I just I held that back. But the, but that's the truth. Since my boyfriend's buying me in anyway, of course I would have played the seventeen hundred if I wanted to. That has nothing to do with it. When no matter what it is, if you if you buy something that's worth less. And then you end up accidentally receiving the thing that's worth more. 
and you then keep it, then yes, you're trying to gain from it, and you're trying to gain from something that didn't, you know, wasn't really supposed to go to you. Now, if you do this to to a casino or some very large company, that's a little bit of a different story. But here, you're stealing directly from other poker players. Here, you're not putting in your fair share to play against your fellow poker players, and you know it, and you try to exploit it. Now, worse things than this have been done in poker. I'm not saying this is the worst thing ever done in poker, but it, it was the way she reacted afterwards that was so bad. If you just said, okay, yeah, I didn't really think about how bad this was, and I was screwing my fellow players, I kind of just thought of it as screwing the casino, you know, sorry about that, I just thought I was going to get something for free out of the casino, or for a big discount from the casino, I didn't really think about it, sorry guys. That's what she should have said. So, obviously this didn't go over well, and I don't know if she's saying she's leaving poker, because she said she doesn't recommend people getting into this world, and this is a disappointment in her hopes and goals. That she just doesn't get it. I, I think where she has a little bit of confusion is that she's used to the YouTube world where she's much more in control of what people can say. Because anyone who puts a comment on her channel, she can delete it if she doesn't like it. And she also doesn't really do very much controversial content normally on her channel. So she has some small following on YouTube and she makes these videos that are pretty much just fluff. And there's some people that like her. I don't know why. I don't even find the videos interesting at all. But there's some people that like her videos, so they're always positive and encouraging. And she's not used to the poker world where if you do something wrong, people say so. And people call you out. The poker world is... The intersection of the poker world and social media is kind of explosive because poker has a lot of drama in it. It naturally does. And so you combine it with social media where drama thrives and gets amplified and you see what happens. So you've got to understand how to maneuver through it. And it's interesting that someone who runs a YouTube channel doesn't completely understand that because it's just such a different situation. They're not used to this type of adversity, but it was adversity of her own creation. This wasn't something that just happened to her. It's not like someone's attacking her that's well more more well-known than her or something. She doesn't know what to do. This, this is that she's just not accepting the mistake she made and trying to lie to people and trying to make dumb excuses. I mean, to blame her, her grandmother's death on this? I mean, that's, that's insane. So I don't know if she's going to continue in poker. It sounds like she part of her wants to, but it seems like she just can't get on her feet here where people are going to get past this. Every time she opens her mouth, it gets worse. So that's that's your update there. All right, let's talk about Daniel Cates. This weird thing he put out. Daniel Cates is known as Jungle Man. He's a high stakes player. He's been well known in online circles for a long time, even people outside of online. Pretty well known high stakes pro. Very outspoken and kind of, uh, I don't know how to describe him. There's something kind of a little bit socially off about the guy. He looks normal, but uh, he kind of acts in strange ways, sometimes some socially inappropriate ways, both in person and online. Um, 
an example I gave earlier, but I'll say again, I was discussing something back and forth, some topic on poker, uh, no, on two plus two a few years ago. And I was disagreeing with something he said, and he said he's going to punch me in the face next time he sees me. Like just out of the blue, because I, I criticized something he said. And I, I made no threat towards him. I didn't say anything that terrible about him. I didn't insult his mother or his girlfriend. Nothing like that. I was just disagreeing with something he said and was critical about something. And he said he's going to punch me in the face next time he sees me. And it, 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 He just will do weird things like that. And I was never worried he's going to really punch me in the face. It's just, he'll do weird things like that. So he did, he just did something pretty weird again that you wouldn't really expect from him. And we've never seen anything like this from him before because something he's never attempted to be is a poker sex symbol. He's never tried to take that role on. <laughs> that's, that's never what he's wanted you to look at him as. But that's what he's apparently doing now. I think, I think Dan Bilzerian inspired him. So a picture started going around that was taken somewhere, looks like a Caribbean island, or somewhere that's right by the ocean with a light blue water, Some someplace that looks like a, a nice uh, touristy beach area. And he's sitting on a balcony, which is probably a hotel. He's sitting on top of a table with his shirt off. He's clearly sucking his stomach in. It's funny. You can, you can totally see by the shape of his chest how he's really sucking in that stomach to try to look like he doesn't have a stomach, which he clearly does. And I'm not even bashing that he has a stomach. I've got a stomach, okay? You guys have seen that. But it, it's funny that he's taking this shirtless picture and trying so hard to suck it in. Like, I, you don't see me sitting shirtless on a table, uh, sucking in my stomach and distributing that on the internet. I, I wouldn't do that. He is. He's doing that. But that's not the interesting thing about this picture. The interesting thing about this picture is he is surrounded by about 13 girls in bikinis, all in chairs around the table with their legs up on the table. So he's he's sitting in a sea of legs. Now, none of the legs are touching him from what I can see, but the girls all have their, their legs on the table. They're all in bikinis. They're all pretty girls. Look like they're in their 20s. They, they're, so he's sitting with 13 pretty girls surrounding him, it looks like. And then, for some reason, there's one that's all the way in the back of the picture that's also in a bikini that's kind of like standing up against the door in the background uh, trying to stick her ass out. <laughs> and that's kind of out of place. It's like you have all these girls sitting at the table putting their legs up in, in his direction, and there's the one who's away from the table <laughs> sticking her ass out uh, next to a door. It's, it's, it's really weird. A- anyway... That was a weird picture altogether because what is he doing here? Now, I, I, I'm sure you don't think that Daniel Cates, for all his uh, poker notoriety and money he has, I'm sure you don't think that he has like 14 beautiful girlfriends that he travels with who all share him. He doesn't have a harem of 14 beautiful girls. Uh, much like even Dan Bilzerian, who has much, much more money and is much better known than Daniel Cates, he does not have a harem of girls either. That That's uh, something that's not really understood very well about Dan Bilzerian. You see him with all these beautiful women surrounding him. These are paid models. He actually pays models to take these pictures with him. Now, it's he's gotten his money's worth because this is what's really propelled him to Instagram fame. This is part of Bilzerian's whole brand is being this playboy who hang, who's really rich and 
hangs out with these beautiful women all the time, and that's so he's getting his money's worth by hiring these models for these pictures. But a lot of these poses you see Bilzerian in are totally staged, and some of these girls are not even really partying with him. They just bring them in for the photo shoot and they leave. So this is again something where you don't believe everything you see on the internet. So so clearly Daniel Cates hired like 14 models where wherever he was. I don't know if this is in the U.S. or not. It kind of looks like it's not the U.S. But in some sort of vacation destination, he hired 14 bikini models, it looks like, and had this picture taken, which is very strange if you think about it. And this is what he wants to be. He wants to be the next Bilzerian or something. It's very weird. But if that wasn't enough, he also released a short movie, <laughs> which is even odder. I'm going to play this movie. Now, I, I, this is one time where I wish you guys could see the video. So, Trader Ruski, you can see it, actually. Oh, it's almost too big here. So, Do you see this, Trader Ruski? Yeah, I can see it now. Okay. Well, it's obnoxious. Turn this down. So it's showing him at a poker table. And there's some shot of a girl. And <laughs> he's sitting at a table. There's a girl with like a her breasts hanging out, not completely out, but he's got to, she's she's got like a mask on. One walking up with poker chips, like outdoors somewhere. There's a bunch of girls waiting around. I can't tell if it's the same girls in the picture. Catchy music, I'll give him that. For some reason, like. One girl is in a rabbit mask and the rest aren't. One of them shows up with the poker chips. He could have sprung for better poker chips. These are really cheap looking poker chips. So they're, they're shuffling a deck. He's playing poker against a lot of, uh, bikini models, including one in a, in a rabbit mask. The rabbit mask actually wouldn't be allowed at the World Series, by the way. You can't obscure your face that way. Nor would this music be allowed at the World Series. I kind of like to play at an event with... Oh, <laughs> so hold on a second. So then there's a picture of a girl putting her feet, I think, we're, we're under the table, I think on him. Let me see. Yeah, she's, she's, so she's got her feet on his leg, kind of like his upper leg, like his thigh. Like I think it's implying it's moving towards his dick. That's why you get that, like the music, that, that stops and you got, you can find this on, uh, Chicago Joey's Twitter, by the way, at Joe Ingram one. That's where I found it. It, it probably appeared somewhere else, but he, he, Joey posted this. And so then, then we jump to him in kind of a soft core sex scene with the girl who had her, uh, her foot on his thigh. And it's kind of interspersed with, 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 with the, with the poker scene. I feel that this music is really, uh, it's kind of just relaxing me. 
I wish I had this music when I took my first flight after I had my, all my anxiety problems back in April. I, I wish I had this music to listen to on the plane. I could have just mellowed out in the plane there during that entire flight. And this is a fireplace now. And they keep throwing in little scenes of him with kind of like a red light in kind of a, a semi-clothed sex scene. There's no nudity yet. Now it's showing like it looks like he's trying to make a poker decision against the girl, one of the girls at the table. By the way, the production value in this is very good. This is this is not cheaply made. Like there's a lot of money that went into this. Now the oh, I see. It's a strip poker game. Oh, I get it. She takes off. She's taking off her panties and throwing that into the pot as something she's betting. <laughs> How do you match that bet? I hope he doesn't take off his underwear next to match that bet. That would be... I don't think she'd want to win that. She takes off her panties and throws it into the, into the pot. I should do that. At the, what if I did that at the World Series? In my first event, the 08 event, the first event I play there. If uh, I'm starting to run low on chips, should I, think I should take off my underwear and throw it into the pot? I'm intrigued. What's going to happen next? Is he going to win her panties? He's turning over. A pocket ace is what a shock. Wait, hold on. I'm, I'm confused here. I think I, I thought I saw him turn over pocket aces, but then I saw three aces on the board. Let me think of that again. Is, are there five aces in the deck? Is, is he cheating? Is that what? He, is he cheating at strip poker? That's not good. Yeah, it looks like pocket aces. Yeah, and then and then there's ace 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 three three on the board. So there's five aces in the deck. That's not good. Then the girl gets on the table, and and uh, now you, now you see the nudity. Now there's nudity here. Now she's completely nude and dances in front of him. The other girls are sitting there with, with with bunny masks on. Some of them, and some of them are just sitting with nothing on. Back to the sex scene. Now you see the full the full frontal nudity and everything. I wonder how much she got paid for this. Like, how much did he pay each of these? Like, the girl who does the naked dance and the one who does the sex scene. How much did these girls get paid? How how much was put into this whole production? It looks like a lot of money. This is this is what happens when some of these poker players have too much money. They they do things like this. I will say no poker player has ever done anything like this before. With all the stupid videos Helmuth has made, never done anything like this. Thank God. Now the girls... Oh, now see that? Now they're doing the French kissing where they actually have their tongues out. And they're touching tongues and he's doing the deep French kissing. At least he got some action out of this. Now there's the shots of this girl nude with with poker chips over her nipples. <laughs> oh wow! Then he's a, he's grabbing the, the in bed. He's grabbing the girl's ass and kind of spreading it. And wow, pretty explicit video here. Now it looks like she's riding him. I really encourage everybody to go check this thing out. 
now. They're, it looks like they, they just finished having sex. They're lying in bed holding each other, and cards and chips are on the table, and that's it. That's it. So he, he I, I guess both of these came out. Let me see what this says here. It says, Music Toutant Distor. That's T-O-U-T-A-N-T Distor, I guess is the name of the song. The player at Jungleman Dan Poker. Video by Sasha Tikhomirov. Producer Vitaly Gretchen. For business, and then you had, you can write to this... Uh, Guy who made the video to, to comedy productions at gmail dot com, huh? Like, what motivated him to do this though? A lot of money was put into this. A lot of girls were hired. He had some simulated—I I assume simulated—sex scene. Fortunately, we don't get to see his dick. That, that's that's the silver lining to this whole thing. You don't you don't see di- uh, Jungle Man's dick, but. What is the purpose of all this? Is he trying to be the new Dan Bilzerian? Is this just an ego thing that he wants to show off that he's getting all these hot chicks? Is he trying to become some kind of, some kind of celebrity beyond poker? Which, again, would be kind of like Bilzerian. What is he doing here? There, there was some purpose to spend the money to put all this together. Trader Risky, were you able to watch this whole thing on my screen? It was kind of hard to see. Oh. Uh, all right. Well, but, you, um, yeah, but I mean, I can see it, but it's just small because I'm on my phone. Oh, you're on your phone. Okay. Yeah. So you know, it's uh, it it was it's weird. There, there's some reason to it. I guess we'll see if there's more of these forthcoming, and we'll see if I, I don't think he's ever going to become another Bilzerian. Bilzerian was kind of a unique situation. He had a, kind of a lot of things going on at once, and he had the personality for it. Jungle Man. Whatever you see of him is kind of weird. He, he doesn't quite come off as, as uh, normal enough for everyone to want to emulate. There's just some kind of uh, awkwardness to him in a way, to where you're not going to... Th- this is not going to work as well as it does for Bilzerian for him. But I will say this is getting a lot of props in the poker world. There's, there's a lot of people giving... The, some people are confused by it, saying, what the hell is this? But the, it's also getting some positive reactions, because it's the girls are hot, it's, it's, uh, it's, the production value is very good, uh, even the music isn't bad. Uh <laughs> Someone wrote, if I'm ever in a pot with Jungle Man, after he goes all in, I'm going to seductively slip off my boxers and toss them in the center of the pot, see if I can get away with that like this young lady. I mean, that's, that's, that was my exact thought, too. So so a girl, uh, Veronica, who she's an angry Polak on Twitter. I interact with her sometimes. And she wrote, oh, my God, I need a fucking cigarette after that video. <laughs> Negranu commented, I have no idea what I just watched, but I do know it was awesome. Ha, 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 what the fuck? Someone said, I actually like it. Someone said, that was a weird episode of Poker Hands. Uh, someone wrote, okay, I don't know why the fuck this is a thing, but this is a perfect advertisement for why one should grind to become a high-stakes poker player. So a lot of comments like that, but I'm not really seeing anything uh, critical. I'm seeing confusion. I'm seeing positive comments. I'm not really seeing anything critical. I see Dan is now officially king of the jungle. Uh, I, I really hope Dern never pays him back now. I don't want to ever think about what he'll make ne- next with that extra money. 
Jungle Man has certified the Dambolzarian of Romania with the differences. He really won his millions with poker versus real people, not one heads-up match versus his dad. The, no one commenting about the five aces, unless I, unless I didn't see it clearly, but it really looks like it's five aces. Ryan LaPlante <laughs> posted a gif of Elmo doing like a shrug shoulders thing. Uh, yeah, of course he's doing the shrug shoulders. Ryan LaPlante is gay, so of course he wasn't uh, excited by this. <laughs> Ryan's probably one of the few guys watching this going, no, I don't want to be part of that game. No, I, I don't want any of this. Yeah, this looks gross. Get this away from me. Uh... Pablo Mariz, I don't know who that is, wrote, what's the budget for a four-minute video like this? At least 1K a girl per night, right? And then Shane Schlager said, I'll take the under. And then Pablo wrote back, definitely more for the dealer and the naked girl with the chips on her. So, yeah. See, the budget isn't really just for the girls. There's a lot of production to this. A lot went into this whole thing. There was the sets they rented. There, there was a lot put into this. When, when you see videos like this, it's easy to neglect how much goes into making them. It's just kind of all together, and you just think, "Oh, wow, they made this." Okay, you know, it's, yeah, hired the girls, shot a video. That's that. It's not like that at all. There's a, something that looks well produced. There's usually a lot of money that goes into producing it. Never underestimate production costs for videos that look pretty good. I don't know how much they paid the girls. It's in a foreign country, so maybe they're cheaper there. But uh, now, I, I, even Joey Ingram called out the chips there. He said, uh, "Oh no, someone else said someone else wrote the generic Walmart level chips really bring the scene together." I see Joey's joking that he didn't see any poker chips because he was paying attention to the girls. Okay. <laughs> Phil Ivory, not Phil Ivy, but Phil Ivory, who listens to this show, by the way, wrote, I jerked off six times to this already, and I haven't even made it past the Jungle Man part yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So go check it out. It's on it's on Joey's Twitter. I'm not sure where Jungle Man posted it, but very odd thing. Very, very odd thing. He definitely has one up Negranu. Negranu recently posted a picture of himself at his pool with like a heart on his pants, either a heart on or a fake heart. On. He may have stuffed his pants. I don't know. He was trying to, he, Negrano was trying to post a picture through his shorts that made it look like his dick was big, but who knows what the truth was there. <laughs> I, I don't even want to think about it, but he posted that to Instagram. Like it was just no big deal. Like he's just posting a picture of himself by the pool, but it was definitely to try to show off his dick and trying to show that his dick is big. So I, I think that, Jungle Man outdid him. I really do. 775-FRAUD-55. 775-372-8355 is the number to the show. Ronnie Barda is someone who really doesn't get involved in very much poker drama. He's someone who has managed to stay well-liked in poker for quite some time. And he tends to stay away from controversy. Believe it or not, Ronnie Barda was kind of friendly with Brian Mike on at one point. 
before he was well known. He meaning Ronnie. So um, when Ronnie was friends with Brian Mikon, he was kind of just uh, a nobody in poker who thought Mikon was the big name. And I didn't know Ronnie directly, but Ronnie knew that he knew of me. He knew I was friends with Mikon. And the, the first time I sat with Ronnie, by this point, he had become a bigger name in poker. But uh, he knew more about me than I expected him to know. And he knew about our show, and he listened to our show, and like I, I, I was surprised he knew this much. And he told me that he was friends with Mike on, you know, back when he was kind of newer to poker. And that, but he, I guess he hadn't talked to Mike on much because this was a few years after Mike on and I had our falling out, and, and Ronnie hadn't heard about it. He was asking, "How's Mike on? What's he doing these days?" And I'm like, uh, I haven't been friends with him for a while. We don't like each other anymore. And he's like, oh, man, I'm sorry. And I'm like, no, no, don't be sorry. But it's just it's what happened. It was years ago. It's no big deal. But uh, anyway, in my interactions with him, I've, I've said before on this show that up until last year, just like every year I was getting him several times during the World Series, which was weird because I don't play that many events. And it just seemed like every time he either is at my initial table or I moved to his table or he's moved to my table. And just, I got him so often. And... This is someone you don't want to get off, and he's a good player. And, like, like of all people to keep getting, I'm getting him. And I started joking about him, like, you know, it's, it's, it's got to go up. Every event I've got to get you at some point. Every year I was just getting him over and over and over. Finally, last year, I had no Ronnie Barda until the final event of the year, the 3K limit hold him, I get him. <laughs> so, couldn't get away from him. Even Even last year, I managed to get him once. But he was always very uh, friendly. He was outgoing. He he was positive. He was not uh, ever arrogant or uh, unlikable. He seemed just very pleasant to be around. And if you look at his demeanor in poker, like on his Twitter and just at the table, he, he's very well-liked. He's known as just a, a friendly, nice guy. And I, I don't know if this is really him or if it's an act he puts on. I don't, I don't know, but it, uh, I'll say he's always likable. And whenever I've interacted with him, he's been nice to me. And he's always been nice to have at the table, aside the, from the fact that uh, he's a good player, and I prefer the, there's a fish in his seat instead of him. Uh, it was nice that he said the same thing to me, that he wished... I wasn't showing up at his tables. And he wasn't just saying to be polite. Like, he actually was telling me that, uh, he'd rather that, uh, I stop appearing at his table so much and he gets uh, other people who are better to play with, something like that. Just other people he'd, he'd rather play with, something like that. He put it in a way that it was clear he was talking about just having fish there instead of me. But anyway. Uh, he's been cast on the 39th incarnation of Survivor on CBS. There have been three other poker players who have been on Survivor already. And none of them were all that well received by the general public. Now, I didn't watch any of these. I'm just not a fan of Survivor. I tried to watch, but every time I just get bored. I just can't bring myself to watch these reality shows. But the three who appeared were Garrett Adelstein... John Robert Belland, and Anna Kate. We had Anna Kate on this show shortly before she was going to be on Survivor. 
In fact, she's on the show twice. She was once on the show as a victim of a scam, and she was once on the show about Survivor. Uh, all three of them, as I said, people didn't like that much, but all three of them have more of a controversial personality than Ronnie does. Ronnie, if, if you're on Survivor and you're likable, then the audience is going to like you. If you're on Survivor and you have certain quirks that piss some people off, then, then there's going to be people who don't like you. I'm not, I'm not saying these people were hated. They're, they had fans, all of them, from Survivor. But overall, if you just ignore the poker part and, and look at the overall opinion of them from the Survivor fan base, it, it was more negative than positive in all three cases. Uh Jean Robert was probably the best liked of the three, even though he was seen as kind of lazy on the show. But he was the most liked of the three. He was, he was seen as like fun and easygoing. People in general thought that Garrett was an asshole. <laughs> and uh, Anna, some people dislike her because of her very outspoken conservative politics. She's a, a conservative Christian. She's always tweeting political stuff, and that turns some people off. I have agreed with a lot of her tweets. Not The ones from kind of the religious standpoint, I don't. And she's actually more conservative than I am. But uh, I'm not part of the religious right, obviously being a Jew. But but there's... But, you know, on a whole, with her t- tweets, I, I agree with most of them. She's a lot more pro-Trump than I am, too. But on the whole, I, I usually agree with uh, most of what she writes politically. So, so she and I get along, and we've we've had some private conversations. I don't talk to her all the time, but we've had some private private conversations about politics and stuff like that. But uh, there were some people that it turned off, as, as it always will. If you have a strong political opinion, and if you're in the public eye, you're going to always piss off the other side, whether it's. Uh, person with a strong left-wing opinion, they're going to piss off the right. You have strong right-wing opinions, you're going to piss off the left. So that's uh, so. Th- these are people who all had a reason to be disliked. Garrett came off as an asshole. Anna Kate was, was uh, very strong about her right-wing politics, and, and Jean Robert was, was kind of seen as, as lazy. But Ronnie, from what I've seen of him, I could see him being like a hard worker on the show. I could see him getting along with people. I could see him being not full of drama. I could see him just being likable on the program for the audience. So I could see him really being a fan favorite. We'll see if this occurs. But that's what I think is going to happen. He's 36 years old. He lives in Las Vegas. He is from the Boston area. He is uh, Jewish, I think, even with an Israeli background. I believe his uh, one or both parents are Israeli. I think he even speaks Hebrew. Uh, but I think it, it'll be well received. I'm probably not going to watch it, but I think it'll be well received. Even my dad, who doesn't follow poker that closely, knows who Ronnie Barda is very well because he's at my table so often. So when my dad's following my action, it just seems like Ronnie Bard is always there. So even my dad is aware of who that is. 
Not much more to say about that. I'll kind of mildly follow his progress with probably without really watching it, but you guys are feel free to post about what you see on Survivor when he appears. I'm not even sure when it's going to start. Survivor number 39, look it up on Google. I'm sure you can find it. Let's move on to the Dutch Boyd topic. If anybody wants to call in, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the phone number to this show. Actually making good progress so far on the topics. We have a lot of topics tonight, but we're making fairly good progress, especially since the Annette topic was kind of long. Dutch Boyd was witnessed by a Poker Fraud Alert radio listener dealing poker at the win of all places. He was a dealer of all things at the place. Seeing him at the win is not a big deal. Him dealing at the win is kind of a big deal, given Dutch Boyd's history as a successful poker player. But before we get into that, I want to talk about Dutch Boyd's history. Because there's some interesting things about him. A lot of unique things he's been through. Dutch Boyd, who is 39 years old, or I think 38, I think he's born at the end of 1980. He was a child prodigy. He was a genius as a child. And he graduated high school very early. He... Went through college quickly. I don't know how many years, but he went through very quickly. And he went through law school and completed that. He was one of the youngest graduates ever of law school. I don't know how old he was, but I had heard that about him. He's one of the youngest law school graduates. And he really seemed to have a big future ahead of him. Obviously a very, very bright guy. And was he going to become a famous lawyer? A world-renowned lawyer? No, he ended up going into poker as the poker boom took shape in the early to mid-2000s, and he was in his early to mid-20s. Dutch got into poker, and he found some success. But he didn't just find its success as a player. He actually got the idea to start a poker site. Before Poker Stars before Party Poker, he started a site called Poker Spot, which I never played on. I could have. I was around at that time. But I didn't play on Poker Spot. And he got the idea that Poker Spot could be a huge moneymaker, that online poker was going to be a huge thing. He really was ahead of his time. He actually has been playing online poker, or he started with online poker, in 1998 on the very first site on, on Planet Poker. And he, he was playing a lot of online poker. Despite the fact that he had graduated law school, I don't know if he passed the bar or not, but he was actually working for a department store at night, so I don't know what he was doing. He was playing poker during the day, mostly online. So he and his brother, yes, he has a brother that some people don't realize, but he does have a brother. His real name is Russ Boyd. Russell Aaron Boyd is his real name. And he and his brother decided that they were going to start up an online poker site. So he got together $50,000 
from family and friends. He didn't have much money at the time, but he got $50,000 together and began the site with $50,000, which is pretty impressive. That's, I, I believe it had proprietary software, too. I don't know how they did that for 50 k but they did somehow. I, th- I think he had actually some programming knowledge, too. So he started up Poker Spot with his brother. His brother dated genocide at one time, too, by the way. That's not very well known. And Poker Spot ran into a big controversy. Poker Spot failed due to the poker pro- the, the payment processor stealing all the money. He was one of the very early victims of a shady payment processor. And he didn't really think about that. He just let the pokers, he let the payment processor hold a lot of money, figured everything would be fine, and then the payment processor up and vanished with all his money, with all the money the, the site was holding. So all that money that people thought they had on Poker Spot, they didn't really have because the payment processor had stolen it all. Now, this wasn't directly Dutch's fault. He didn't steal the money himself. He didn't gain from it. He wasn't spending player money like Locke did, like Full Tilt did later on. But he was irresponsible with the player money. He should not have let a payment processor have such control over the financials of the site, as you ended up seeing what happened. So, what did he do? Well, the responsible thing at that point, once you've made the mistake of trusting the payment processor too much and letting them steal everything you have, once that mistake has been made... The proper thing to do is to fess up what happened and apologize to everybody and say, sorry, I we got stolen from. We don't have the money. I didn't gain from it. I have nothing. And sorry. And hopefully we can rebuild. Hopefully, if you guys want to trust me, I'll be more careful next time. And if you guys want to trust me and keep playing and keep depositing, then uh, eventually I'll catch everyone out with the profits we eventually make. That would have been the honest way of doing it. Unfortunately, Dutch, who... I will say was young and immature at the time, so that's uh, you know we weren't talking about a forty-year-old businessman here. We're talking about basically a kid. So he made the bad decision to cover it up, and when people were trying to cash out, he was stalling them. And when people were wondering if they were broke and out of money, he was denying it and encouraged people to keep depositing all the way up until the bitter end. And a lot of people were very angry about this that he had lied about what had happened and was encouraging people to deposit when in reality that he was just doing this to try to get the site back on its feet with other people's money. And that was dishonest and he shouldn't have done it. And that was a big mistake. Dutch also never paid anyone back from what happened here. And I felt that was bad too. I felt that during times that he was doing well in poker, which keep in mind, this is before he blew up huge in poker and, he had a lot of success after this, where at certain points he could have started to pay some people back who got screwed by this. Even though it wasn't his direct fault, he didn't steal the money himself. It was mismanaged, and it got stolen. But he never did that. He kind of just always said, look, someone else stole it. It wasn't me. Not my responsibility. Tough luck. It's it's too bad it happened, but tough luck. Dutch also had some mental problems. And... I think he was able to suppress them and live a normal life up until when Poker Spot failed. And once it failed, he cracked. 
I think it was just the mixture of having existing mental problems and a very stressful situation. And together it caused him to break, to break down and he ended up being committed to an insane asylum in Antigua of all places. That's where he's living, running poker spot. I think his brother actually checked him into the mental hospital. Uh, after poker spot failed, he kept kind of a low profile until the 2003 World Series of Poker main event. The 2003 Poker World Series of Poker main event was the famous main event where Chris Moneymaker was the winner. The main event which propelled poker to become what it was in the 2000s. Well, that and the World Poker Tour showing whole cards. But that was the big World Series that everyone paid attention to. That was the first World Series of Poker that everyone noticed. Had the fairy tale win by Chris Moneymaker. But also doing well in that event was Dutch Boyd, who finished 12th. Now keep in mind that event didn't have anywhere near the number of entrants. I think it had like 730-something people. But still, he finished 12th. It was still a 10K buy-in. Late in the tournament, Dutch Boyd had king-queen, and Chris Moneymaker had pocket threes. And the board was 9-2-5. So obviously Dutch Boy just had overcards. Moneymaker just had the pair of threes unassisted. And when Moneymaker bet out, Dutch Boy went all in. Most people would probably fold there, right? Well, somehow Moneymaker read it correctly. Moneymaker thought a while. And then... Did call. And no king or queen hit the turn or river. And Moneymaker money won a big pot, doubled through Boyd. And Boyd was very, very short-stacked after that and would uh, bust shortly afterwards in 12th place. Dutch said he was surprised that uh, Moneymaker called him with those threes. He thought he was going to lay it down. He didn't know he had threes, but he, he had a feeling that Moneymaker had a hand that wasn't strong enough to call an all-in like that. And he just said it was kind of just bad luck for him that Moneymaker just decided he's going to take a stand there. After Dutch Boyd got attention from that, he got together with some other young poker players, and they called themselves The Crew. And these were guys who also were kind of breaking out as poker players who were getting some notoriety. The crew was, uh, it was always kind of uh, loosely defined of, of who was in the crew. But uh, the crew included uh, Scott Fishman, Joel Bartholdi, uh Brett uh, Youngblood, also known as uh, Gank, and a few others. But uh, it was basically young, brash poker players who were rising up quickly in the ranks of poker. And it got a lot of attention, the crew. However, the mental problems that he was experiencing were 
coming back. And uh, he was really starting to have issues with living through them. And I met him while he was having these mental problems, and he was very difficult to deal with. He, he just came off as like a crazy person. He was just very unpredictable, very strange. Just yeah, I just didn't like being around him. He also was abusing drugs during some of these times while he was experiencing these mental problems. As you might imagine, uh, he wasn't the most responsible with his bankroll during this era, despite having some, uh, some continued tournament success during that. For example, in 2006, he won the shorthanded No Limit Hold'em event, which is pretty tough. The $2,500 shorthanded uh, No Limit Hold'em, he won that. He won a bracelet, his first one, for 475000 Four years later, in 2010, he won the $2,500 six-handed limit hold'em event for uh, 234000 The guy he beat heads up actually put a horrible beat on me at, at, and, and basically crippled me. I, I was going to win a massive pop, but the guy put a, mass, a, a terrible beat on me with 6-2 suited and then just... Ran like God the whole event until he ran it to Dutch, I guess, and finished second. But Dutch won that one. He also won four years later again the 1K limit hold'em, uh, 1K no limit hold'em for 288,000. He would have thought he'd keep up the pattern last year and win uh, the 2018 uh, bracelet then, but he didn't. He still has three bracelets, pretty good. He also was sued by Mason Malmuth. Dutch Boyd at one point had cyber squatted a whole lot of a lot of uh, sites he thought that others would want to buy that things that were associated with them. He either he grabbed some expired domains of people who had used these domains before or he would grab similar domains or domains that he thought people would want that haven't registered yet. I mentioned on this show last year that a guy named Eric Parkinson cyber-squatted my domain, ToddWoodTellUs.com, right after I won my bracelet. And I actually put in an arbitration claim against Eric Parkinson. We we battled back and forth, and I lost on a technicality. And uh, I really didn't like the guy. And of all things, a guy presented himself to me at the Rio front desk he was another customer. He didn't work there. Last year at the World Series, and it, it was Eric Parkinson. And after talking to me like he's just a fan of the radio, and he did listen to the radio. He knew a lot of details about the show, including a recent show he had done. He uh, he showed me his, his license and then walked away. And it said Eric Parkinson. So Eric Parkinson, who squatted my domain back in 2005, listens to this show. Pretty amazing. But anyway, uh, Dutch Boy was another cyber squatter. And Dutch Boyd uh, cyber-squatted 2plus2poker.com. Not 2plus2.com, which is the 2plus2 site, but 2plus2poker.com, hoping that people intending to try to go to 2plus2 would accidentally type in 2plus2poker, because it's 2plus2 about poker, you know, 2plus2poker.com. And then they, they got Dutch's site instead. So this way, Dutch was getting free traffic that way. As you might imagine, someone like Mason wasn't going to take that. 
and Mason sued him. Uh, what Dutch Boyd wrote in response to the lawsuit was that uh, the lawsuit is without merit and is designed to encourage me, that is Boyd, to pay him, Malmuth, uh, or, or face a substantial legal bills defending myself. So, 2 plus 2 put in a motion for partial summary judgment, which was granted in 2012, and statutory damages were awarded of uh, $25,000 plus attorney's fees and costs of uh, $34,000. So basically $59,000 was owed to Mason. And Mason actually collected it from him. When he uh, hit a score at the World Series. So Mason got the money. Dutch also put an apology. He wrote an apology to Mason that Mason pinned up on the top of the forum for like a year or so, which is very petty. I never understood the reason for that apology. Maybe Dutch got some of the money back or something, or Dutch didn't have to pay as much if he put that apology up. But Mason was very proud of the apology letter. I think he pinned it up there for two years, actually. And it it looked pretty bad. People actually were criticizing Mason for it, that he was being a petty jerk about the whole thing, which he was. I don't blame Mason for suing him over the cyber-squatting. I don't like cyber squatting. I think it's dishonest. I think it's trying to profit off of others' accomplishments and hold domains hostage that they should be rightfully entitled to, well, even if it's not legally, but morally they should. So I'm, I'm not a fan of cyber squatters or cyber squatting. There was a poker photographer, I forget his name, but this guy used to go around and just take tons of pictures, good pictures of, of, of poker events. I forgot the guy's name, but uh, his domain expired and Dutch grabbed it, and then Dutch squeezed money out of him, like 1500 bucks, something crappy like that, and the guy told me about it, and... I thought, oh, that's kind of shitty. So Dutch hasn't exactly been an angel. But here's some good things about Dutch, aside from his poker success and his accomplishments in school early on, the obvious intellect that required. Dutch did get medicated. And when I saw him again, after he was on medication, he was much, much more likable. I actually liked Dutch at that point. I changed my opinion a lot once he was on medication for the mental illness he had. I don't know exactly what it was. By the way, when he was at his worst point or among his worst point during the mental illness, he actually once asked someone, I forgot who it was, but this people like talking about this on Neverwin Poker back then. He once asked if anyone has ever seen a man drink his own piss before. <laughs> and he was... He was claiming he was going to do it. I don't think he actually did it, but he was saying he's going to drink his own piss. And he said this somewhere publicly. I don't remember the whole story, but people thought this was funny. But uh, he did a lot of he did and said a lot of weird things until he got medicated, and then he acted much more normally. He's actually likable when he's on his medication. In March of 2013, he announced that he was going to write a book called Poker Tilt, and then he began a crowdfunding effort on Kickstarter. And for a long time, there seemed to be no updates, and it looked like he just took the money and ran. But he didn't. He actually produced the book. And the book 
was actually good. I didn't read. I've read parts of it. I don't have it. I've read parts of it on what's available for free through Google. But uh, it's actually pretty good from what I've read, and it, it was very well received. People thought it was frank. It was honest. It was uh, they enjoyed the tone in which he wrote. It was interesting. He didn't try to make himself seem like a saint. He admitted his faults and mistakes. So it was a. Uh, it was seen as pretty introspective and interesting, and, and people enjoyed it. So people liked the Poker Tilt book, and even though he took a little longer than he said, it turned out he didn't run off with the money that people donated through Kickstarter. He actually he produced the book as promised, and it was a well-liked book. He has had a girlfriend for a while named Michelle, and she actually registered the Twitter handle first, that's 1ST. She's actually twitter.com slash first, not F-I-R-S-T, but 1ST. So she must have had that account very early. She must have gotten on Twitter way before most people did. But if you want to see her, that's her Twitter account. He lives with her. They've been together a long time. And she's been with him for a while during better times and worse times. She lists herself as entertainer, skeptic, artist, and gamer. She put engaged to Dutch Boyd. She follows me, by the way. I don't believe I've ever met her, but she follows me. They've been together for a while. But okay, so I've told you a lot about Dutch Boyd. You can... Google him if you want to see more of this. Uh, oh, people, some people are saying that the show's cutting out. I hope it's not. hope it's just one guy. But you may be wondering... Well, I think I already told you why. You may not, you're probably not wondering. But anyway, this is all leading up to the story that's about something current. And that is the Dutch Boyd... He's no longer a high-stakes tournament player. Maybe he'll get staked for some World Series events. But Dutch Boyd now, what he does on a daily basis, is not what you would have expected back in the days of the crew, or even after the crew, or even as recently as 2014 when he won his last bracelet, or even as recently as, well, this year. Dutch Boyd is now a poker dealer at the win. You can see a picture of him dealing. If you go to Poker Fraud Alert, if you go to the Flying Stupidity Forum, I may move it to the Poker, either either in Flying Stupidity or the Poker Community Discussion Forum. I may move it. But either way, you can see a picture of him dealing. This is a Poker Fraud Alert exclusive because this picture was sent to me by a listener to the show who I don't believe has posted it anywhere else. In fact, I'm the one who posted it. He sent it to me. This is the commentary from the person who he dealt to at the win. To his credit, he was actually an excellent dealer, very detail-oriented, fast and accurate reader of hands at showdown, made eye contact with every player when, when they tipped, and made sure to thank them in a more personable way than is normal for other dealers. When he was pushed, meaning when his uh, shift at the table ended, and was on break, I saw him tidying up around the tables on his way out the room was very impressed with his ability and apparent work ethic. Well, that's a better description of any deal I've ever heard. He's even cleaning up the poker room on his way out. Wow. And he's very gracious about the tips and thanking people and making eye contact and 
fast and accurate and very good at reading the hands at showdown. Well, what more could he ask for? He's doing a great job. But that doesn't surprise me. See, that's, that's the thing with Dutch. Like, he produced a good book. And when he wants to be likable, he can be. He can be very likable when he wants to be. And obviously he was very successful in school when he got through that at such a young age and completed law school as one of the youngest people ever to do so. So, like, there, he's not really someone who's lazy. Like, he's someone who, who, if he puts his focus into it, can do a lot of things well. So it's not even surprising to me that he does this. And, and look, you can give him credit that instead of just trying to get stakes, because people still know his name, people know he's won three bracelets, including one as recently as four years ago, or five years ago now, uh, he could easily get people backing him. There's no question he can get people backing him. He could easily show up on Tasty Steaks or You Steak or one of those sites and, and get a lot of people buying him in. He might do that too, but he's one of those guys who probably could get by without having a job and just live off his past reputation and have himself endlessly backed by different people in poker. There's many people with much lesser reputations than him who do that. And he's choosing not to. He actually went and got a real job and is actually putting out a lot of effort at that job. He's not just going through the motions. He seems to be one of the best dealers there. So good for him. Like I, I'm going to give him credit. Like I, Your first reaction might be, oh, I'm going to laugh at this. I'm going to laugh at the misfortune of the guy with the three bracelets who's, who's so irresponsible that now he's stuck being a dealer. But how about looking at it the other way? That he actually went to go get a real job instead of trying to sponge off others to revive his career. I think there's something noble about that, right? In a November 2018 interview with SoMuchPoker.com, I've never heard of them before, but this is where the interview was, he indicated that he had auditioned to become a win dealer before. They asked him about that. You did many other things in poker than just playing, writing, twitching, vlogs, etc. Did you ever consider not working in the poker industry? He said, no, but I might. I'd like to do other stuff in the industry. I've also done coaching before, and one time I auditioned at the win to deal. You know it's good money. When you look at some of the most successful poker players, they all went to the other side of the box, like Bobby Baldwin or Chip Reese. I feel like I don't want my Wikipedia to just be like Dutch boy, 1980 to 2030, nothing except poker. Well, something at the end there is also kind of notable. When he said 1980 to 2030, he's talking about like people are going to read about this after he died, that he was born in 1980 and died in 2030. That's only being 50 years old. In fact, he was born at the end of 1980, so he wouldn't even be 50. He'd probably be 49. Does he really think he's going to die at age 49? It's kind of a weird thing to say. Strangely enough, that Neverwin said this many years ago to me that he's not going to live till 50. You really have to screw up to not live to 50, you know, aside from being a victim of violence or an accident or some sort of fluke medical problem. For the most part, if you don't do it to yourself, or and if you're not the unfortunate victim of an accident of some sort, you're usually living past 50. Most human beings don't die before 50. Now, yes, he did abuse drugs in the past and all that, but he's, you know, he's healthy enough to have a job right now, seemingly walk around normally, and I, I have to imagine he's not dying, so. 
it's kind of funny that he pictures himself dead by 2030. So, as I mentioned, somebody else texted me earlier that they had seen him dealing before, which is very possible. I, I wonder if he's trying to make money to buy himself into some World Series events. Not much more to say there, but I guess if you want to meet your Dutch boy, you can always uh, go to the win and probably find him dealing to you. It is kind of weird. I will say it is kind of weird, someone who's as well-known as Dutch, that they're dealing poker to you. It is kind of weird. A lot of players kind of just have the idea, like, the, the players are the ones who are playing, and the dealers are the ones who are, this is just their job, and they, uh, some, it's kind of assumed sometimes that they can't really afford to play, except for, like, above low limits. And it's kind of weird that Dutch, who's this well-known poker player, is dealing to you. But, you know, it shows that dealers come from all walks of life and dealing for many different reasons, and many of them actually play poker. And some are good, some aren't. Some people have wondered what has happened to the other members of the crew. Uh, Brett Youngblood, a.k.a. Gank, I know he went broke. And he was very big into that whole Occupy Wall Street movement, except he was doing it from Las Vegas. There was actually a Las Vegas branch of that that didn't really make very much noise, but he was part of that. Um, He had a girlfriend who was also into that. I don't think it's where he met her. This was a girl who had dated a few other guys in poker. She wasn't well-known or anything. That's why I'm not even going to say her name, but uh, pretty girl. She, uh, but she was with him. She also did the Occupy stuff with him. And right around then, he was a lock pro. And I'm talking about not Dutch now. I'm talking about Gank, Brett Youngblood. He was a lock pro, and when Locke clearly wasn't paying people, uh, his girlfriend was a little bit upset about this. Gank's girlfriend did not like the fact that Gank was being a hypocrite. How do you go and protest about the big corporations and, and, and their abuse of the average person and how they're ripping everyone off and, and do these Occupy Wall Street demonstrations and then rep a poker company that's ripping people off. It doesn't make any sense. That was my criticism of Perlot Friedman, who did the same thing when he repped UB. So his his girlfriend actually wasn't that happy about this. They actually had fights about this. Gank and, and his then-girlfriend. They're not together anymore. But... Uh, Gank apparently was so broke that he, he stuck with them. And I know it was killing him because I know Gank was actually a, a, a fairly principled guy. And he was he was pretty outspoken about the UB stuff. And I, I know he really, you know, Gank really felt strongly about these things. He wasn't doing the Occupy Wall Street stuff because he was trying to just join the crowd or or just follow a fad. He really felt strongly about it. But, you know, when he became broke, that was the only way he could stay in action. He kind of sold out to lock poker at first he just signed as a pro not realizing what they were but then when it became clear what they were he didn't want to leave and that actually had some caused some fights between him and his girlfriend it was like what the hell you know what do you really stand for if you're staying here 
Eventually, Gank did the right thing and quit. Unlike Annette Oberstadt, who had to be fired by Locke at the very bitter end, uh, Gank actually was one of the few who quit and made a public statement that he didn't agree with the way Locke was handling these things and thought they might be broke, and he you know, he basically put out a statement apologizing to the community for promoting them, which was good, but it was a little bit too late, though. And I, ha- I had been asking Gank. He wasn't responding to me, but I was asking him on social media in public, saying, what's going on, Gank? Why don't, why don't you leave? <laughs> this doesn't seem like you. I haven't heard much of what's happened to him recently. He was close friends with Mike on at one point. I used to see him over at Micon's apartment when I would go over there a lot. Uh, I always got along with him fairly well. Um, he probably wasn't happy with me calling him out about the lock stuff. We never really talked directly about that. Uh, Scott Fishman, I always called him the Seth Green of poker because he was short, he was Jewish, and he would take any part given to him for a small amount of money. He was not above anything. And that's what Seth Green basically does in the acting world. You, you offer Seth Green a small amount of money to appear in something, he will. Even if it has no prestige and if he's not making much money, he'll, he'll appear in it. Uh, Scott Fishman was just like that. You would see things like a $40 buy-in tournament featuring Scott Fishman. And they would buy him in the $40 in exchange for being able to promote his name being part of it. Like that he was there. He would really do that. And he did so many of these. I saw his name everywhere. Scott Fishman this, Scott Fishman that. And it was always for like little things where you could tell he was getting some kind of free buy-in or some like very small amount of compensation for his name being used. Uh, not surprisingly, Scott Fishman was another degenerate and he also went broke. I don't know where he is now. In my personal experiences with Scott Fishman, he was a nice guy. Not really anything bad to say about him. I just thought it was funny how much he was appearing all over the place at these like micro-tournaments. Joe Bartholdi, I, I didn't really know very well, and I didn't really keep much track of him, so I can't really comment there. Anyway, let's move on. Let's see, do we have any more drama, or is that it? Are we drama-free? Are we at least completed? Yeah, we're, we're done with the drama. If you're listening for the drama, you can turn it off now. That's it. This isn't really drama. It's just kind of gossip. And and this site will always report things like that. Some other sites and poker news organizations, they, they don't think reporting Dutch Boyd being a poker dealer is, is newsworthy. I, I do. I think you want to know about it. I think you want to hear about it. Well, Ryan Reese made a great call that I think is worth talking about. I don't like talking about poker hands on this show. I don't talk much about poker tournaments on this show. I don't say, oh, well, this person just won this tournament and you know, they won the bracelet here, they won this much here. I only talk about that when it has to do with a, a different story where that's just a side detail to it. I don't do much poker strategy talk on this show or poker results talk on this show. There's plenty of other shows that do that type of thing. Ryan Reese won the 2013 Main event, I think he was only 21 at the time. Pretty impressive. He was at the European Poker Tour Monte Carlo main event. And he was uh, pretty deep. I think he was at the final table. And he was in the big blind with a whopping 10-deuce offsuit. 
unfortunately for him, it folded around, and Manig Loser, I'm not even kidding, that's the guy's name, Manig Loser, like a Manic Loser, this is Manig, M-A-N-I-G, Loser, L-O-E-S-E-R. I know, I know the guy's foreign, I think he's German or something, but still, wouldn't you change your name at that point if you're going to be a, a well-known poker player? You don't want to be the Manic Loser, do you? But the Manic Loser had even a worse hand than Reese did in the small blind. He had six deuce offsuit, the second worst hand in poker. So the manic loser had the six deuce. Now, if I were him, I wouldn't have completed the small blind. I would have just tossed it. I would have just given Ryan Reese the walk. I mean, if, if you can't give a walk with six deuce offsuit, what do you ever give it with? Does, does the manic loser just never give a walk? He must not. I give walk. If I'm dealt... If it's folded to me in the small blind, I get 60s offsuit. I guarantee I'm folding. There's there's a, there's a tip for you if you play against me in No Limit Hold'em. I'm, I'm always tossing the 60s offsuit from the small blind. But the Manic Loser didn't, and he completed. Ryan Reese checked with his 10 deuce. And the board came Jack 9-8. I don't quite understand what happened next. The Manic Loser checked which makes sense. He's probably just going to check and give up. And I'm surprised Reese didn't bet there. I would have bet there. Now, Reese was short-stacked. He had 950 or 980k left. But the blinds were 100k, 200k. So he only had five blinds behind him. He had one blind that was already in the pot and then five blinds behind him. That's it. 980k sounds like a lot, but he had five blinds. But I, I would have either shoved or or bet right there, because uh, at worst you get called and you have an open-ended trade draw. And you're not even trying to induce action necessarily because you don't have a hand that's showdown. So even if the guy... F- Fires in a bluff, you still only have 10 high, you may lose anyway. Like, let's, let's say the manic loser had king four offsuit and, and then fired in a bluff and you call. If neither of you improve, then the, the king four offsuit beats you even with nothing. So that's why I would have bet. But you know, who am I to question this? I wasn't at the final table of the EPT. I didn't win the 2013 main event. So, so you know, I'm, I'm not going to criticize Reese here too much. But anyway, they checked. So it went check, check on the flop. Turn, another jack. Check, check again. River, another nine. So it's jack, nine, eight, jack, nine. The Manic Loser went all in. The Manic Loser had a bigger stack than Reese did. So basically, he was all in for 980k. Not all in. He, he was putting in 980k. Obviously, with six high, he's going to lose the hand if he gets called. But he's hoping to just take down the pot. Reese was thinking, and amazingly, after using what's known as a time extension chip, because it's a, you're on a clock there and you can actually uh, use a chip to give yourself a, an extension to the time, he threw out a time extension chip, thought further, and then actually called with the 10 high on the river. So there's no further drawing to be done. That was it. He was he was done. He had 10 high. He called. The Manic Loser showed 6-deuce offsuit. Reese showed 10-deuce offsuit. 10 high beat 6 high. 
and Reese doubled up. Amazing. However, Reese ended up finishing fourth. He got almost $300,000 for doing so. The Manic Loser ended up winning the event anyway, despite that moment. He won the event for $676,000. Fintan Hand, who is commentating, who's commentating and is also a professional poker player himself, said it was one of the sickest calls ever. That was an excellent call, and uh, Reese reasoned it out. It took a while for him to do, and it really took a while because this wasn't like a cash hand. Here he was, he, he was calling off his final chips with 10 high. That takes balls to do. Deep in an event. It's not even like he's, he's taking a shot early to call off a bluff, and uh, if, if he's out, he's out. This is deep in an event. Very deep in an event. And he's going to... Imagine going out, calling off all your chips with 10 high? Let, let's say the manic loser flopped a boat or something and just slow-played it and then went all in on, on the river. Let's say he just had a jack. Let's say whatever it was, he went all in. Let's say the Manic Loser only had ace high and went all in hoping maybe Reese will call him with king high. And then Reese called with the 10 high and busted. People would be going off about this, about what a fish he is, how terrible he is, what happened to him. And instead, it was seen as the sickest call of all time because he was correct. But he reasoned it out and figured out that there's a decent chance he was good. Now, I can't tell you what was in Ryan Reese's head, but I'll take a guess. The board of Jack-9-8, which, by the way, started off with two diamonds, is a very tough board to check into a short stack. And that's what Reese was. Reese was a short stack with five blinds. Basically, once money gets put in the pot, then it's going to go all in. So to check that you're really giving a lot of hands a chance to catch up to you for free. And you may not want to do that. So, For example, let's say Reese had queen four offsuit. And let's say, let's even say the manic loser flopped a set of jacks. Let's say he, for whatever reason, he just completed the, from the small with pocket jacks. Then Reese checked and the board's jack nine eight. So let's say, let's say he has a top set of jacks. And Reese has queen four. The problem is, um, if you just check and give him a chance to get there for free, then you're you're really costing yourself the uh, chips potentially to check both streets. I can see checking the flop to try to induce a bluff, but uh, to check the flop and the turn, I guess if he had pocket jacks or quads at that point. But uh, I'm still if he, if he has a fairly strong hand or even a decent hand, you're giving a lot of ways to get caught. And when the person on the big blind only has five blinds left, they will put in their chips even if they don't have very much. So you don't have to really trap them. Like if Reese flopped an eight there and you put it in, he's probably calling. Just with an eight. Let's say let's say he had eight five offsuit. He's probably calling with that bottom pair eight with his final five blinds. So you don't even if you flopped a monster, you don't have to trap very much. You can try a check all in raise or a, a check all in call uh, on the flop, 
hoping that maybe they'll try to stab at you when they don't have anything and then pot commit themselves. But to check both streets on a board like that, jack nine, eight, two diamonds, and then another jack on the turn, you're just really opening yourself up to get screwed where the person will only bet if they hit something. There's so many ways someone can hit something with that board. It's not like the board is, is A6-2. And you're thinking, well, there's a good chance they missed this. And you're, you're waiting for them to get a piece of it so you can get all their chips. Here, you don't want to give them a lot of free cards if you've hit it. Because someone with five blinds is going to call off so easily. They don't need to hit a big piece of it. So I'm sure that's what Reese is thinking about. What hands would be checking down like this on a board like Jack-9, A, Jack-9 with two diamonds? What? Why would this bigger stack be so afraid of my five blinds on a board like that? Why is he not putting chips in on a board like that, knowing I'm going to call with any with any semblance of a draw, without any, with bottom pair? He knows I'm going to call my five, final five blinds with it, so why not? Why isn't he putting the chips in if he knows I'm going to call with so many different hands here? Doesn't he want the action if he's probably ahead? And even if he's not ahead, if I flop something good, uh, he's going to call if he's if he has some piece of it. So, like, there's no point not to put chips in there. There's no trapping to be done, and you don't want to let free cards run off on a board like that. He must have been thinking this. So he must be thinking, if it's check, 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 and since he completed from the small blind, that also brings down the range of hands that he could have that makes it much more likely he holds trash. Plus, what if he completed with something like pocket sixes or pocket fives? That's also dead, too. Because of the jack nine, jack nine on the board. So any pocket pair that's lower than eights is also behind him now. Twos through sevens is is actually behind him and is ten high. So he probably reasoned, I don't think that the manic loser has an eight. When eight doesn't matter, when an eight's been counterfeited. So I don't think the manic loser has a jack, a nine... A straight. And I don't think he's got a queen, a king, or an ace. He probably also thought that if the Manic Loser had an ace and had ace high on that board of ace, jack, nine, eight, jack, nine, that maybe he'd check again and hope that he gets bluffed into. Maybe he'd think that if he does go all in with an ace, that, that Reese would fold anything else that couldn't be beat. So he's trying to either induce a bluff or just might as well just see you go check, check if he wouldn't call a bet anyway. So he's probably thinking that there's so many different ways that the manic loser could actually have a worse hand than him with the way the action went down. And that's what good players do. Good players actually will reason all that out and go, yes, I'm holding 10 high here. Yes, I have to call off all my chips with 10 high. But, but truthfully, there's not that many hands he could have here that are ahead of 10 high, and a lot of them that could be behind. That's why he did it. So a very good reasoning process by him. So, great job. The only time I ever, I've ever done anything like this wasn't in a tournament. 
Actually, that's not true. I once did it at a commerce tournament. The economist tournament I won in 2008. You'll see I, I have a first place in 2008 at No Limit Tournament. I actually made a big call all in with pocket fours unassisted on the river because I believed the person had ace king and I was right the way the hand went down. In a cash game once in party poker, this is limit hold'em, so it's very different, but in a cash game once in limit hold'em, in a multi-way pot on the river, I had jack high. Someone bet into me, and I actually raised them for value with jack high. I actually believed I had the better hand and they may call me, and they did call me and they had 10 high and I beat them. I, I, I've made calls before with, with 10 high before and been right, but never in a spot like that. I mean, I, I have to admit I would have laid it down. Even reasoning there's a good chance he could have something below that. I mean, to put all my chips in in that spot with 10 high, I'd say, nah, I'm just going to... I could be right here that he could be behind me, but I'm not, I'm not going out this way. And I would have tossed it. So good for Ryan Reese. He did a great job with that call, and uh, I give him credit. I would have put in the chips on the flop. I guess I would have made. I would have won the hand also, but I would not have won as much because I wouldn't have gotten that additional 980k that was put in at the end. I would have just gone all in on the flop. The World Series of Poker. I've gotten some update about. The tournament wire account you can get. If you mentioned, if you remember last week, I talked about the fact that you can wire money to the World Series for the first time ever and have them hold the money for you in an account that you can use to register for tournaments, which means you don't have to drag a ton of cash to Las Vegas to buy into these tournaments. And furthermore, you can buy in through your phone or through the computer and then go print out your seat ticket at a kiosk instead of having to go to the cage or to, to I shouldn't say the cage, but the, to the cashier to buy in and have to stand in line. Some people were very excited about this. Even I was excited about this. But the announcement did not contain anything about fees, and I got concerned I said, I don't think there's fees, because they mentioned the fees for the credit card buy-in you could do. That was pretty obvious, but I said, they, they mentioned the fees for the credit card they didn't mention for this. So is it possible there's no fees? And if there is, is it like a one-time fee to wire in, and is that it? Or do they really charge per tournament? This is very important to me, as you might guess. I think you know why. So, you know me, I'm not going to pay fees. I'm not going to pay $3 to register for a tournament when I just have to stroll my ass down to the World Series of Poker cashier and hand them the cash and have them register for me and I save the 3 bucks. I'm just not doing it. I mean, yeah, if I have to drive a ways to get there, but if I'm staying in the Rio and I just have to walk over there and do it, or if I can just register the day of the tournament without a lot of hassle... Especially because I'm a diamond and I don't have a big long line there. He's a special room I can use. Why would I pay $3 per tournament? And that was the rumor. That was $3 per tournament. 
That's what Alan Kessler said. He's usually not wrong with these things. Well, it turns out that, yes, it is $3 per tournament to use that account. I'm not sure if there's any cost to establish it, but yes, every time you use that account to buy into a tournament, it's $3. And there's people saying, oh, no big deal. So, so it saves you the trouble of walking over there and standing in line. And isn't your time worth that? Why don't you just pay the $3? It's a tiny percentage of the buy-ins. It's a flat fee. Look, look for the 10K buy-in events. Look what a tiny percentage that is. That's true. It is. But still... I find it to be very petty and very annoying. Now, the response to this from the World Series is that, look, we're not making this money. This is actually all being handled by Bravo, which is a company that uh, they, they they handle a lot of the poker lists at cash games. They, they do a lot of that type of stuff. So I, I guess they're managing this now, too. So Bravo, this is their fee. And the World Series is simply passing on the Bravo fee to you. They're not making money on this. And they're saying, well, why should we eat the Bravo fee? Well, here's why you should eat the Bravo fee. First of all, you make a lot of money from each person entering. You, you charge a, enough rake to where you can each eat this $3. Second, it saves you people standing in line. It, it frees up your employees to speed up lines and maybe to not even have to hire as many people to work there. So yes, it saves you guys money to have people registering online with existing money that you guys having have sitting there. So even if you don't want to manage it yourself, even if you say, look, we're, we don't feel like building this whole system. It's not worth it to us. So we're just going to outsource it to Bravo, who's going to charge us $3 per tournament to do. Okay. How about just eating the $3? How about you guys pay the $3? How about those who choose to use this, you will make $3 less. Not the end of the world, Caesars. This is what's called not passing every cost of doing business to the customer. This happens every day in business. For example, when I go to a restaurant, if I pay by credit card, it costs the money. They have to pay a certain percentage of the transaction plus a a flat fee to process my credit card transaction. And yet if I have a $60 meal, I pay the same $60 on my credit card as I would pay cash. I just have to pay $60 in whatever way they accept. And yet they make more money if I pay them cash. So they could charge me a credit card fee. They could say, if you're going to pay with a credit card, it'll be 3% extra. But they don't because that's part of the cost of doing business. And they know that accepting credit cards and not charging a fee attracts more customers. So sometimes it's okay to eat a charge that is charged to your business by a third party that you're contracting with because it will make your business more appealing for customers. And I think customers would really like this. I think people will really enjoy using this, both recreational players and pros. I think people will love the idea of being able to wire the money to Las Vegas, especially ones coming from out of the area, and then just draw from that account to play tournaments. I think it's a great idea. You just don't have to pass on every fee. Yes, I know you're not making money from it, that $3, but how about you just eat $3? Do you have to be reimbursed everything? 
Let me ask you something, World Series of Poker. Are you going to start charging me to use the bathroom too? And say that, well, we don't make any money from the bathroom. We're just charging you the costs of the, the water that flushes from the toilet and the soap and the paper towels and the salary for the janitors. And look, some people go to the bathroom more than others. So why should those of you who might have uh, irritable bowel syndrome or incontinence or just people who drink a lot of coffee before they play and it runs right through them, why should they be bringing up the costs of maintaining the bathrooms? Shouldn't they be burdening... Shouldn't the burden be on them to pay the cost? So we're going to start instituting a bathroom charge. And if you if you don't want to pay the bathroom charge, just don't go to the bathroom here. Either just don't go here and hold it or uh, go somewhere else, pee in the bushes somewhere. Just don't use our bathrooms if you don't want to pay. But no, that's just the part of the cost of doing business. I could extend this to so many different things. So yeah, eat the damn $3. I think it's very tacky. It's tacky, and I also just don't like the idea of it. I would rather take a walk over there and pay the th- and save the three bucks, especially because I'm over there all the time anyway. What I usually do is, if if I'm completing an event where I'm I'm out, then I will go buy into the next tournament I'm going to play while I'm over there. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Other times I just walk over there and do it. It's not a terrible walk from the Rio. The only time it's a pain in the ass is if I'm staying somewhere else. I'm not staying in the Rio. But then I can still just show up a little bit early and buy into the tournament. I realize I have a diamond card. It's easier for me than others. But this is really dumb. So, lesson to World Series. Stop trying to pass on every damn charge that others charge you. Just make it good for the customer. You don't have to pass on every chart. Too much nickel and diming at Caesars in general. Well, this brings me to my next topic about nickel and diming. Resort fees. They've been going up again. They are rising. Last year I did a topic just like this. Last year I mentioned that the resort fees increased at a lot of different properties around Las Vegas from 2017 to 2018. So what about from 2018 to 2019? I'm sure you're shocked that they have increased once again. Believe it or not, the group that increased the lease were Caesars Properties. Caesars Properties only increased... One resort fee, and that was the Rio. They went from 30 to 32. The rest of them have stayed the same, though they are pretty high. Caesars Palace and the Nobu Hotel within Caesars Palace are $39. The Cromwell, Paris, and Planet Hollywood are all $37. Bally's, Flamingo, Harris, The Link are all $35. And the Rio is $32. If you are a Diamond or Seven Stars member, you don't pay resort fees. So that's the only type of property where that exists, where a certain tier level just gets you out of resort fees, to my knowledge. Additionally, if you're Platinum, Diamond, or Seven Stars, you also get out of parking charges. 
which I'll talk about shortly. This is at Caesars Properties only. MGM has increased a number of resort fees. The highest ones stay the same. The $39 resort fee, which is the same what Caesars is charging. The $39 resort fees at MGM Properties are for Aria, Bellagio, Vidara, and the Four Seasons. Those are their best properties, of course. Then there's the next tier of properties, which have all gone up from 35 to 37. So these are all 37 now. Delano, MGM Grand, Mirage, Mandalay Bay. By the way, Delano and Mandalay Bay are the same property. New York, New York, and Park MGM Nomad, which are which is the former Monte Carlo. These are all 37. They used to be 35. The These two lower-tier properties in the MGM Empire in Las Vegas have gone up from 30 to 35. It's a pretty big increase, $5 per night. Excalibur and Luxor have gone from 30 to 35. And Circus Circus, yes, that's an MGM property. They used to be 27. Now it's $32 resort fee for the crap hole known as Circus Circus. What about station casinos? You may think may not be that bad since those are really aimed at locals, right? You'd be wrong. Green Valley Ranch, which was just a hair under $35, is now $39. Red Rock, same thing, $39. Palms Palms and uh, Palms Place went from 31 to 39, pretty big increase. Palace Station went from 2199 to 2999. Sunset Station went from uh, a little bit under uh, $20 to 2219. Santa Fe Station went from 1699 to 1999 as did Texas Station, same thing. Boulder Station went from around uh, $17 to 1992. Fiesta Henderson went from a little over $14 to 1999 and Fiesta Rancho went from 1394 to 1594. I know these are kind of weird values, but that's just what they are. I don't know why the weird sense on some of them. Here's some other properties around Vegas, all of which increased their resort fees in 2019, including the top two resort fees charged in Vegas right now. The Waldorf Astoria, which once was known as the Mandarin Oriental. It was sold to Waldorf. $45, an increase of $6. The Venetian and Palazzo, they don't charge for parking, but they do hit you with a pretty big resort fee. $45, also an increase of $6. The Cosmopolitan, Went from 35 to 39. They also charge for parking. Treasure Island, which does not charge for parking, went from 37 to 39. Hard Rock went from 31 to 36. Hooters went from 29 to 35. The SLS, the former Sahara, despite being a fail, they're charging pretty hefty resort fees, went from 32 to 35. The Stratosphere, despite not being a very nice property at all. They went from twenty nine ninety nine to thirty two ninety nine. The Golden Nugget went up to thirty two dollars, was formerly twenty nine fifty. The West in Las Vegas, right on the Flamingo Boulevard, uh I don't even know if they have a casino anymore. They went from uh, twenty nine dollars to thirty two dollars. The JW Marriott Resort and Spa went from nineteen ninety nine to twenty nine ninety nine, big increase. The Hilton Lake Las Vegas, despite being pretty far from the Strip, went from 22 to $29. The Platinum, which is a small hotel, went from 15 to 28 Big increase. 
Ellis Island, which is actually a Super 8 motel, they have a resort fee. They went from $17.99 to $25.99. Silver 7s, a small property, went from around $21 to $25.58. Golden Gate downtown went from 20 to 25 The D, which is associated with the Golden Gate, went from 20 to 25 Ilara, Ilara didn't have any resort fee in 2018. Now they charge $25. Wow, they went from 0 to 25 The Sun Coast went from $20.99 to $24.99. Aliante went from $19.99 to $24.99. Renaissance Las Vegas went from around $21 to $23.50. Samstown went from $19.99 to $22.99. Oasis at Gold Spike went from twenty dollars to twenty two sixty. The Plaza downtown went from eighteen to twenty two. The M Resort, which is way south, kind of a locals place, they went from uh, around seventeen fifty to twenty two dollars. Tahiti Village, which is a uh, really timeshares, but they have a resort fee too. They went from seventeen to nineteen. The Silverton went from sixteen ninety nine to eighteen ninety nine. The East Side Cannery went from around eleven dollars to sixteen ninety nine. The Days Inn, which is called the Wild Wild West, but it's actually a Days Inn, went from thirteen ninety nine to fifteen ninety nine. How sick is that that the freaking Days Inn and the Super Eight are charging big resort fees? Arizona Charlie's, which had kind of a reasonable resort fee of seven fifty at both locations, now it's a fifteen ninety nine at uh, the Decatur location and fourteen ninety nine at the Boulder location. Main Street Station, which is not actually a station casino, it's confusing, but it's not a station casino. They had no resort fee last year. Now they have fourteen ninety nine per night. Also, that's downtown. Uh, two other downtown places that had no resort fee that are now charging fourteen ninety nine. One called California, and the Fremont. All these are now fourteen ninety nine. They were zero last year. The Cannery, not the East Side Cannery, but just the Cannery, went from seven dollars to or seven dollars ninety cents to eight ninety nine. There are some which stayed the same, but are still charging resort fees. They didn't raise them, but uh, some of these were high to begin with. The Alexis Park All Suites, $14. The Artisan, $17.95. The Cancun Resort, $25. The Desert Paradise Resort, $17. Downtown Grand, $23. It's been a, it, downtown Grand is a newer hotel downtown, and it's, it's, it's a fail. They should not be charging resort fees like this, but they are. El Cortez downtown, fourteen ninety five. Fortune is ten dollars. The Gold Coast twenty ninety nine. All the Hilton Grand Vacations timeshare locations tw- charge twenty five a night. Mardi Gras, I haven't even heard of that one, but it's five dollars a night. The Orleans twenty dollars ninety nine cents. The Polo Towers twenty eight dollars. South Point, which is uh, exactly as it sounds, pretty. It's it's one of the farthest south casinos uh, in Las Vegas. Twenty one dollars. Tropicana is charging thirty five dollars. Trump, yes, there is a Trump hotel. But it's just Trump's name is on it. He doesn't actually own it. $35. The Tuscany Suites, $28. The Westgate Las Vegas, which is the former Hilton. Las Vegas Hilton. It's called Westgate now, $33.99. Westgate Flamingo Bay, $16.99. The Westin Lake Las Vegas, $29. And then the win. You might be wondering about the win. $39. Same as last year. So all those I just read to you were same as last year. Is there anything left with no resort fee? Well, there's not many. America's Best Value Inn, Casino Royale, which has a Best Western attached to it, the Desert Rose Resort, the Four Queens downtown, the Jockey Club, the Lucky Club, the Marriott Las Vegas, the La Quinta Inn and Suites, the Residence Inn, the Red Roof Inn, the Royal Resort, the Travel Lodge Center Strip, the Worldmark Las Vegas Boulevard, the Worldmark Tropicana, 
the Wyndham Desert Blue and the Wyndham Grand Desert. Those are the only remaining hotels with no resort fees. Can you believe that? That's it. While I was waiting for the number you were going to put on that last group, and I was going to be like, "What the fuck are they charging?" Yeah, that's the uh, that that is the only remaining group where the resort fee is zero point zero. But we're not done. What about parking fees? Now these uh, haven't gone up for the most part, but uh, actually, you know what? Some of them have actually. I, f- I forgot which ones did. But here's the current parking charges. I forgot what they were before, but here's what they currently are. Caesar's Palace, eighteen dollars, and, and when I, I'm, I'm talking about the daily parking rates, you can pay less if, you, if you're if you're there like less than an hour, it's free, and like less than four hours, it's less than this. But I'm talking about if you if you're staying there and for for four hours or more, park there per day. Caesar's Palace, eighteen dollars. Bally's in Paris are fifteen dollars. Flamingo, Harris, Link, and the Cromwell are all fifteen dollars. Planet Hollywood, believe it or not, as long as you self-park, is zero because they have shops attached to it and they don't want to discourage going to those. So it's actually free to park at Planet Hollywood still. And the Rio still has free parking. In the MGM group, Aria, Bellagio, and Vidara all charge $18, as does the Mandalay Bay and Delano, $18. MGM Grand New York, New York, Mirage, and Park MGM, $15 to park there. Excalibur and Luxor, $10 to park there. The Cosmo has started charging for parking. It's $15 there. The Hilton Lake Las Vegas, of all things, is charging $12 for hotel guests. I guess if you're uh, not a hotel guest, it's even more. And the Waldorf Astoria, they don't have a self-parking lot, but if you want them to valet for you, it's 30 bucks. So that's uh, pretty offensive, all these charges. And there's been some concern that... This is hurting Las Vegas, that this is, uh, while they're making some money here, this is driving away some visitors who otherwise would have spent money in the city, that they could be doing a lot better if they just stopped doing, doing this crap. But uh, nobody's stopping, and uh, now the wind did stop with the parking charges, at least. They, they cut those recently. That's why I listed the parking. You didn't hear the wind there. They, they don't charge anymore. The Venetian never charged for parking, but they do have the highest resort fee. Now let's talk about a resort fee, and what it really is. Some people think resort fees are a scam because they're p- forcing you to pay for things you don't really want. You, you, when you check into a hotel, they say, well, here's the resort fee, and it covers this and this and this. Oh, by the way, these these amounts I told you it is, that's not really what they are. They're actually higher. There's actually tax on top of them. So this is the resort fee before tax. But uh, the tax on resort fees is, let's see, it's a, try to figure out the exact percentage here. I, I, I know one of them of what it is after tax versus before tax. Yeah, it's, it's like about 13.4%. So, so all these resort fees I told you add like 13.4% to each of them per night and you get even more. That's, so they're, they're actually taxing the resort fees. And I'll explain shortly why that is. It may seem outrageous to you, but I'll explain why that is. There's a good reason why they're being taxed. So when you check in, they tell you the resort fee covers this. It's usually like the gym, local phone calls, a bunch of crap you don't use. Most people don't use the gym when they travel. They like to say they do, but most people don't. Most people don't make local calls from hotels anymore. They have a cell phone to do that. And the other crap they say that you get, it's things that would have been in the room anyway, like like the coffee. Or just It's stuff either that was before automatically in the room 
and a lot of times just stuff you don't need anymore or never needed. So a common response people like to give is, well, I don't need these things. Uh, Take them away. I won't pay the resort fee. And they say, nope, I'm sorry. It's a mandatory charge. And you go, what the hell? I don't understand this. This is a scam. They're forcing me to buy things I don't want. That's the wrong way to think about it. That's not what they are. That's the way they're justified. That's not how they are. That's not what they really are. Resort fees were born, unfortunately, thanks to Priceline. You have Priceline and William Shatner to thank for this. Priceline didn't do this intentionally, but it was a response to Priceline. Let's think about Priceline circa mid-2000s. Let's say like early to mid-2000s, okay? And which hotels would participate in Priceline? Remember, Priceline, you name your own price, and then you're assigned a hotel of their choice that meets the approximate star level of hotel you're looking for, which sometimes isn't really what it is. Like You'll get what's, quote, a four-star hotel, which actually sucks, but we're not going to discuss that right now. But you've probably used Priceline or know someone who has or considered using it, and you're blind bidding for a hotel in a certain area of a certain class, and then they give you the hotel. So which hotels participate in this? It, it, the hotels that are going to fill up anyway at full price would never do this because they're they're losing money. They have to pay Priceline. They, they have to accept the lower rate that you're bidding for. The only hotels that are going to want to offer rooms to Priceline are ones that are not filling up, hotels that are not doing very well, that would rather fill the room at a cut rate than not fill the room at all. And the way they rationalize doing this is that it's not being replaced by people who would have otherwise paid full price. So they, they can't just say, okay, tonight we're going to charge uh, half price for our rooms because then otherwise uh, people would start waiting to the last minute to book and then pay half price. So they, they don't want to have to re-rate everybody else's rooms who notices this. So they want people who are intending to stay at that hotel to have to pay the going rate, and those who just get placed there by Priceline, they're just getting placed without really having a choice, and that's a different story. So this way, the the hotel doesn't have to worry about people who would have stayed there anyway for full full price now getting in cheaper. The people who are now staying at cut rate probably would have stayed somewhere else. So that's why they didn't mind doing it. But the truth is, the hotels were still unhappy that people were staying there for, and, and they weren't collecting very much money. Because between the fees they'd have to pay to Priceline and the fact that the guest isn't paying very much at all, it almost wasn't worth it to place these people in these rooms, in these Priceline bid rooms. So then some of the hotels started to come up. I don't know which hotel invented this, but uh, some hotel came up with a great idea. Even though when you bid on Priceline, you're getting the room and you're supposedly getting everything paid, what if, what if there's additional services at the hotel which are not covered by all this? So at first what the hotels did, and I was there, this actually happened to me because I was using Priceline at the time. At first what they would do is the resort fee was fairly low, like $7 per night. And they would tell you what it covers. It would cover. It covers the the parking, the uh, uh, the internet. If they had internet back then, uh, the coffee machine. It's the same BS they're giving you today. And then they'd ask you to pay it. And if you'd say no, I don't want to pay it. Sometimes they'd say okay, 
and sometimes they'd force you to, or sometimes they'd argue with you, but eventually back down if you were forceful enough. But basically, it was a separate charge for things they claim that the hotel room doesn't normally cover. Which is crappy enough if it's optional, and you think you're getting a hotel room on Priceline that's supposed to cover everything. But it's especially crappy if it's a mandatory charge. Because then whatever you're buying on Priceline, you don't really have the room yet until you pay the extra amount, which the hotel itself determines. Well, when I first ran into this, I would whip out my confirmation and say, it says nothing here about $7 per night resort fee charge. I would say, I have this room for this amount of money. I paid Priceline. That's it. That's the contract I have. You guys have to honor it. And sometimes I'd have a person at the front desk who's like, oh, no, you got to pay it. It's something is requiring. Go, nope, I'm not paying it. And eventually they bring the manager out, and I'd show them the confirmation, and they'd back down. Sometimes I'd have to agree to opt out of this stuff. Like, I'd have to promise not to use the pool, or I'd have to promise not to not to park in their lot. Or, you know, I'd say, okay, fine, I will. I'm just, I'm just refused to pay this. I'm not, I'm not doing it. Eventually, these hotels got wise to people like me and started including it in the fine print. And, in fact, told Priceline to include it in the fine print. So when you bid on Priceline, if you read all the fine print, it would say that this does not include hotel resort fees, which may be required to check in. And then once you click that you're willing to bid anyway, and most people don't even read that fine print, then you've committed yourself to it. Then you have to pay it. So that's where it all began. It was by these Priceline properties to find a way to kind of dodge the fact that people were getting real big bargains on Priceline. But then something changed. Then people started searching hotels through online booking sites and search engines. Things like Trivago, things like Kayak, things like uh, Hotels.com and Expedia.com, Orbits, where people would sort hotels from least expensive to most expensive. And those that were already charging these resort fees to Priceline people, they thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, we have a great idea here. Why don't we lop off a lot of money from our base price and call it a resort fee? So if we're charging a $20 resort fee, we can cut $20 off our base price and we will show up as cheaper on the search engine. So this way, if the real price of our room is $100 a night, we can say our price is $80 a night and we'll show up higher up on the search engine and people will pick our hotel much more often, believing it's $80 a night and won't pick our competition who's $100 a night, which is actually the same as us. So we're collecting the same $100 as the other hotel that's $100 and no resort fee. We're $80 with a $20 resort fee, but we're showing up as $80 and people choose us for that reason before they realize it. So hotels started doing that. Well, then their competition would say, well, crap, we don't want to show up as more expensive when we're really not. We've got to charge a resort fee too. So they'd do it to keep up. Then there were some hotels that tried to capitalize on the public's disgust with the resort fees. Caesars for a while had a public campaign that they charged no resort fees. But they very quickly rescinded that when they were getting clobbered in those travel search engines by competing properties that charged resort fees and showed up as cheaper. So Caesars capitulated and 
started charging resort fees, and then they could lower their base price and again appear lower in the search engines. So it's a vicious cycle. No, nobody wants to break it because then they show up as more expensive when they're really not. And nobody wants to show up that way. The only way this is ever going to stop is if there's a law passed against it, which there should be, because it's meant to mislead the consumer. Even if you're told, oh, there's going to be a resort fee, even if there's some fine print, when you're searching for a hotel and it says it's $80 per night, yeah, government tax is fine. That's expected. But if you, if you see a property is $80 a night, it should be $80 plus tax per night, and that's it. It should not be $80 plus tax plus resort fee plus tax. Because then you don't know how much you're really going to be paying. Or it's misleading to some people. By the time they agree, they may have missed the fine print. It's just, it's a way to trick people. The whole point is it's a way to trick people. There's no such thing as a resort fee. If it is required, it is part of the standard charge for the hotel. It's part of the charge for the room. It's a scam, basically. It's a scam to make it look like it's cheaper than it really is. Imagine if you went to a restaurant and they said, they're selling you a steak for ten dollars. You go ten dollars for a steak. That's, that's a tremendous deal. Okay, great. And and you're and then buried deep in the ma- menu, it says that uh, each steak has a, a plate fee for thirty dollars. And suddenly your ten dollars steak becomes forty dollars. You'd be pissed. You'd say, "What the hell? Why didn't you just put it forty dollars?" Well, because the plates cost us money, and they cost us money to clean them. Well, yeah, but why didn't you just put forty dollars and roll all that into it? Well, that's the way we're listing it. You'd be pissed, right? This is exactly what they're doing with these hotels and resort fees. So don't look at resort fees as them charging you for extra things you don't want. Look at it that they are lopping that amount off the price and then publishing a false price to bring you in. And they're all doing it because if they don't do it, then their competition will get away with doing it. The only way to stop this is to make them illegal, which I'm surprised hasn't happened yet, but it just hasn't. And, and interestingly, interestingly enough, neither party, neither political party in the U.S. Has, has shown an interest in stopping this, even though everyone hates it. So that's what resort fees are. Why is there tax on them? Well, because the governments, the, the county governments, the state governments, the, the ones collecting taxes are aware of what's really going on here, that this is really part of the hotel room price. And they don't want to have the hotels get out of charging taxes by converting it to a resort fee. Let's let's take an extreme example. Let's say a $100 room, a hotel decided to charge $1 for the room and $99 resort fee. It would still be a $100 room, but if there's no tax on the resort fee, then they could get away with 99% of the taxes not paid. So they have to tax everything so this trick doesn't work, at least as far as ripping the government off from taxes. So that's why these are taxed too. So when you see the resort fee is taxed, you make, oh my god, how can this be taxed? This is like a tax already. Well, it kind of is, but it's it's really just them playing games with the price. It's the it's them turning a, a all inclusive pricing to uh, an, a line item pricing when it shouldn't be, and a misleading line item pricing. They're breaking something down into several parts when it shouldn't be. It it should be illegal. It's very misleading. It's meant to trick the consumer. Very bad. So that's what resort fees are. The only good news about it is that if they were eliminated, all they would do is they would just take the amount of the resort fee and roll it into the regular room rate. So you're not going to really save money if they get eliminated. Some people would think, oh, make the get rid of the resort fees. We won't have to pay this anymore. We'll save $39 a night. No, no, you're not. 
they're just going to increase the base price. But at least you'll see what the price really is. That's why that's why I think these are awful because they trick people. Show what the damn price really is, and then let us make our informed decision. Don't try to trick the unobservant among us. It's not always that easy to even figure out what the resort fee is until you've gone all the way through the booking process, too. It's not like it says clearly $80 plus $30 resort fee. It doesn't say that. It just says the base price, and you've got to get all the way through the booking process, and right before you hit confirm, it tells you what the resort fee is going to be. And sometimes not even then. Sometimes it's, it's buried and it's hard to see. And, and they do that on purpose because they figure if you've gone that far, you'll just, you'll, you'll begrudgingly accept the fee rather than see it right up front and say, oh, this sucks. I'm not going to do it. Very shady, but that's, that's the resort fee thing. And they've gone up in Vegas and they're going to continue to go up. It's, it's getting out of control every single year. They're going up at most properties. And I'm surprised Caesars hasn't broken the $40 threshold, but I bet in 2020 we'll see ones over 40. They're just, they're just slowly increasing them. Very crappy. Uh, one final note about the resort fees. If you want to get out of them, the best way to do it is to find something that has gone wrong during, during your stay, especially something you can prove or that sounds reasonable, and complain about it. And then at the end of the stay, ask a manager, like a front desk manager, if they can remove the resort fee because of the problem you had. What type of problems am I talking about? Um if it was very noisy, if there were some plumbing problems, like the shower doesn't work well, the sink didn't work well, you had to have maintenance come up to fix things, uh, if the AC didn't work well, any kind of maintenance visit you needed, especially one that takes a while, you, you can claim you want the resort fee off. Um, anything basically where you, you suffered some kind of inconvenience, something you didn't expect that was kind of bothersome, you can say you want the resort fee back. And they won't always just snap do it, but you can push and often get them to remove that. That's something that they kind of use as a peace offering in those type of situations. So some properties very quickly will do it for you. Others you have to fight a little bit. Some will, be, will really dig their heels in and say no, but it's worth trying. I've been successful many times, and, and I'll speak up. If, if anything goes wrong at a hotel, I'll always speak up with this type of thing. Because uh, as far as I'm concerned, you're you're not getting what you paid for. If uh, you pay for a hotel and then there's things wrong you didn't expect, make sure to get that money back. All right. Moving on here. By the way, you can see this full list on VegasCasinoTalk.com in the Las Vegas forum. If you want to ever refer back to it. But uh, I'm not going to update it probably, so it'll probably stay that way till next year. So in addition to high resort fees, how is Caesars Palace going to save money this year? An interesting article came out in the Las Vegas Review-Journal about uh, the financials of Caesars and, and what they're going to do to try to bring down costs. So they've they've had to increase wages and they had to do some layoffs to bring some of those costs down of the increased wages. They they did some corporate level layoffs. 
they did announce last month that they're going to reduce their annual labor costs by $40 million by getting rid of some corporate positions like finance, legal, marketing. But in an earnings call in late April, they said that they have found some ways they might be able to reduce their costs even further. CFO Eric Heisen, or Hessian, I guess is the way he says his name, said, through the combination of this, the corporate cut effort, uh, along with additional efficiency gains across both marketing and labor for the full year, we anticipate being able to successfully offset the $80 million in annualized labor headwinds and now anticipate growing margins on a full-year basis. In English, what that means is even though we had to pay $80 million more in labor costs, probably in increased salaries that they have to pay as demanded by unions, that they're still going to overall do better than the previous year because they have cut some jobs and they're going to give fewer comps. So let's talk about the fewer comps thing. Well, first let's talk about what some of the increased costs might be for them. So remember there's that whole potential strike that was going on that I never thought was really going to happen, and it didn't. But they ended up signing a five-year contract with Culinary Local 226, which it's not just food workers, culinary workers. The union is really encompassing a whole lot of hotel employees, not just ones that work in food. So they signed a new five-year contract, which included increases in pay. And uh, they're also having a problem in the Midwest region in the, the hotels they have there because they there's just not much unemployment. Unemployment numbers are very, very low now. In fact, it's the lowest it's ever been in my life in the U.S. There's never been a time I've been alive where the unemployment numbers in the U.S. were lower. So in the Midwest especially, where they had had higher unemployment for quite some time, now that the unemployment has gotten so low, they're having a hard time finding good employees over there. And in order to attract good employees over there, they actually have to pay them more than they used to. So what did they do? They did cut those corporate positions that they thought were wasteful. But that's not enough. They said what they're going to do is through better technology, they're going to improve marketing costs, which basically means we're going to be analyzing the comps we give away and give away fewer. They have figured out that they're giving away too much to customers, and and casinos have been adjusting this for a while, and Caesars has been doing this for a number of years. This is not the first year they're going to be doing it. They actually say that even though they're cutting comps additionally this year, that they actually cut them more in previous years that what they call marketing efficiency gains are not going to be as much as previous years. It means that comps were cut much more other years, but they're going to continue cutting comps this year. They said, uh, we're always trying to improve the way we can market to customers. We did change fairly dramatically the amount that we were giving back to customers. Isn't that interesting? That, that, you, they wouldn't be putting that in their ads, right? <laughs> we, ch- we did fa- change fairly dramatically the amount we were giving back to our customers. Wow. You don't want the customers to hear that, but they said that in an earnings call. It's interesting what they say to investors versus what they say to the customers, right? 
the lesser comps have been noticed by a lot of people I know who play at Caesars, including like non-advantage player types who just go there and lose because they're playing negative EV games and they get fewer and fewer comps. Slowly, casinos are learning that they are giving away too much. And I, I hate to admit it, but they're right. They are giving away too much. Casinos have realized that there's some segments of their customer base that they really shouldn't be giving much away to. Advantage players, for sure. But that's not a, that many people. But a much larger group than advantage players are what I call basic strategy players. People who aren't advantage players but basically know what they're doing. So they, they play the best pay table video poker. They don't make mistakes in video poker. They only pl- play the blackjack with good rules. They're not going to play 65 blackjack. They're not going to play slots. The, the, these play, these are gamblers who know what the best games are, and even though they still play with a disadvantage, they play with a much smaller disadvantage than the typical gambler who doesn't really know that well. Those people used to get pretty good comps just based upon the action they would put in. And yes, they would lose over time. They would lose, but they put in a lot of action and they get a lot of comps, so the casino actually wouldn't make that much from them. Between all the nice comp rooms that they'd be getting that could have sold to other people who would have paid real money for them, and and, and the food these people eat, and uh, just all, all the basic costs of serving them, and other things are given. Free play, all, uh, by the time you account for all of that, they're either not making money off these people or they're losing money off of them. And it, it can be a case where both lose. It can be where the, the player loses, and the player doesn't get back in comps what he lost, but the casino loses too because all the costs, all the operating costs in, in serving the player Actually, they don't make money on them either. So both sides lose, which is pretty bad. So they're starting to realize, these casinos, that smart business would dictate that they should only give comps away, generous comps at least, to players they really want to see come back, players who are going to reliably lose, players who will play the 6-5 to five blackjack and not even understand why that's bad. Players who will play slot machines just because they look fun and not because they're in a, a good state to where they're currently positive expectation or close to it. Players who will make a lot of very negative expectation side bets because they're fun and there's a chance to win some big money and not realize that the odds are terrible. That's who they want to bring back. They're going to routinely beat those players. And beat them enough to where even giving nice comps to them, they'll still beat them plenty to where they don't have to worry about that. But they're trying to cut down on the comps they give to the players who just aren't worth as much to them. So that's that's what Caesars is doing. They did say that they're doing better this year at Caesars than as far as room bookings. They said the second quarter non-group bookings, meaning the just regular bookings, not uh, where a big group rents out parts parts of the hotel, that they have 150,000 rooms that is per night. So like if someone stays four nights, it counts as four rooms. They call it room nights. 150,000 room nights better than 2018. So they, they're already seeing it a good deal better 
this year than last year. This is partially because they spent some more money marketing to what they call leisure guests, that is just regular tourists. Because they noticed that in the third quarter of 2018, they didn't do very well. Because guests that were coming in for conventions, it just uh, there there weren't as many as there had been before. There's a uh, a weak convention and entertainment calendar. They said people weren't coming in for certain acts that were in Vegas, and nor were they coming in for uh, conventions as often. It was still happening in both cases, just not as much as before. So they decided, hey, we're going to start marketing to just regular tourists who just come in because they like Las Vegas. So they increased those efforts and. So far, it's worked out. So there's more to this article. It's in the Las Vegas Review Journal. It's it's called uh, Caesars says comp cuts will help offset wage increases. You can look it up if you want. But the comp cutting is not surprising. They're learning. Uh. And there's going to be more of this every year. Every year they're going to get more efficient and better at marketing to the right people for the right amount of money. I've always felt that these casinos were wasteful with their comps. As a player, that makes me sad. I'm not happy this is happening. But I can understand it from the business side. What I can't understand from the business side is all the fail. I can't understand why they don't have people who are empowered to make little annoying things right for the customer instead of putting the customer through tremendous hassle trying to get things fixed of all types of mistakes. They, they really need some like this at, 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 at every hotel casino and they don't have it. You're told to go to your host who doesn't know the hotel side very well and doesn't want to give you a lot of time unless you're a big whale. It, it's just a mess. There's, there's a lot of people who get driven away who shouldn't be from hotel casinos because of these type of issues. When someone who's empowered to do things could make things right. Someone who understands everything well. Someone who's empowered to make decisions. That's what they need there. But what they don't need is to give comps that are beyond what really corresponds to how badly they want that customer's business back. That's what they don't need. They also would be better served by analyzing the type of comps they give away and the true cost of those comps and distribute them appropriately. What I mean by that is these basic strategy players, what would be smarter to do is offer them a lot of free rooms during periods that they're not historically booked up, like midweek, non-big convention periods. Give them the free rooms then. And then they'll come in and they'll lose a little bit and you'll be fine. You don't want to give them the rooms on the weekend when the rooms are going to be filled up anyway for a lot of money if they weren't there occupying them for comps. That's when you don't give them away. Now, they've done that to some degree, but I, I think I think they're giving away too little at times when they have a lot of empty rooms. And they're giving away too much at, at times when they could easily collect real money for those rooms. And, and same... I think free play also, I think they're, I think the free play they give, um, on one hand, they look at free play like that if, if, if it's someone who just really is 
a recreational gambler that they're just going to put it back in the machine and lose it anyway. That's that's one way to look at it. Uh, another way is that maybe the money could be spent better somewhere else. If the person's going to get two hundred dollars worth of free play, and they would have put in a real two hundred dollars in his place, maybe you give that money away another way, like in food, where it's much cheaper to give someone two hundred dollars worth of food than two hundred dollars worth of free play. There's a lot of ways they could be adjusting the comps that they're not, that they could do it much better. And I won't go into all that, but I even have a lot of ideas of my own that if I were in charge, I would implement. But uh, they're still learning. They'll eventually get it, unfortunately. (laughs) But really, the general direction they're going is to drive away basic strategy players and advantage players. They, They just want the what are known in the advantage player circles as ploppies. Ploppies are very recreational gamblers who don't really understand what they're doing. They may have a very basic understanding, but they they don't know what's a better pay table. They don't understand what better rules on blackjack are and aren't. They don't understand anything about the odds of what they're playing. They're just there because something looks fun. They play side bets because they seem fun. They play slots because the, the the thought of winning a jackpot seems fun, or the slot seems like it's got a cool theme to it. Of some TV show they once liked, or whatever. The they will play video poker because they they're trying to hit those big hands like the Royal Flush or the Four Aces, and they're not so worried about what they get paid for two pair or for the flush and the full house. That that's the type of player they want. And not the ones who really understand everything. Every year it's going to get worse. Guarantee you. We're, we're never going to see a return. It's going, to, it's going to keep getting worse and worse this way until they finally hit a breaking point. And we're not there yet. Unfortunately, gamblers really are getting stupider. Okay, now here's an interesting story. We're near the end, by the way. But here's an interesting story. Trader Risky, you still here? Do we have trader risky or is the T taking its effect? I've just trudged through this whole thing. I haven't taken a break or anything. I've just, I've just gone right through. I think we may have lost trader risky. We, we always lose him around this time. He, he has a hard time making 1 a.m. It's 1.11 a.m. He has a real hard time making it like a, up to this point. Like if, if it's 1.30 and he's here, it's a miracle. I'll cut him a break today, though. He was he was in Chicago earlier, so it's really like 3 a.m. for him now. I'm going to drop Trader Ruski. Thank you for being on the show with us. I will complete the rest of this by myself. I guess before we go to the Vancouver thing, I'm going to read some texts that we received on 775-372-8355. I don't think I mentioned that's our text number. I, I tell you guys every week, so screw it. From the 505, the Jungle Man video almost looks like a full tilt ad. You're right. It does. It does kind of remind me of a full tilt ad. Also, um, unintentional roast master draft that a net opening is, is second to why I don't believe I don't know what he's trying to say. That a net opening is second to the why I don't believe Negrano is gay. Short, fat, round, no shape, brutal. I don't know what he's trying to say. 
The new call to listen line isn't working, says someone in the 915. It answers, but no sound out of the announcement. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, I'll try to figure it out. Maybe I'll have to move it back to South Dakota. I don't know. Kill Duff, Iowa. It, it was working until this show, and now we've got a problem. From the... Let's see. 952, they wanted to add $25 to this free roll tonight. It's too late. I, I know, just... Uh, you know, I'm just going to... I'll try to remember. If, you, if I forget, just tell me. I'm going to try to remember to add it to next week's pool. Uh, let's see what else we got here. From the 267, a new listener, supposedly. You never know. You never know. Sometimes these new listeners are fake, and they're just trying to get me to read what they wrote here, and get me all excited about a new listener. From the 267, new listener, can you give a new back? Can you give a background on Trader Ruski? I need context. Like, is he a stock trader or a poker pro? Or what's his deal? He has good material. Maybe include him more. Not to be funny, his voice is weird. Is it just him or is he a heavy smoker? He sounds like an 87-year-old smoker, but I love his input. Okay, so Trader Ruski does have a unique voice. And, and people tell me this all the time We listen to this show. I don't think he sounds like an 87-year-old smoker, but he does have a unique-sounding voice. And he does have good material. He does bring up a lot of good points, sometimes things I don't even think of. Um, he's welcome to talk at any time. He's kind of like half co-host, half listener. And, you know, he's always welcome on the show to co-host, whether I have another co-host or not. Uh, he's not one who tends to do like a whole lot of back and forth interaction. Uh, but I, I'd love for him to interject more often if he has something to say. He does like to kind of just listen live and leave it on mute and put it on speaker. While he plays poker in the background, and uh, I, I enjoy whatever he does contribute, and and he does have some interesting thoughts on things, and and thinks of some aspects to our stories that I will overlook at times, and that's very good. But what is the story on him? Well, I guess I can kind of explain it. Uh, he was a listener to the Doc Down show. That we had on the Donk Down site that I had with Mike on and two other people. And I didn't know him then, but uh, he offered to get some uh, Donk Down hats for us at a good price. And he even subsidized it somewhat of his own money. He was very, very nice and generous with this whole thing. And, uh, he met up with me. He brought a bunch of Donk Down hats in these Geico backpacks. I don't know where he got the Geico backpacks, but uh, I actually still use those backpacks. I actually use one of them for the World Series. You'll see, if you see the backpack I'm walking around with at, at the World Series and also in poker rooms sometimes, even not at the World Series, that's I got that from Trader Ruski like, like eight years ago. I still use it. It's, it's a good backpack for poker, actually. It's not, it's not too big. It's got a lot of pockets. It's actually a, a good thing to use. I also use it for hiking sometimes, too. It's, it's a useful backpack. Uh, so I, I was impressed that he was uh, this generous with his time and, and with his money, and he, he was a, a fan of the show. Didn't know him too well. He, he took me to dinner a few times, and uh, I got to know him better. And he lives in the L.A. area. 
And and over the years, uh, I've got to know him more. The Trader Ruski name, that was his name actually stood for Trader's Hockey. And I'm forgetting, if he were still here, he could tell us. But I'm forgetting what that was referring to. But it was Trader's Hockey, T-R-A-D-E-R-S-H-K-Y. It was T-R-A-D-E-R-S-H-K-Y, Trader's Hockey. Like hockey's abbreviated H-K-Y. And Brandon nicknamed him Trader Ruski. He's like, who's this Trader Ruski guy? And it, it kind of stuck. So we're still calling him Trader Ruski, even though he's not Russian, nor is he a trader. Uh, he is actually uh, a co-owner of uh, a certain kind of tech company. I don't. Want, I won't give away too much. I don't know how much he wants given away, but uh, that's what he does. He's uh, a recreational poker player. And, and gambler, but uh, I he, he's played enough poker to where he's he's definitely competent at the game. Like he's not he's not a fish, but he's not a poker pro. That's not what he does for a living. He he does play a good deal of poker, especially like tournament poker online. So uh, that's what he is. He's he's like a like a good recreational player, and. We've uh, known each other for eight years now, and uh, you know he's he's a real friend at this point. and And I'll tell you, when I was going through this this crippling, terrible anxiety and depression in in August and September, I talked to him. You know, um, I talked to others too, but I I had some calls with him where I called him and just talked about it, and and he listened to me, and and he even met up with me and and gave me a book to read about. Uh, how to get uh, some of this stuff down, and uh, he, he he did a lot to try to help during that time, which I appreciate a lot. And he gave me some CBD oil at one point to try. The very nice guy, very nice and generous guy, and I, I appreciated that he was there for me when I was having those problems. And I remember just one day, I remember one of the worst days of the anxiety. And this, I'm always going to remember this about him because, because, uh, and he'll hear, he'll hear this. He's sleeping right now. He's, he's in tea land right now, but, but he's going to hear this later when he listens to the rest of the show. Something I'm always going to remember is when one of the worst days of the anxiety, and I can't tell you how awful it was. It was this incredible pressure on my brain. I couldn't stand to be inside anymore. If I was indoors at all, I felt like I couldn't breathe. I felt and I felt this incredible pressure on my brain, and there was no way to get rid of it. And I called him up. I forgot why I called him, but or maybe I texted. I think I texted him how terrible I was feeling. And he said to call him, and I called. I think it was something like that. A lot of this is a blur. But what I remember him being in front of my house, just feeling so terrible, and and talking to him, and he could tell the stress in my voice. He could tell it wasn't the same person that he knew before all this. You could tell I was going through a lot of bad stuff. And, you know, he, he did his best to try to calm me down, make me feel better. And there was only so much anybody could do. It's not like I got off the phone and felt great, but, you know, he, he did all he could. And I, and I do remember thinking as all that was going on, like, yeah, this guy's a good friend. He's not, he's not just some guy who gets on the radio show with me. Like, this is a real friend. This is like a real good friend who's, uh, Trying to help me out here, and uh, and I appreciated that. 
when I was going through it, I appreciate it, and I still appreciate it now, looking back on it. And, you know, I hope I never feel that way again. But it was nice he was there. So there's that Trader Risky story. Um... This is something from the 505. I don't know if I should read this. I'm going to read it. He he's actually he's he's saying something. I think he's trying to give a compliment, but it's it's uh, it's not. <laughs> I'm going to read it anyway. I'm, you know, I'm going to read the good and the bad. Other than when people if people send texts specifically to troll me and piss me off, I don't read them on the air. I don't want to give them that satisfaction. But anything that's critical or even something that's that's not meant to be critical but kind of is, I'm going to read it anyway. Because this is a real show. I'm going to be honest and real here. Uh, he was explaining, this guy in the 505, he was explaining that tweet he wrote about the Annette opening, about her, and I didn't understand what he was trying to say. So he says, I was comparing your assessment of Annette to the story of you telling us how you thought Daniel Negreanu was gay until you saw him around Amanda. You have this almost, you have this almost autistic way of giving your assessment of someone. It's so honest yet brutal. Okay. No, it's, it's not, see, let me let me tell you the difference here between like an autistic way of assessing someone and what I'm doing here. It's two very different things. Someone who has autism and who kind of blurts things out in a brutally honest fashion, they do it because they don't understand the social implications of what they're saying. So they'll notice something and they'll just say it and they don't realize they're making someone feel bad or they're making someone else look bad or they're saying something rude or something overly critical. They, they just blurt it out. Not because they're evil, not because they're trying to be jerks, but they, they really don't understand. At least as they're saying it. If they explain later, they can kind of get it. But as they're doing it, they don't realize that they're they're saying something that's kind of inappropriate. I will tell you, everything I say on this show, I'm very aware as I say it, the way it's going to be received and the way that the person I'm talking about would receive it if they heard, which often they do, so I, I don't assume no one's going to hear. I A lot of times they do hear and confront me later. I've had that a lot of times where I get, there's anger later over things I say here of people I never thought would ever hear it. And I, I'm aware of all this. I just choose to do it anyway sometimes because I feel that it needs to be said or because I want the listener to understand the way it is. And sometimes I feel the person I'm talking about, um, they, I feel it's appropriate to talk about them in that way for whatever reason. Maybe because they've done some bad things in the past. Maybe because what I'm saying I don't think is that bad. And that, or, or they put themselves out as so much of a public figure that it's worth having these discussions about them. Or that what I'm saying is just kind of describing the situation that they're in, where there's often some good and some bad in it. But I am trying to be real and I am trying to give everybody who's listening the best picture of what's actually going on, not what sounds the best. Not what makes others look the best, 
or what makes others look the worst. And I've said that recently, that there has been opportunities where someone I don't like, I could make look worse by exaggerating their culpability in something, in some controversy, and I don't. I don't want to do that. I just want the listener to get an honest show out of me and to really understand fully what's really going on. So what I was saying about Annette, um, I I think I I mixed a lot of things in the Annette segment that were good and bad. All true, as far as what I can see. In fact, something I had assumed for years about why her poker play got worse was correct. She, She said it in her own video. And, and she also admitted that she didn't take care of herself that well back when people were trolling her about not taking herself, care of herself well. She's, it's kind of funny. She's like, yeah, people on the internet, they're giving me a hard time saying I don't take care of myself well and bullshit like that. Well, no, actually, it's kind of true. I wasn't taking care of myself. But she wasn't. I mean, that's the truth. But I didn't even hold that against her then because I actually I kind of admired it in a way that she wasn't hung up on that stuff despite being a teenage girl, that she actually was focusing on poker and, and became great at it because she had such focus. I admired that. Teenage girls who care so much about their looks are a dime a dozen. Also, when I, when I talk about the way she used to look, about being like short, fat, and round with no shape, um, that's not how she looks today anymore. So she's improved. It, it's different than someone who was once pretty and, and now has no shape. And if I say that and they hear it, they feel terrible because they, they think about how they were pretty a few years ago and, and now they look terrible. Like they, That would make them feel very bad. She's got the opposite going on. She looks a lot better than she did back when I met her in 07. Even though she's 12 years older, she looks way better now. But other things are worse. Her looks are way better, other things are worse. And I think she'd agree with that if you asked her. But I do do have some uh, hard feelings about her. She didn't do anything to me personally, but I, I do have some criticism of her that she really contributed to the lock poker thing and knowingly did so. And you have to have some sort of coldness and callousness to be able to do that. I just couldn't picture it. If someone came to me and said, hey, Todd, this poker site you're promoting, here is indisputable evidence they've been ripping people off for a long time and aren't paying anybody. There's no way I could say, okay, well, thanks for telling me. I'm going to keep advertising. I'm going to keep promoting them. I'm going to have my fans still deposit there. There's no way. I could never do that. I couldn't sleep if I did that. So that's when I see people do things like that, then I have less sympathy for them when they go through hard times themselves, even if it's not related to that at all. Though I will say, as I said during that segment, I I don't feel good hearing her talk about all the problems she's had, the physical problems. That, That sounds awful. I don't think she deserves anything that bad. And, uh, that is unfortunate. And I can I can have some empathy regarding all of that. Even though I have some issues with how she handled the lock poker thing. Um, some people who did worse things, uh, if they were to be having pain like that, I'd say, okay, good, they deserve it. <laughs> but not, not her. She doesn't she hasn't done anything bad enough to warrant that. And I know as well as anyone now, what it's like when, like health-wise, a lot of things are going wrong, and 
that's all that just like takes over. In the chat room, FTP Jesus says interesting prices on hotels on the strip on the back end of the World Series. Just looked, you get Harris for average forty four a night, not counting the stupid resort fee from seven one to seven six. Thinking of playing the mini main as I have might have the cash for it possibly. Um, I better look at that again. I was noticing like two days of that were actually pretty expensive when I last looked. But yeah, the, the the World Series prices. It depends if it's a weekend. It depends if it's a high profile event going on. I'm surprised during the main, like uh, July seventh to July sixth. Part of that is the main. The end of that's the main. The beginning of the main. So I, I'm surprised that's cheap anywhere. But yes, there are some very good deals to be had during midweek in certain World Series portions. Like there's some times you can get it pretty low per night, not counting the resort fee. So you may want to look at that. And FTP Jesus, you know, I'll, I'll meet you if you come out here. I've never met you before. I know you've been around a long time. So. Yeah, I, I will. Uh, I will meet you. And by, by the way, there's something you should keep in mind on the Caesars website. When it tells you like the amount per night for a stretch, like say you try to book July 1st to July 6th, it'll say this much per night. What it's really doing is averaging it all. So there may actually be two quite expensive nights in there, but then the rest are like dirt cheap, and then it averages selling that sounds pretty good. So just be aware of that too. And you don't need the expensive ones in there to get the cheap prices. You can just do the cheap ones and then stay somewhere else for the expensive ones. All right, now let's talk about Vancouver. This is an interesting story. I, I kind of felt bad leaving it to the end because... It's weird. It's it's weird in, in the fact that it's unexpected of how blatant a lot of this stuff was. I will admit I don't know much about Vancouver area casinos because I don't live in Canada. And when I've been to Canada, I've never tried to play poker in Canada. Vancouver area casinos are apparently experiencing a large drop in revenue ever since the beginning of 2018. And there's a reason for that. Prior to 2018, there were massive money laundering operations going through some of these Indian, Indian, some of these Vancouver casinos. It took until 2017 when reports of the massive money laundering went mainstream and hit the mainstream news in Canada. And at that point, the government was forced to address it because it was embarrassing for them. British Columbia Premier John Horgan hired an independent investigator at that point to look into the whole thing. And he found some shocking things. The River Rock Casino, which once had the World Series of Poker Circuit, by the way. Doesn't anymore, but it used to. That was actually called the epicenter of money laundering by this investigator. Amazingly, in a single month, $13.5 million 
of $20 bills were laundered there in a single month. If that doesn't sound bad enough, at the Starlight Casino, one guy showed up with a gigantic bag of $3.1 million of $20 bills and said, uh, yes, I would like to buy chips, please. <laughs> and they actually gave him the chips. The guy bought $3.1 million worth of chips at the casino with a bag full of $20 bills. And the casino did it and said nothing. Can you believe this? And of course, the reason for this is, uh, this is a big way money laundering is done, where they take money that was illegally obtained, and then they cash it out in casino chips, and then pretend it was gambling winnings. And while tax still has to be paid on it, they can claim, actually, I'm not even sure how taxes work in Canada with that, but uh, but whatever, they can claim it as gambling winnings and not as whatever way they got the money drugs or however it was gotten. Apparently, some of the transactions there involving these $20 bills involved people showing up with cash in suitcases or even in one case, a hockey bag. <laughs> so they'd just show up. They'd wheel suitcases to the cashier and go, yes, I'd like chips, please. Uh, 3.1 million of chips, eh? Crazy, right? Can you imagine in Vegas doing this? And no paperwork, no nothing. Did they just roll up there, do it, get the chips, and, uh, and then cash it out and claim it's gambling winnings? And, and this was going on for years. And no one did anything. And it took a report in the mainstream media in 2017 to finally get the attention of the public to where the government was embarrassed enough to hire an investigator to look into the whole thing and couldn't believe what he found. I wonder why it's $20 bills. Do they not have hundreds in Canada? No, they got to. I think I've used hundreds before in Canada. They have to. They have to have hundreds. It'd be insane if they didn't. Somehow there's, there's tons of 20s went through there. I don't know why the 20s. I mean, I'm going to look this up. Largest bill. I'm, I'm just about sure I've used hundreds there before. It's been like four years since I've been to Canada. Let's see, largest bill denomination in Canada. Yeah, they have hundreds. They have, just like the U.S., 5, 10, 20, 50, 100. Yeah. And, and their money's worth a little bit less than the U.S., too. Worth like about three quarters of U.S. dollars right now. So th- this is crazy. And uh, so this all changed in 2018. The British Columbia Lo- British Columbia Lottery, and they are the regulators of the casino industry there. It's like that in a lot of U.S. states, too, where the Lottery Commission regulates the gaming industry. They put a whole lot of new measures in place regarding this uh, money that changes hands of the casino. So anyone who comes into a casino and attempts to buy chips has to require a bank receipt on the source of the funds for anything that's 10K or more within a 24-hour period. 
kind of similar to the U.S. where you have to fill out a cash transaction report for 10K or more within a 24-hour period. Uh, the firm Ernst & Young was also hired to audit three years of transactions at the River Rock. They claimed at Ernst & Young that there was no pattern of money laundering, but the Ever since they put these new regulations in, the revenue's way down, so I think we know where a lot of the revenue came from. Now, you may wonder, how is their revenue affected so badly if this is just money laundering, not real gambling? Well, it is real gambling. Uh, the casino was not going to allow someone to buy in with $3.1 million worth of $20 bills and then say, okay, now I'd like to cash it out for all hundreds and claim it's gambling winnings. The casino wouldn't cry foul on that and perhaps call the authorities. So in order to keep the casino happy, the person would buy in with that money and then go gamble high stakes and, of course, usually lose. But they wouldn't lose all the money. So let's say they, they brought in that $3.1 million even if they lost, say, 500000 of it and cashed out $2.6 million, that's worth it to them. It's much better to have $2.6 million of clean money than $3.1 million of dirty money. So that's where everybody wins. The casino wins. The criminals win. Uh, the only ones who lose is the, the law-abiding citizens and the, uh, the society that supports them, unfortunately. So... That's, uh, so while there's no, quote, pattern of money laundering, that doesn't mean that it wasn't going on, and clearly it is because the casinos have noticed a massive drop of revenue since these laws went into place about a year and four months ago. So it shows that a lot of the high-stakes gaming was being driven by money laundering. And now that that's been stopped, now criminals are not laundering money through casinos anymore there in Vancouver. And now they're making much less money. Kind of sucks for the casino, huh? The River Rock said that they have, that, that their total winnings decreased 16% in 2018. But instead of saying that money launderers simply are not playing there anymore, the CEO claimed that gamblers just aren't used to these new regulations and that uh, many high rollers just aren't coming because they don't want to give these necessary documents to change the money into chips. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that's somewhat of a factor, but that's not what's going on here. It's, it's definitely the, mo- the money launderers are staying away. That's the big problem. Uh, gamblers will find ways to gamble. Uh, a newer casino there called Park Vancouver, which opened in late 2017, is apparently losing money hand over fist, and they may be closing soon. They, they, their revenues are way down. They, they're taking on debt, and the uh, they may not be able to stay open. I think they were counting on the money launderers, and they unfortunately opened just months before those new regulations went into place. Andrew Hood, who's an equity analyst at uh, M Capital Partners, Inc., said, The anti-money laundering regulations in British Columbia have been a problem. The regulations were supposed to cut down on illicit gambling, but of course, it, it hurt, uh, that hurt volumes across casinos. Well, it, 
it probably hurt it because there's probably not money laundering anymore. I have to think this is probably just a major form of revenue that's been sucked away from them. So money launderers are probably keeping these Vancouver casinos afloat. The bike had a lot of this going on. They got in trouble for this. Where these phony poker games would take place, where people would buy in for mass amounts, play heads up at very high stakes, and the whole thing was just a phony game to launder money. And the bike would look the other way. The bike would not report anything. There would be massive amounts of money bought in and cashed out, and they were not filling out the proper forms, and they did not report anything suspicious to the federal government as they're supposed to. So the bike was used for money laundering for quite some time until they finally got busted. They even got shut down for a day or so while this was being handled. Commerce, they didn't get in trouble to my knowledge, but they have really changed course with how they handle the cashing out of money. Commerce used to be super lax about this to where you could you could go up to the cage and say, yeah, I have a $9,999 for the chips. Uh, can you please give me cash for those? And then you could jump over to the next cage. Yeah, I have $900,999 for the chips. Can you give me cash for those? You could just keep doing this over and over. I'm not saying I did it. I'm just saying that the, this this has been done. This could be done for many years, and they didn't know or care. Well, I think they knew, but they didn't care. There was no attempt to figure out who was cashing out more than $10,000, other than if you showed up and actually asked for more than $10,000. Other than that, they made no attempt to stop any kind of cashier hopping or or that you cash out near a 10000 you can come right back and do it again. They, they had no care about this whatsoever. It shocked me. Now it's the opposite. Now, like anything more than like 2K, they, they want some kind of ID to see who you are. And then they note it in the computer so they can figure out if you've cashed out more than 10K that day. So they must, the, the government must have finally come down on them for this. They, they may not have been busted, but they probably were warned after all these years of non-compliance. So yeah, money laundering is a, it's a big problem through casinos. It always has been. And any casino that's lax about it, they're, they're going to be a target. And the casino often cooperates because they gain from it. And often employees do too. Sometimes employees will be tipped under the table for not saying anything. And they know what's going on. They, they know when a guy shows up with a hockey bag of $3 million of 20s that this isn't legitimate money. They know what this is. Who would ever walk in with a, with a hockey bag of $3 million of 20s? Come on. It's so obvious it's money laundering. All right, final topic. Final topic, and then we will shut down the show for tonight. We've been going for over five hours. So plenty long, this show. It's about Montana. Montana has actually become the first state in 2019 to legalize sports betting. It was easy to lose track of this because it, it seemed like so many different states were legalizing sports betting. It was, it was easy to lose track of the fact that there just wasn't much movement in 2019. 
that the whole first third of the year had passed without any new legalizations, despite many states that were talking about doing it or attempting to do it. But last week, Governor Steve Bullock signed uh, a bill to legalize sports betting. And now sports betting is officially legal in Nevada. There were two bills actually sent to him. One was from the House and one was from the Senate. He, He signed the one from the House. He vetoed the one from the Senate. The Senate, the one that got vetoed, would allow private businesses to apply for licenses to offer sports betting. The House bill only allowed the state lottery provider to operate sports betting there. So there's a state lottery. It's actually run by a company called Intralot. And the the House bill is saying that only Intralot can offer sports betting. They're the only ones they trust. The, The Senate bill says, hey, any private business who thinks they're trustworthy enough can try, they can apply, and we'll see who's trustworthy enough to offer sports betting. So the, the, the governor decided that he doesn't want to just let anyone offer it, but uh, Intralot, who already operates a state lottery, that'll be fine. Washington, D.C. has the same thing going on. Washington, D.C., they, they don't officially have sports betting yet. They're still trying to work out the regulations, but uh, Intralot also is going to be offering the sports betting there and no one else. The reason that uh, Governor Bullock decided not to go with the Senate version is that he said he didn't want to flood the market with multiple operators. And he claimed that Interlot is already, they understand the regulations in the state and they already have the infrastructure to do it, so why bring in new parties that don't have any experience in this stuff? What if he had signed both bills? Well, then... Intralot would have been able to do it, and then the private businesses could have applied as well. I think if, it, if he only signed the uh, the Senate one, then I think Intralot would have had to apply too. In case you're wondering, political party-wise, the Senate bill was presented by Republicans, and the House bill was a, a Democrat bill. The Montana governor is a Democrat, so that also probably figured into it. Bars and restaurants that were licensed to do so will be able to have kiosks and mobile apps to allow customers to bet on sports. I I, I don't know how the mobile apps will work, though. Like... A, that would sound like people could do it from home. Maybe they can. They're estimating that in the first 12 months of legalized sports betting there, once it's actually put online, that uh, about $65 million will be wagered in the first 12 months. There's going to be an 8.5% tax on the revenue from sports betting. The government thinks that uh, that will net them about $3.7 million, which, which isn't very much if you think about it. For a state government, even a small population state like like Montana, 
that's still not very much money, $3.7 million. However, they think it'll it'll rise over time. They think in uh, 2023 it'll make about 5.4 million in tax revenue. However, the uh, the other states which have allowed sports betting, uh, so far they're making less in tax revenue than they thought they would. For example, Rhode Island has only generated about $150,000 in tax revenue since November. And yet they thought that in uh, the first year they're going to make $11.5 million, which is clearly not going to happen. If in, in about uh, half that time, in about six months, they've only made 150000 that's way off. That's not just below projections. That's just order of magnitude off. It's interesting that Montana is even passing this just to get a few million dollars extra a year. You think it's the, the headache of that wouldn't be worth it, but I guess they feel it is. Any money's good money for the government. I see why now they only want Interlot to run it. Like I, I see why they don't want much additional headache because they're only going to make three million from it. So the, they're like, look, if the, the the state's only getting three million from this, we're not going to start licensing new operators and hassle with. Issues they may have. We're just going to stick with a company we know that's running our lottery. I kind of understand that. At, at some point, the headache's not worth it. That's what I think, unfortunately, is going to be the attitude about online poker. Is Unless sites can consolidate, which it's in question now because of these uh, the reinterpretation of the Wire Act. My concern about online poker is that it's just not making much or any money because the, the numbers are so bad. And the, the casino gambling is doing okay in states like New Jersey, which allow it. But like, look at Nevada that just has poker. It's doing terribly. They're losing money. So if other states look to model themselves after that, they're not going to go, oh, look at the money Nevada's making. They're going to go, oh, look at the money Nevada's losing. <laughs> Why would we want the hassle of legalizing online poker if they're going to lose money from it? Now, the state doesn't lose money, but if, it, if the state's not going to collect any money if there's no revenue. If there's no profits, they're not going to get anything in taxes, probably. they probably get some some licensing fees and stuff, but that's very little. So I think the only way this is really viable for most states, aside from very large population states, is, is if they can consolidate player pools. It's the only way it's going to matter, uh, going to make sense. But I can see a lot of states just saying we don't want to deal with it. Now, maybe if if poker can be added along with casino gaming in the same site, like they do in New Jersey, that could be a solution. But some states may not want that. Well, I don't got anything more. We're done. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you, Eric Benzamokin. Eric at eblawfirm.us. Eric at eblawfirm.us. The EB stands for Eric Benzamokin, in case you haven't figured that out. He's an attorney. You can message him. He uh, does arbitration and mediation, but he does a lot of other things, too. He mentioned he does uh, criminal defense especially related to marijuana issues in California, but uh, he could probably do other criminal defense if you need that. 
you can you can ask him what he does. He's he's ever adapting. And you hear him on this show, you know, you you hear, you hear he seems to know what he's talking about, right? Like <laughs> he seems like a very competent attorney. So if you want to show appreciation to the generosity he's had for the show and you you have a need for an attorney and you're in a a state where he can practice or if you have a federal case because he can uh, he can practice federally even if you're not in California but or if you need him to uh, arbitrate or mediate something then email him eric at eblawfirm.us and even if you think it's an area that maybe he doesn't do you can always just email him he's not going to be mad and say why are you bothering me he's going to he'll be happy he gets the email and happy there's some interest shown and and he'll tell you honestly if he can help you so i appreciate the donations he gives and i appreciate the legal expertise he gives to the show i think that's one way we've really improved recently is to have him around for that and that's why the segments are so well liked. Um, something that we haven't improved with, in fact, got worse, is that we don't have Calwatt anymore, and that makes me sad. The show has crept up to be later and later, and that is more convenient for me. The the more time. My family sleeping while I do this show, the better it is for me. But I would like to have Calwatt back. So maybe I'm going to talk to Calwatt and see if if we start a little bit earlier, if we can bring him back. Because the show has been starting pretty late. And he's on the East Coast, and he got unused to staying up so late when the show was off for a while. So that's why he's gone. But I would like to bring him back. I, I hear reruns on the call to listen line sometimes and go, oh, I miss those days we had Calwatt here. So I'll look into that too. He still listens though. He's just not staying up late enough to be on the show anymore. That's, that's the simple thing. There was no fight. There was no uh, incident. He's just not up this late anymore. We'll be back a week from today. May 15th will be our next show. Three weeks from the World Series of Poker. I'll be honest, it doesn't feel like the World Series is coming because of the way the weather has been in Southern California. Usually there's a a warm-up period where it just really feels like the World Series is coming. I mean, yes, the sun goes down later, so we've got that, but every day is in the low 60s as a high and it feels a lot more winter like than summer like the only difference is it's not like bitter cold at night I would say it's never bitter cold here but yeah, by LA standards it's, it's not like freezing at night it's not like in the 30s or the high 20s Like or, it's in the 50s at night which is a lot better but uh, it's in the 60s during the day like low 60s and it, it just doesn't feel like it's even a little bit of rain. It just doesn't feel like the weather that leads up to the World Series every year. So I kind of feel like it's earlier in the year. I, I keep having to remind myself it's May right now. 
It just doesn't feel like me. And then it's, it's going to pop up on me one day, like, oh yeah, I've got to pack and leave for the World Series. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. Um, if you see me around the World Series, I always say this, but feel free to say hello. If I'm on the way somewhere, please understand if I can't stand and talk to you, I may be on a break in a tournament. I may be uh, rushing to an event to get there on time. I may be going somewhere else. So if I'm like rushing to get somewhere, I may not be able to stay and talk. But it still say something. I may just have to leave quickly. But otherwise, I'll, I'll talk to you a little bit. And uh, I always like to meet our listeners and always like to meet listeners that are that I never knew existed and ones I do know exist. So if you see me around, say hello. Good night. Shalom.